You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. meets a man with a rifle you said the man with the pistol is a dead man let's see if that's true you see my mule don't like people laughing it's the crazy idea you're laughing at him so if you apologize like I know you're going to I might convince him that you really didn't mean it we did episode of the ggtmc that's easily maybe the longest intro ever there so <laughs> wicked guy yeah, that took a lot of work i typically don't do that kind of stuff but uh that took a lot of work <laughs> believe it or not <laughs> i'll tell you what man 200 i will do the intro yeah nice nice uh, well it depends I, I'll, I'll feel sorry for you whatever trilogy or double deuce or whatever it is at 200 uh trying to go through sergio leone films and find good dialogue was like trying to go through a haystack looking for the proverbial needle <laughs> Only in that he's spare, of course, in his dialogue. Yes, and you want to you want to get some catchy stuff, but you you got to watch. I mean, the best one for dialogue, obviously, is Good, the Bad, the Ugly. But I mean, it's just like it's it's hard to find the the right lines. You know what I mean? So uh, it was it was a lot of work, brother. Let's oh, I can that imagine. Thank you to you, my yeah. good man, for but, doing that. Uh, okay, so we are covering, and uh, this is the hundred episode GGTMC. Welcome, everybody. Uh, intros all kind of just talk and everything else. I'm big 
I'm big samurai, and that's little <laughs> that's Samu Willie on the other side of the <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Either way, uh, we are here back for another episode, and this week we are covering the Dollars Trilogy, the Man with No Name Trilogy, as it's affectionately known on video, but I prefer to call it the Dollars Trilogy. Um, from Sergio Leone, uh, a filmmaker that we've talked about a lot but never covered on the show, so that should be interesting. Um, so that is what we're doing. Uh, let's see what we've been watching, and then we'll get into some other stuff after that. Uh, there's no, there's not a lot of what we've been watching, so let's just go ahead and tear through that real quick. Yes. Um, okay, so I watched Machete, <laughs> and Machete. I really, really... <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Uh, I did think it was it was good. I thought at times a little bit try hard, but all in all, it felt like a, this kind of narco cinema exploitation, rompy good time with a lot of splatter. And I think Rodriguez uses CGI uh, gore probably better than anyone. Um, yeah, he uses it. I, he does a good job of making it quick. So it, yeah, it's it just kind of has the impact. It yeah, needs it to. just kind of smacks you across the face, and you're just kind of like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. No, but really fun stuff, man. I definitely would buy the DVD because he always packages them nicely anyway. Yes, yes. Um, I watched um, uh, Pickpocket, the uh, Brisson film. It was the first film I watched on Instant Watch. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was okay. Um, this is a film I had high hopes for considering it was considered the fifth best film of all time in the composite uh, Tiff Bell Lightbox uh, 100 film best films of all time. I have a, I've told you off the air, Sammy, and I won't get into this too much, that I find a lot of the French New Wave stuff to have a, a self-satisfaction um, and, and a bit of, a, I guess, a, a, a cold feel. Um, it just is far too self-satisfied for me and esoteric. I do think that uh, its Italian cousin seems to have a lot more life and energy in their films, uh, yeah. even the yeah. art ones. So. Yeah. Um, you know, Truffaut is the only guy I've really seen that I really enjoyed his stuff that I've seen from the new wave. Unless you want to say Melville, I mean, you know, but he, he I don't know. Uh, it was okay. You know, it was okay. I have to maybe get another watch. The only other thing I watched this week was also on the, uh, the Tiff Bell Lightbox list. Um, and it was a, a fucking fantastic film. And that's Scorpio Rising. Oh, yeah. Um, I, in watching this, I fell asleep on the couch watching the end of uh, something on TV. I got up like two in the morning and watched this, and ironically, of all things, and I shit you not, I was eating a purple popsicle while I watched it, uh, <laughs> not really realizing uh, <laughs> the irony until it was too late. Um, sure. <laughs> yeah, but uh, fantastic piece of work. It truly is art cinema, but you can see yeah, how yeah. big an influence this is on people like Lynch, um, on people like Greg Araki specifically, um, on people... Uh, God, I, I had a list of filmmakers I thought about in my head as I was watching it. Uh, people like John Waters, um, just a tremendous piece of work. It's only thirty minutes long. You can see it on Google Video. Yeah. Um, the juxtapositioning of kind of that. Anyway, I could I could probably t- review that film on the show sometime, or maybe we'll do like CD did an anger episode because um, really really good stuff. Yeah. yeah, he's ahead of his time. Definitely. Um, definitely a an artist uh, kind of screaming coming out of those films so the, he, the stuff he did so alright uh, the only thing I watched and I literally watched one other film but you guys gotta get, gotta give us a little bit of credit here I mean you're talking about a trilogy that's what uh, let's see I'm thinking five six maybe seven hours long total maybe plus uh, it's football season baseball yeah. season's winding down <laughs> yeah I mean all kinds of stuff going on for the GGTMC plus kids always kids kids certainly uh, but uh, I did watch uh, Rush Beyond the Lighted Stage which is the early story of Uncool Cat Vishnu and Large Williams Band <laughs> 
<laughs> as long as I'm not Getty Lee, I'm okay with that. Well, which one of you is Getty Lee? I'm going to go with Chris as Getty Lee. He's probably going to be offended by that, but I'm like, he just seems like a Getty Lee to me. <laughs> he can be Getty. I fucking hate Getty Lee's voice and his round fucking sunglasses. <laughs> oh, man, I love that he always wears them like halfway down his nose. Oh, fuck. He looks like the old woman, like the other woman from Hansling Gretel or something, man. Yeah, yeah he is a unique looking character, to say the least. Wow. But it was pretty great to watch it because, you know, they go through Ontario in the video, in the documentary. And, and uh, you know, I saw some areas that I, that, I was, that I was there. You know, I saw some of that stuff because they were in the city of Toronto a lot and stuff. So it was pretty, it was pretty neat. Uh, you know, and always Canadian perspective on growing up is, is slightly, it's, it's slightly Americana. And obviously not completely, you know what I mean? It's 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 mm-hmm. kind of a, you obviously you would know what I mean. You grew up there, but uh, <laughs> I know totally what you mean, though. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, so you get this kind of different vibe from it and stuff. But it's good. I mean, I'm not a big Rush fan. I'll be honest with you. I'm not even a, actually. I don't. I wouldn't even say I'm hardly a fan. I I like a few songs, and that's about it. Uh, I'm the same way. I don't really care for Geddy Lee's voice. I, I admire him as a musician, but he just you know doesn't do anything for me vocally. So. Uh, but, uh, you know, it is a good, I always like to hear stories about these bands that stick around and keep doing it after all these years. So and there's a lot of good life stories in there about Neil Peart's uh, loss of his daughter. I think she died in a car accident and, and there's all kinds of stuff in there that, you know, goes beyond just the, uh, the lighted stage, so to speak, to go with the title. So there we go. And that's all I watched. So a little light on the, uh, extracurricular activities film wise this week. All right. So we wanted to kind of do something at the beginning of the show, uh, to kind of show our appreciation for each other, but uh, maybe maybe we should do the winners of the uh, tournament. Think should we do the winners of that contest first. Or do you want to do it after we do this? Uh, let's keep the suspense going a little bit. Okay, okay. So we're going to do the winners of the contest. Oh, you want to keep which one? Which one is suspense though? <laughs> oh, that's true. We'll do the winners of the contest right before we get into our review. I guess. Okay, okay, okay. Sounds good. So, um, so we want to do a top ten uh, films that the other had turned the other one on to. Now, this is not going to be a, a list like we would normally do, where we actually take some time and talk a whole lot about these films because this is going to be a long show anyway. But uh, we just want to kind of give everybody an idea that you know, through the process and the history of doing this show after a hundred episodes, that. Uh, there's films that Will has turned me on to that I never saw before, and I knew hardly anything about, or films maybe I had seen, but just kind of just kind of pushed off and didn't look at it with a critical eye, and uh, Will, vice versa, from films I've turned him on to. So we kind of wanted to let the listeners know, you know, what we have shared with each other. Now, you guys have obviously known this if you listen to all 100 episodes of the show. Probably you've kind of picked out some of these, but we thought we'd go over it, especially if some people are just coming in just now. So I'll let you kick it off, Large Wim. Okay, so I'm going to go ten to one if that's okay with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my list was a list that there are certain films that I would have seen anyway as soon as I had the chance that I didn't include stuff like Thirst, Antichrist, etc. Right, right. Um, so I left those off the list. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was stuff that I'd never seen that you turned me on to that either I was not aware of or that I just was really going to drag my ass in seeing. So number ten for me is one that uh, he's become kind of um, a second tier uh, patron saint of ours, uh, and that's. Of course, The Wings in Vice Squad. I'd never seen this film, and nice. and I really take away his performance from it. Uh, I love Vice Squad, so I want to thank you for that. And the neon slime, and the season Hubbly, and the <laughs> pimp stick, and everything else. <laughs> the pimp stick. <laughs> nice. It's my nickname. Yes. <laughs> Especially at Halloween. You should see the kids' faces. Hey, pimp stick? What does pimp stick mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so uh, I'll, then I'll go 10, and then we'll just go back and forth then. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. okay. So my number ten is something we actually reviewed recently. Something I probably would have seen on my own. I, it's, it's always been there, but I mean, obviously, it taken me years to do it. So I had to kind of throw it on the list because I'm thankful that we watched it. But it's a uh, female prisoner seven hundred one scorpion. This was uh, 
This was something I would have probably seen at some point in time. But to be honest with you, man, I've been trying to see it for like eight years, and I never watched it. So uh, that's why I went ahead and threw it on the list. Uh, this is a this is a great film, uh, and uh, this is something I'm going to revisit often. Now, most of these films, the reason why I chose them is because they're all going to be films I'm going to revisit often, which I'm pretty sure on your case it's going to be the same way. Oh, uh, sure. These are definitely the ones I'm going to revisit the most often that we've done over 100 episodes. But yeah, that's my first one, Female Prisoner, 701 Scorpion. So, Very nice. Okay, number nine for me is kind of ironic because it was a film that you'd picked but we didn't get to talk about on the air. And that was uh, because of the birth, the birth of your beautiful baby boy, Landon. Uh, and that was Blood Simple. It was one that nice. for some reason, as much as I love the Coens, I just was kind of uh, just dragging my feet on. And uh, I saw it and it's got this energy like a... You can feel the electricity in the air right before a storm hits. Um, it's kind of got that feeling. I really, en- really enjoyed it a lot. So, yeah, my number nine is Blood Simple. Nice, nice, nice. I love that film. Uh, my number nine is Trouble Man. Uh, nice. Yeah, Mr. T. Uh, Trouble Man was uh, something I had actually heard you talk about on another show and had no idea we were going to be doing a podcast together. And then we ended up doing Trouble Man. So talk about a film that kind of crossed uh, the boundaries there. Uh yeah, Trouble Man. I I absolutely love Trouble Man. It's definitely top five black exploitation for me nowadays. Oh yeah, me too. Um, okay, number eight for me kind of takes us back to early eighties, late seventies. I guess yeah, late seventies, early eighties. Sleazy Los Angeles. Um, it was another one from a filmmaker I admired, uh, but I just again I hadn't seen it, uh, and that was of course Paul Schrader's Hardcore, yeah. uh, with George C. Scott. Fucking great film. Uh-huh. Um. Great wig, great, <laughs> great, fake, great mustache. fake mustache. There you go. <laughs> but great performance from Scott. Um, Very weird really tight good. T-shirt that Scott's wearing at one point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I really enjoyed this film. I, you know, I thought it, it was really, really good, man. Right up our alley. That's kind of a G- real GGTMC film. Yeah, and you know what I thought? I mean, I actually rewatching it. I mean, I actually considered it one of the great films of the '70s, and that's saying a lot because that's my favorite decade. But I think it's overlooked in that pantheon of great films from the '70s. I really do. Yeah, oh, for sure. Uh, okay, my number eight is the one, the only, Paco Querak <laughs> with the double X-blade chop and the George <laughs> Eastman wiener, and that is Sergio Martino's <laughs> Hands of Steel. Uh, a unique film, to say the least, and uh, really kind of got us going. This one and uh, Stone Cold and a couple others really are the ones where I knew where the show was going to go and where it was pretty much going to stay. Uh, that we love these kinds of films, and uh, this is this is a great example of a GGTMC-esque film. I mean, this is Pantheon for us right here, Hands of Steel, so uh, great stuff, but uh, it's endlessly entertaining, endlessly entertaining. I love that film. I watched a little bit of it again the other night, by the way. Oh, yeah. it's I actually just lent my, my uh, copy to Uncool Cat, so he's getting to experience it. The girls over at Girls on Film are reviewing it this week, so a lot of a lot of hands-on hands on steel. Oh, hands-on <laughs> steel. I <laughs> love this week. So yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. I, I saw some tweets from uh, one of the girls from Girls on Film, and she wasn't having too good a time, so we'll see. Oh, uh, which one was it? <laughs> uh, I believe it was Deb. I believe she was. Yeah, I figured she'd be the one that didn't like it, but uh, Emily... Uh, I think, you know, Rage Christine, you know, I, I think it's more in their wheelhouse. But, uh, okay, uh, next up one is, I guess, more of um, I almost said your last name on the air. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was more from, it, it's in your family, but you didn't pick it. Uh-huh. Uh, your mother picked it. Mm. And uh, I had to put uh, Mama Sammy on there uh, because she introduced, not introduced, but uh, finally got me to see Badlands. Oh, nice, yes. Um, really loved this film. Malik was a guy I, I'd only seen one of his films, that being Thin Red Line, which I absolutely adored. Um, but to go back and see 
what I guess a lot of people would say is his best film or one of his most celebrated films. Um, really enjoyed that film, man. I think we did. Yeah, it was right. Kill Bill and Badlands were so a really great episode, but uh, but Badlands, I really enjoyed, man. Just the lyricism of of Malik's work and it, just really good stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's a classic, no doubt about that. Uh, that was number seven, right? Yep. Yeah, uh, my number seven is Yu Won Ping. Uh, well, Yu Won Yu Won Ping's Dreadnought. Oh yeah. I think this might be out of all the martial arts films we've done. This might be my favorite. And that's saying a lot because we've done some really good ones, but this one just has some scenes in it that. Uh, some stuff I'd never seen before, and honestly, there's some stuff in here that I don't know if anybody could ever even come close to copying. That's how original some of it is. So, uh, really, some of the most amazing stuff I've ever seen. I have to believe that some of the stuff in this film was shot like 90 times, because <laughs> uh, to get it right on like two or three cuts, two or three takes would be amazing to me. So, if you guys haven't seen Dreadnought, make sure you check out Dreadnought. Okay, uh, next up for me, number six, is a very early entry to our catalog, and kind of let me know where we were going with it. Um, it features a pet Komodo dragon. It features, we talk a lot about hair on this show, but maybe the mullet of all mullets. Yes. The king of kings when it comes to mullets. And that is, of course, Stone Cold. Uh, this this was an action film that just, sadly, I had not seen, despite loving action films. and. I'm so happy a lot of people have seen this now through our show because it really is one of the best 80s action films, even though it was like 90, I think, when it came out or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, fucking excellent. You know, Lance Henriksen, William Forsyth, great, great yeah. stuff. I believe some Zubaz pants in that film as some well. Some Zubaz pants in that, absolutely. A little late for the Zubaz. A late in the mid- well, no, no, I guess not because around the early 90s, they were still kicking. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, love Stone Cold, man. Love it. Uh, okay, uh, my next one is, number six is uh, Castellari's The Big Racket. Uh, this is one I avoided. Uh, I don't know why. I like Castellari, but uh, just one that kind of kept squeaking through. And then Will said, you know, we're going to cover it. And I was like, okay, well, I've been meaning to see it. But it was never a big priority to see it. So I'm really glad I did because it's a nice, pacey, little simple action movie. Uh, and basically, it's a Eurocrime film. But it's kind of like a Eurocrime action movie. It's not completely Eurocrime, I would say. But, I mean, it's got all the, it's got all the staples and stuff. But it doesn't have some of the... Your crime aesthetics that I like, but it's got most of them, I would say. But it's got some pretty great scenes in it, though, <laughs> which I'm not oh, even yeah. going to hit. Send a great voicemail about the big record a long time ago. So, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but, that's uh, right. I love the big record. Okay, number five. Uh, I go from Zubaz pants to the shortest jorts in the history of the GGTMC. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> in Vietnam, he was the best. He still is. <laughs> that is, of course, uh, Deadly Prey, which, you know, uh, what can I say? I mean, just <laughs> fucking fantastic film, man. I mean, it really has the energy that, I mean, that that really is a GTTMC trash masterpiece right there. So yeah. um, can't recommend that one enough. And again, it's over at CDB now for anyone who <laughs> wants to see it. It is an amazing, that's an amazing film, yeah. <laughs> oh man like some show I'm, I'm just laughing because some shows will be like oh man the greatest film I've seen last year is Citizen Kane I'm sitting there thinking I would argue that Deadly Prey is as much fun yeah. as Citizen Kane <laughs> <laughs> absolutely uh, alright uh, my number five is uh, Milano Calibre 9 now uh, I knew that uh, Will had picked this trilogy and, and he, I knew he had a favorite in there and stuff and so I was looking forward to that one and that one's great and the other one's great too, because that's the other one with the rocket launcher, the ill boss, the rocket launcher, and the mannequins that take the take the hit. Uh, yeah. But I didn't expect anything out of Milano Caliber Nine, and the reason why is because it didn't have as big a cast, really, or as GGTMC a cast, I should say. It was more pure DeLeo film. It had Barbie Boucher, and I think somebody else was in there, right? 
I can't remember, but I know that lead was not somebody we knew. Oh, Gaston uh, Moschine, and then it had uh, Adorf in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was in there. Yeah. But it was a more subdued Adorf than the Manhunt Adorf, which was a little bit more flamboyant and a great performance. Uh, But anyway, I didn't expect anything out of this film, and it came out of it loving it more than the other two films. It became my favorite of the trilogy, and it's actually, I would argue for me now, it's actually top five Eurocrime I've ever seen. I mean, I just love the film. I think it's I think it's just a fantastic film. I really do. I mean, it's just great, and I expect. I think one of the reasons why I love it so much is because I didn't expect anything out of it. And that opening, I mean, is really one of the best openings I think in cinema. Oh, it's fucking, fucking great, amazing. Man. Yep, yep. That's my number five. Uh, number four, to, I guess, to kind of show the shift and what the spectrum that we cover, I go from Deadly Prey to what I think is one of the top three or four filmmakers of all time, and that's Akira Kurosawa. And it was your first episode back on the air. You came correct with Throne of Blood, which yep. was one I'd meant to see, just had never gotten around to, and. Yep. Uh, you know, really powerful film. Uh, you know, it's it's Kurosawa riffing a little bit on horror, a little bit uh, through Shakespeare. Um, excellent fucking film. So yeah, yeah number, my number four is uh, is Throne of Blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good that's a good choice. I mean, it really is. I love I love that film. So I'm glad I'm glad you dug it too. I always worry when you when you when you put one of your films you really love out there. You it's almost like putting your child out there. You, mm-hmm. you kind of worry that somebody's going to make fun of you know <laughs> this creation you've helped create and wait and this love you this thing you love so much and uh, so I you know I threw Throne of Blood out at you and I remember thinking God I hope he loves Throne of Blood because I love Throne of Blood so <laughs> I'm glad it worked out. Uh, my number four is probably the most recent film. I, yeah, I would argue it is the most recent film on my list, uh, but I consider it a, kind of a modern classic at this point now. Uh, and for those who haven't seen it, shame on you. For those that have you know what i'm talking about and that is uh shotgun stories oh this is a film that uh, will turn me on to he kept talking about it and kept talking about it and to the point where i was like "Ah, i quit talking about this fucking movie then we (laughs) then we then he picked it for a show and i was like okay so i'm gonna watch it now and again i really had no no inkling of what i was in for but this film's right up my alley it's slow paced it's it's beautiful to look at it's got great performances uh resolution's great i mean it's, it's it's everything that i love about cinema it, it really is, and uh, it's great low-budget filmmaking and uh, a true talent, a, true, a whole bunch of talent, actually, to look forward to coming from all those people involved in that film. So great stuff. I'm really, really very thankful for that one. I've watched that film probably five times since we did the show. Oh, yeah, it's one of my favorite films, and, and I think that once I'd seen Badlands could see the Malikian uh, influence, of course, in nice. uh, Jeff Nichols. Malikian. I Jeff I lo- Nichols. Yeah, Malikian. I love that. Yes, um, my number three is nice. So now we're really getting out of the nitty gritty here. Uh, my number three, um, I mentioned to you the other night, uh, it's a film that, um, I was just floored by it. I think about it a, a, probably more than any other film in this, in this genre. Um, I think it's a beautiful film. It's, it's a heartbreaking film. It's, uh, uh, really, I think, uh, doesn't get enough love from people that love spaghetti westerns, and that's the great silence. I think it, yes. for me, uh, although I I might score the uh, one or two of the dollars films a little bit higher potentially, the great silence might be my favorite spaghetti western. Uh, the snow, uh, uh, you know, the the heartbreak of it. I just I fucking loved this movie. Yeah, it's in my top three spaghetti westerns of all time. So there you go. There you go. High praise, but yeah, uh, yeah that's my number three, and I'm. Really thankful because that's when I, I don't know when I would have gotten around to, man. It was just one I wanted to see, but just, yeah. just wasn't going to get around to. So that was one of those ones. I think it's the one I told you that I knew would be in the top, top, in the top three. I think maybe I said 
You did. But you did. So say now, that. so now I have no idea what two and one are because I was like, I know it'll be up there, but I don't. But I don't have any idea what two and one are going to be. So <laughs> we'll see. I'll, I'll try to. I don't even know if I'll attempt to guess number one, but we'll uh, we'll just we'll see what happens here. Uh, my number three is a uh, a little masterpiece uh, of uh, socially conscious cinema that really tackles the the big issues that were going on in the early '80s and how important it was for uh, you know South Florida to be a very a cozy place, and uh, that is, of course, Diodato's Raiders of Atlantis. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I love Raiders of Atlantis. It's it's what I love about it is it's it's a it's a no bullshit kind of movie. It kind of comes in, does what it's got to do, and then leaves. And uh, it doesn't waste a lot of time. It's got great lasers. It's got great scenes about Popeye and spinach. <laughs> Members only jackets. Yeah. <laughs> and some guy saying, "Don't call me Muhammad. I told you, call me Muhammad." Yes, uh, it's, it's just got some great moments to it. It's really a trash classic, and uh, it, honestly, at this point, it might be my favorite Diodato film. It is my absolutely my favorite Diodato. It's it's a trash masterpiece. Man. Yes, yes, yes. So I, I love Raiders of Atlantis. And it's got a great theme song. It's just a great. It's a great. Just a great B movie. Great trash movie. Great one. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, my number two is a film we saw at TIFF, and I included this one because although I wanted to see it. I was just kind of like, oh, you know, sometimes I get in these bad moods where I'm like, fuck this filmmaker, man. I'm like, fuck Lars von Trier, fuck Michael Haneke. <laughs> yeah, I you know, understand. Uh, understand. You know, I kind of get like that sometimes. And I was kind of like, fuck Gaspar Noé. <laughs> and, but then Sammy wanted to see Into the Void. I'm like, you know, I did want to see it and I've kind of been hearing some good buzz. So, you know, fair is fair. And, you know, let's go see it. So I'm, and I'm so happy we did because I don't know if I would have ever got the chance to see this on the big screen. Um, and of course, that is uh, Enter the Void, as I said, which is just a tremendous film that in 30 years, I think we're all going to still be talking about as a landmark film and pushing the boundaries and the limits of cinema and what it means. Um, it is a, a, just a tremendous piece of work, and I'm so thankful that yeah. you uh, turned me on to it. Uh, well, I mean, that was, a, that was interesting. Give everybody kind of behind the scenes. Uh, what, what happens a lot is Will lives in a film city, uh, a city that loves film, and uh, so when we both decided to go to the Toronto National Film Festival, it was kind of a kind of a little bit of a tug and pull there. I mean, we had to see, and Will did this too like this year too because he saw Black Swan, something he knew he would have seen anyway. But sometimes there's some films you just you just want to see, and we felt that we felt that way about the Road, and we did the Road the, the year previous. But with Enter the Void, I kind of threw it out there, and one of the things I think that held us both back was the length of the film. I think it's two and a half hours long or something like that, a little bit longer than that. And uh, we were kind of, you know, but I was thinking I'm not going to get a chance to see this film. And obviously I was, I hate to say I was right, but I was, I mean, it's just now starting to come out in the States. Uh, that's a year later and I wouldn't get a chance to see a Noe film on the big screen. So I really, really pushed for that one because uh, I knew that, you know, the, the chances of me seeing that one are good. So I'm glad it worked out ultimately, although we both felt like shit for about the first 20, 30 minutes of the movie. <laughs> Fetal position, eating fries, yeah. And I can still remember the laughter and the snickering when those credits started rolling. People were just like, oh, you got to be fucking kidding me. Right away, man. It's like a boxer comes out just fucking swinging. Yeah, we were just kind of like, you got to be kidding. And sure enough, then the whole film proceeds to be that way in some capacity. It was like, oh, my God. And then it just became an experience. More than a film, it became an experience. And uh, it it was an amazing, an amazing experience. Something I'll never forget. Let's put it that way. Um, okay, my number two, uh, a little movie that Will had championed to me, but I would always think, uh, you know, I'll get around to it when I get around to it. And actually, in a lot of ways, Will turned me on to this filmmaker. Uh, so I'm going to go with number two being uh, Kim Ji-Woon's Bittersweet Life. Uh, 
Oh, nice. Uh, I had heard of it, obviously, as a film geek, but it, I never got around to it. And, of course, you know, some of his films are not as easy to find. You know, we were dying to see The Good, The Bad, The Weird, which I did love. Uh, I love Kim Ji-Woon in general. Uh, I know you were a little little, little off on his new, newest film, but also I, I could tell by listening to it that you still liked it quite a bit. For sure. And he's still, he, he's a master filmmaker. Easily, for me and Will both, I'd say, he's top five working today. Uh, he's one of the greatest uh, filmmakers working right now, I can tell you that. And uh, this is easily one of his best films. If maybe not, arguably it could be his best film for some. So it's really, a, it's a great piece of cinema. And if you haven't checked out A Bittersweet Life yet, I think we reviewed that on episode three with Alligator. Because uh, I remember the Bittersweet Alligator <laughs> title oh, of the yeah. show. Um, definitely check out A Bittersweet Life. It's an amazing, amazing piece of cinema. Seriously. All right. Really is kind of Le Samurai through South Korean eyes. And I have no idea what your number one is. I really fucking have no idea. Hmm. Well, in that case, let me get into it. It is uh, a reasonably recent film that we've covered. Um, I think you were kind of a bit oh. stunned. Oh, oh, oh no, no. I now I, I just remember what it is now. <laughs> Boom! It just clicked in my head. <laughs> this really is a film that, again, I'd heard a lot about over the years being a cinephile, but I just uh, wasn't all that keen on seeing, despite liking the lead and a few of the actors in it. Um, yeah. yeah. And I watched it, and I, I was just astounded by it. I think it's one of the best films ever made. Um, it's a shame it's never been seen in its entirety, uh, and it's never been released on DVD in its entirety. Uh, you know, it, it is really a work of, of tremendous filmmaking and art and commentary um, that Mark Kermode champions. And, of course, uh, that is Ken Russell's The Devils. Yes. Um, fucking love it. It's, uh, it's, it's really become one of my favorite films. I mean, a lot of the, all these have. Um, but the top three or three or three really, I've, I've really entered into my, like, uh, you know, just love them list. So, uh, yeah, The Devils is uh, numero uno, man. Yes, that is a very good choice. I don't know why that didn't come, that didn't come to my mind immediately because I remember when you gave that score, I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like a 9.5 or something. <laughs> I was like, well, that's almost as close to perfect as you can get. Yeah. Like, wow. And I know how tough it is to get, you know, above nine for you personally, knowing you as a friend and stuff. And I was just like, when you said that, I was just like, whoa. Yeah, nine's... It's one of my favorite moments we've ever recorded. If you go back and listen to him say the score and you'll hear me just say, whoa. Because, I mean, it was a genuine surprise for me. I thought, he'll give this a nine. He'll give this a nine. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> all right, so my number one, I don't think you could, I don't think you could guess my number one. Uh, but I'll start talking about it a little bit and see if you can get an idea. So... As, as all of you know, and you'll definitely know after this episode, I love the Spaghetti Western. Um, and oddly enough, this isn't a Spaghetti Western, but it has a lot of the same kind of feel of a Spaghetti Western. But it's set in a nice hot part of Italy. And by hot, uh. <laughs> and by hot, I mean, if you wore your mustard-colored shirt outdoors, <laughs> you would regret it because you would be soaking wet <laughs> no matter what. Now, this film I had absolutely no hopes for. I thought it was going to be a flat-out, trashy little Eurocrime film with one of my favorite character actors and not much else. I thought it would be a good time. But I have grown to love this movie so much, and I would almost almost consider it the like the quintessential for me almost. I, when everybody talks about this actor, I say, man, you got to see this film. you got to see this movie. This is For me, this is one of his golden moments, one of his mustard-colored moments, so to speak. Uh, and that is, of course, Cry of a Prostitute with one Henry Silva. Uh, this came out of nowhere for me. I mean, we know Henry Silva's done a lot of films and stuff, but we'll just kind of pick this film at random. I don't even know if you'd seen it before. I think you'd just heard of it, right? 
I yeah, you're right. I just on the strength of the silver and what it had promised. Mm-hmm. So we decided to review it, and it was just such a great review and so much fun to talk about. And the film has really become like one that's really kind of heartfelt for me because I love Mr. Silva. Uh, I love you know his work. I think he, you know, obviously he's kind of made fun of as a character actor and kind of picked on. Yeah, he's definitely a unique guy. But he is special. I mean, he's one of those character actors that's really special. And this is kind of like a starring role for him. And it's really, really great. It's almost like a Yojimbo-type film, oddly enough, if you think about it. So, yeah, oh, it is. It absolutely is Yojimbo. Which is kind of weird, because we're going to be talking about a very Yojimbo-esque film today. So, yeah. uh, it's really, really great. And if you haven't seen Cry of a Prostitute, please do yourself a favor and see Cry of a Prostitute. Try to get the unrated cut, because it is considerably better. There is some hyped-up violence that makes no sense for it to be in there, including a bandsaw. <laughs> yep. And uh, just some great stuff. And it has the immortal Henry Silva line, which is, look, motherfucker, clean my shoes, which yes. has become like, I got to get a sound clip of that, which has become the, you know, the great moment. But Silva is just fantastic. And this is easily the most sweaty film I've ever seen outside of a spaghetti Western. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John Maria Valente, eat your heart out. Henry Silva is just dripping everywhere he goes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to play a little bocce ball. I'm going to play some bocce ball. The guy can't play bocce ball. He's dripping everywhere. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just a great Euro crime kind of mafia film. So definitely, definitely check it out if you haven't checked it out yet. So, And I thank you so much for that one, Will. I know that you hadn't seen it either, but that one has really stuck with me. And by Spaghetti Western, I mean, you know, there's that great moment in the dark where he's whistling and shit. And just some great oh, stuff. Yeah. Great stuff. So, all right. So that is it. Our top ten films. One and I have a couple honorable mentions. I have to mention Exiled, of course, the Pusher trilogy, which I wouldn't, I would eventually have seen, but you kind of pushed it. Uh, no pun intended. You kind of pushed it on me a little bit, and we watched it, and uh, that thing just got progressively better. I mean, I like it in the order it came out. I like the first one a lot, the second one more, and the third one even more. It's an amazing piece of uh, cinema. Those three, those three films. Uh, yeah, like I said, Giant Toes Exile, and of course, Black Belly of the Tarantula, a giallo, honestly, that I, I probably wouldn't have pursued without you saying something. Yeah, it's a genre that's a bit muddled, you know, but uh, there's certainly a lot of good in there. I had a lot of honorable mentions, too. I, I, I didn't write them down, though. Um, well. I should have. There's there's a lot of them. I mean, <laughs> yeah. God, I don't think we've misfired too much. I think my biggest misfire has probably been Zoo Zero, but... <laughs> which I, which I didn't hate, so I don't... Hate you for picking it. I didn't hate it. I just didn't like it that much either. So I thought it was very average. I, I would say your biggest misfire, and as always, your heart was in the right place, was uh, was probably Straight Line, the George Mahalka Mr. T film. <laughs> man, that, that had so much promise, didn't it? It did, man. It definitely did. So that's what I'm saying. Like, you go in with good intentions and just to see things kind of fall to shit yeah. in front of your eyes. Sometimes, some, yeah, sometimes you roll the dice and. They don't come up the way you want them to, literally. So that was the yeah. one. That was actually, you're funny you mentioned that. That's actually the one when I look back on all the films we covered. That's the one I'm like, I wish we would never covered that. <laughs> but like you said, you had noble intentions, my yeah, friend. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we had a contest recently with uh, Martin and the OMG Entertainment and stuff. And uh, we just had a bunch of people send a, v- a bunch of emails over there. And he drew them. Actually, his girlfriend did. And uh, I can't think I can say that on the air. I don't think Martin will mind. And uh, he has uh, three winners. So do you want to announce the winners? So who won what and who it is? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so Night Train Murders, which is the Aldo Lotto film, Last House on the Left type film, has been won by Mr. Shiftless. Nice. Uh, and, of course, all of you, um, Martin will get in contact uh, for the addresses. Yes. Uh, the Nazi cult box set uh, goes to uh, the boss, the, the Boston transplant down in Ohio, who we're going to get to meet <laughs> uh, that of course being, uh, the Zubaz pant 
wearing Matsuzaka. Always laugh at when we call him the Boston transplant. I always laugh at that because you know he had he had a. <laughs> A that's tra- right. He had the, <laughs> he had a tra- that's right. He actually had a surgery. So, <laughs> yeah, Matt was on CNN. I don't know if people know that, yeah. uh, but he was on CNN and I think Teen Vogue or something kind of bizarre like that. Yeah, they, they showed um, they showed his uh, lower midsection and he had GGTMC tattooed right above his pubic area. So, in in like a, a set of lips, ironically, <laughs> it's kind of bizarrely, but uh, yeah, um, we love you. Matt. And then, uh, yes, we love you, Matt. Uh, and then, what I feel, with all due respect to the other two things, Martin was kind enough to give away the fucking crown jewel of the giveaways, the Fernando de Leo box set, which has the Milieu trilogy, and then Rulers of the City, aka Mr. Scarface. This goes to one of our good friends, upstate New York, Mr. Phil. I was going to say his last name. Yeah. <laughs> Phil in Syracuse. Yes. The Orange Man. The Orange Man, that's right. <laughs> we'll start calling him the so, Orange Man. Yes. Uh, so there you go, gentlemen. Uh, hope you enjoy those. And, yes. uh, and thanks, you know, Big Martin. ups to Martin yes. for, for doing that. He's been a tremendous uh, resource for us. And, you know, Very nice everyone get out there and support him. He's a guy just like us who's doing something he loves. Uh, so get out there and support him. Don't go to Amazon or one of these places. Go to omg-entertainment.com. Yes. All right, so that is all of the pleasantries and stuff in the beginning of the show. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to crack into this trilogy. Uh, fistful of dollars for a few dollars more in the good, the bad, the ugly. Fistful of dollars coming up first. We will be back right after this. you about something very important today. That's outside the cinema. I know a lot of you listening now enjoy the film world. Boy, outside the cinema covers all kinds of good films. If you're looking for the classics, perhaps you're looking for a good old Nazi film where the Nazis torture and rape everyone in sight. Or giant monsters crawl from the sea. Or perhaps an Italian film where Edward's finish takes her clothes off for no apparent reason. Or renegade bikers just do whatever they damn well please. Perhaps even occasionally turn into a werewolf. But outside the cinema is your place to go. That's www.outsidethecinema.com Outside the Cinema, your source for cult movie discussion. lonely always looking to get even with the men who did him wrong that was Billy lonesome Billy who was quick to think a gun could make him strong No one tougher or more daring, only he and his gun sharing. All right. (laughs) We are back. I'm trying not to laugh while that's on. (laughs) I laughed at that because it's called Lonesome Billy, and I was thinking, oh, they send this to Will. It's like his theme song, but it's kind of like pathetic in a way, (laughs) in a little bit. So uh, I thought, no, maybe not. So. I mean, literally, if you listen closely, you can hear me cackling while I'm turning the microphone back up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, lonesome Billy. That's great, man. (laughs) All right. So our first film in this this amazing trilogy, let's go ahead and just say that up front, is, of course, uh, Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars. Pe un puño de dolari. I don't know how to say that word. Let's just go. Let's move on before I fucking tongue-tie myself. Uh, Yeah, per un puño de dolari. Puño. Uh, 
So this stars Juan Clint Eastwood, and uh, probably the only other name you'll really know is Mr. Jean Maria Villante, who uh, got some good. Oh, and Mario Brega, of course, who plays like the same kind of like chubby bad guy <laughs> in like all three films with like a messed up yes. eye or, or braided hair. So uh, uh, okay, so I picked this. Uh, I'll give you a. I give ye. I'll give ye a. Uh, Brief plot synopsis. A wandering gunfighter plays, plays two rival families against each other in a town torn apart by greed, pride, and revenge. Uh, this film was made in 1964, but wasn't released in America until 1967. Pretty infamous stuff. Uh, let's get going on it, Will. What did you think of A Fistful well, of Dollars? Um, okay, so this is obviously one of the most celebrated trilogies. And I want to preface our reviews by saying we're not going to add much new that a lot of more, and with all due respect to both of us, uh, people that are more intelligent about film technique and film history uh, and, and everything else have, have talked about uh, endlessly about these films. We can only give our observations, I think, as, as we see the films and through our, the eyes uh, that we you know, appreciate these films. So I want to say that this isn't going to be the exhaustive or the definitive look at this genre, these, this trilogy. It's going to be our mm-hmm. kind of observations on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, these are films this, that uh, especially, well, not this film, well, I guess the trilogy, tri- uh, well, I can't talk. I'm so excited. The trilogy going uh, really is Yojimbo, uh, rejigged by Kurosawa, uh, propping up what had become a bit of a tired genre, that being the Western. Mm-hmm. Um, I know just a very quick piece of trivia. Richard Harrison famously turned down these roles and suggested Clint Eastwood, yeah. yet he accepted Godfrey Ho movies, uh, oddly <laughs> enough. Uh, yeah, it's funny. Actually, Richard Harrison was like he was like the front runner, and he turned yeah. it down. And uh, I know he says he doesn't regret it, but I'm sure he does. Also, uh, Charles Bronson was up for the role, Henry Fonda, James Coburn, and another spaghetti western actor who we'll probably run across at some point in time, uh, Rod Cameron, was an American actor who went over there and made some spaghetti westerns. All of these guys passed on this film. Yeah, it's you know one of those things in hindsight, right? I mean, you know, Leone was the guy to really get the gray hat as a, because westerns were very much white hat, black hat uh, up until the spaghetti western came along. Yes. So to see him kind of shatter that, I think it was really the testament that I took away most, the, the legacy that I most admire, you know, to bring this kind of a middle-brow genre respectfully in a lot of ways, not always, but in a lot of ways, to this kind of stirring operatic art. Well, it's like um, uh, it's like taking the horror film and turning it into, you know, the greatest film of all time. It's like taking a genre movie and putting all of your artistic talent behind it, which is really mm-hmm. amazing when you consider Leone up to this point had only made one film, and uh, he was mostly a back background director and stuff, but it's really amazing to see his growth. He only made, he only made like what six movies, and uh, and we'll talk more about this as we go. But I mean, he goes from you know second unit director on Ben Hur to Sergio Leone basically very quickly. Oh yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, so this these films really, I think, were really made for widescreen. You know, you can see some films for three, but. Leone films are definitely made to be seen in widescreen. This film's 46 years old. I mean, can you believe it? Like, it's, I know, I can't believe it's it. It's hard to believe these films are that old. Um, kind of makes know. me sad in some ways because then I think, well, that means Clint is, you know, you do the math, maybe he was 30, 30 35 when he made this. So yeah, yeah. you do the math, kind of gets you sad. Um, it, it opens up and we got that really iconic kind of animated credit sequence and the score with the chanting and the whistling. And should be said, of course, in a, you know, it's Leone, but it's also Marconi who uh, we, we have to say crafted. Um, not with this film, but in talking about these films, um, specifically with Good, the Bad, the Ugly, what I think is maybe the most iconic piece of music from film ever. I, I mean, you get, you get Jaws and Psycho and stuff, but you know, it, it, it is in the conversation as the most iconic piece of music ever well, with the film. Well, the difference is, is that you know, Morcone and Leone, they went to school together. I think they went to primary school together. 
uh, oh, wow. which is weird. I didn't really know that. Uh, doing research for the film, I found that out. But also, they uh, you can uh, Jaws is iconic, no doubt about it. That music is iconic. Uh, the other one you mentioned, uh, Herman for uh, Psycho, iconic, no doubt. But Leo, uh, Morricone's music, as much as the director itself, created a genre. Uh, I don't know of any other composer I can think of that created a genre, basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he really, this was two, two brilliant men, creative men working at the height of their powers with this trilogy. And I think, you know, when I looked at this now, because there's only a few flourishes in these films when the music is ever standard or conventional. This is really unconventional stuff with, with flutes and, and chanting and, you know, a lot of stuff that at the time must have seemed really out there. But look mm-hmm. at it now, it just, you think, how could this not be there? Yeah, but he brought the electric you know, guitar into in the The electric stuff guitar, to, yeah. Which people were like, oh, you can't use an electric guitar. That's just, you know, it's stupid. But it goes to show you, it's often the people, when everyone else says you're crazy, mm-hmm. or the men that persist, their, their genius is proven. Yeah. Um, well, it's a fine but, line you know, between crazy and genius anyway, so. Yes, yes, it certainly is, uh, which, you know, people like uh, Kinski and Reed, you know, <laughs> tread it on both sides. But anyway, that's <laughs> yes. for another episode. Um, I love that immediately when the trilogy opens, we see the immoral Eastwood, because this really is a gray hat as opposed to white hat, black hat. Mm-hmm. We see him observing what's happened, what's happening with the family being kind of shook down. And it's only when he's noticed uh, to, things, to see this, his role in that kind of come in, because otherwise he would just would have drank the water and kind of just observed it and went on. Um, He's not charging in on his white horse, which, you know, I think is really the first, the real breath of fresh air, that the moral ambiguity that, that this genre brings. Right, um, right. And, and it should be said, first of all, it wasn't the first Spaghetti Western. I think there was a couple before that, but it was one of the first. Um, it, was the, it was the most influential, yeah. It was one of the first, but it really, uh, in the early Spaghetti Westerns, I guess the two that always come to mind are this one and uh, Django, I guess. Django, I think sixty-eight or sixty-six, actually. Yeah, yeah. Django's earlier yeah. than you think. I think it's like sixty-five, sixty-six. So yeah, it's crazy, man, to think that that's that old too. Yeah. Um, and early on, we get something that I think Leone does to great effect, more so with like Once Upon a Time in the West, but kind of that repetition and rhythm he gets going, where there'll be no dialogue, and he'll, like there's a scene with the town bell just being rung over and over and over. Yeah. And that's all there is. It's just like the scene um, that almost becomes this uh, symphony in Once Upon a Time in the West at the train station with the rocking chair and the fly and yeah you know it's, it's just i love when he gets going with that because he's one of the strongest filmmakers of all time visually that he can do that and kind of get into that little that little yeah rhythm it's pure cinema it makes no sense in the in the if you if you if you put reality on it it makes no sense but if you no. if you look at it as cinema it's the purest i will argue that sergio leone is the purest cinematic filmmaker that ever lived yeah really i mean his films you could a lot of times just visually just you know that's really what they are but and i love that you getting back to the visual thing and the gray hat thing i love that i I must have i have to think that it was a conscious decision to actually put eastwood in the black hat Mm -hmm. yeah in this film yeah yeah i mean well first of all you had the uh the stubble which american westerns nobody had stubble uh, you know, you were clean shaven because that was the American Western. You know, you were on TV, you were on you know movies. You had to be look good. You had to have the baby face like John Wayne and Gary Cooper and these guys. You didn't come. You didn't show up looking like you just woke, you know woke up from a five day bender. <laughs> no, and I think that you know, there's a lot of things that we kind of just we take for granted that have become so entrenched in the genre that we take for granted that a lot of them got their start here. Yeah, yep. you know what I mean. Yep. Um, there is a great shot early on of uh, 
of these clapboard or clapboard, clapboard, whatever you want to say, shutters uh-huh. opening and, and the coffin maker, when he comes into town, the coffin maker kind of straddling this mound of coffins. You kind of, it's, it's a bit of, as you'll see, you know, with a lot of his stuff, a bit of, um, dark comedy. Um, but I love that. I just love that shot of that. The old, old kind of crazy coffin maker on this mound of coffins. Business is good. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. it's, uh, it's yeah. just a great, great shot. And you know, a lot of great shots. Um, and I love that Leone really immediately kind of he establishes the mythology and the badassery of um, uh, the man with no name. Oh, yeah. I think he's called Joe in this one. Yeah. Uh, he he just goes to the coffee maker and he says, you know, uh, he asks who the toughest guy in town is, and they tell him. And then he says, okay, I want you to get three coffins ready. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it's just that kind of bravado that you know, really, as a guy, you can't help but just kind of it kind of gets your pulse racing. Yeah, it's a pure machismo moment. And you know, oh, and, yeah. and you know, Italian culture is very is very much based on machismo. Mm-hmm. So this is really coming out now. Leone was a very diminutive little guy, very heavy set, big thick glasses, very odd looking little character. And uh, but even his odd looking little man, he was very boisterous, very macho, macho, and yes. uh, that comes through in his cinema. I mean, he was very he was very enamored with male camaraderie and male. Uh, ego. He was not. He was not interested in females at all. At least as no. far as cinema goes. Uh, outside yeah. of cinema, obviously, he probably was. But inside of cinema, he was more interested in, you know, shooting John Maria Valente, Clint Eastwood, than he was shooting uh, Marianne Koch, who's a German actress in this film. He he did shoot females well, but he didn't really care. Well, that's the thing I noticed when I went back and watched the trilogy is the absence of females. Really, yeah. there's almost no women in anything other than marginal roles. He kind of made up for it with Once Upon a Test with Claudia Cardinal. But- Claudia Cardinal's character, that's right. No, she is definitely more prominently featured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, I don't think there's one in come, uh, Once Upon a Time in America, though, now that I think about it. Uh, uh, Jennifer, but it- Jennifer Connelly is a kid, maybe. Uh, I know that sounds kind of bizarre to say, but I mean that that love story between, or that kind of infatuation story between Jennifer Connelly and the Robert De Niro young character. Mm. Uh, I really like the kind of peephole scenes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Th- there were some really good moments in there. I mean, it's his to me. Once Upon a Time in America will always be his weakest film, but it's still a pretty great film, especially if you watch the director's cut. I wouldn't wouldn't watch the other one, but yeah, it's a massive, massive fucking movie. <laughs> that, that's that film. I think does get a little bit bloat uh, for yeah. me. You yeah, know, but it does. You know, that aside, um, I'm not going to talk too much about the apologize to my mule scene. It's it's iconic, um, <laughs> yes. but you, it takes the machismo really to another level. Yeah. Um, and I love that there's that moment right after that when, it, Leone, we see his skill in stretching the tension from a 10-second moment when you don't know who's going to do what with the guns. And um, it just kind of really stretches. And it's the thing we always talk about, you know, manufacturing tension. It's like 10 seconds just stretched out where it feels like you're kind of like, okay, okay, what's going to happen? Right, and, right. you know, you don't know who's going to pull the gun or who's going to do what. And it's just, it's done so well in this film uh, and in, in all of his films, really. Right. Um, there's the Gatling gun in this scene because we, we see one of the, the factions, the families. Uh, and I love seeing these weapons of mass destruction in Westerns because they always seem to have more weight than in modern films, yeah. um, you know, yeah. if you think about like Django, The Wild Bunch, um, you know, these films where it just it just really seems to pack more of a punch than because it was all pistols, right? Uh-huh. Yep, pistols you know, and it, rifles, it, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, pistols and rifles, so I really like seeing that. And the occasional and, knife, obviously there's some, ni- there's some knives, and there's actually a machete in this film, which I was forgot about. Yeah, yeah, there is, <laughs> that's right. 
Uh, and, you know, I want to talk just for a moment about the great Jean-Marie Volante. He's one of the best actors of his generation, of his time mm-hmm. in the world. Yep. And the unfortunate thing, I think, for a lot of people is he worked only in Italy. Um, so outside of these films, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, unless you love Italian films that you would have seen him in. But he is a fucking amazing actor that if you can seek out some of his Italian stuff, he's done some really great Euro crime stuff uh, with Damiano Damiani. Um, he was in uh, <clears throat> Le Cirque Rouge. Le Cirque Rouge. Plus, he did Le Cirque Rouge, so we're still staying in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. He played. Uh, I can't remember the character's name, but uh, you know, he didn't. He didn't really do anything in Hollywood. Which, yeah, you well, know, that might be because I've read about him a lot, and obviously, evidently, he was very, very difficult to work with. He was uh, kind of like the Val, was, Val Kilmer of his time because he was very, very ultimate. He's a very talented guy, and he, you know, he had a lot of opinions. Uh, I'm not saying that that's very, a bad, very political. He was very yeah. political. I think he was uh, yeah, extremely left wing, actually extremely, extremely left wing. I'd heard that. Yeah. And he wouldn't let his politics be compromised at all. And uh, of course, Leone found that hard to work with, but he loved him and used him uh, twice, I believe. Yeah. And I think it was only twice. I'm trying to think of the other films if he popped up, but uh, he did love him. Uh, he was a theatrical actor uh, who uh, I've read. I've read in uh, many books I've read about Leone. Uh, that uh, he would make him do. He was the only actor he would make do scenes like fifteen and twenty times because he was trying to wear him down because he would be so big the first time. <laughs> oh yeah, he can really bring it when he wants to bring it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the dubbing in these films is great. Italians usually get the dubbing right, um, and as this one is particularly Jean Marie Volante's Ramon, his voice has a lot of weight as it should, mm-hmm. and I love that they give him the proper accents. It doesn't sound like a perfect American voice. He I believe it's actually time. him. Actually, too, that that might make a big difference. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I think it actually might be him. I think he did his voice in that, and he did it phonetically because he didn't know what he was saying. Well, and, you know, for and I think that's an also a testament to his acting then because yep. you see the phonetic acting in Sukiyaki Western, and it seems like ch- children saying things they don't know the meaning of. <laughs> yeah. Really, a and, that's and a good I'm point. not to yeah. be condescending, but, I mean, that's the truth. But, wow. I mean, that, that I didn't know that. Yeah, I think he did it for a few dollars more as well, so that's really his voice, uh, his maniac laughter. Yeah. <laughs> That's great, man. Yep. Um, there's a moment when Eastwood, it's nighttime, and he's you know he's up to no good. He's kind of sneaking around, pitting the two sides against each other, and he sneaks into the one house, and there's a woman in black lace, and Eastwood's kind of sneaking up to her at night. And I, I thought to myself in kind of a fanboy moment, man, I wish Sony had done this really, this really epic giallo. I mean, can you imagine that with Morcone doing the score? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it just it would have been one for the ages. I mean, Argento, look out! Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, this film it was the first film, really, really big break that Clint had, and we kind of see in this film a lot of that Clint personality come through, and we kind of see the the Clint smirk mm-hmm. that we all love. You know, it's really on display here. Yeah, and by the time you get to a few dollars more, I mean it's almost perfected. You get the Clint Eastwood you're going to get for the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. The, where you, you got some comedic moments where his kind of double takes and deadpan looks to the camera and stuff. I mean, that's the Clint Eastwood you're going to have probably pretty much for the rest of his career. Oh, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Really, this was him getting that into form here. Yep. Um, I think in hindsight, the dummies at the cemetery, I'm not spoiling anything, the dummies at the cemetery trick seems a bit obvious and kind of silly. Oh, um, <laughs> well, it is kind of silly. Know, yeah. <laughs> it is. You know, I wish, I wish they had handled that a little bit better, but... Um, I don't know if there's any genre outside of the horror genre that shoots cemeteries better than the Western. <laughs> oh, yeah. We say that a few times in this series. Yeah. Um, they don't really, you know, this is these are films that they don't really give um, Clint's characters much in the way of backstory or history. But in this one, there's a bit of a hinting at one when he does help a, a woman and I guess 
a family. And she says to him, as they're, as they're being helped, why do you help us? And he says, I knew someone like you once. There was no way, uh, there's no one there to help. Right. And it's kind of that rare moment in this trilogy where we get a bit of a backstory and you mm-hmm. can kind of think, well, maybe that was him and, you know, his mother and he was too young to do anything. Or maybe, right. you know, when he was just a complete fucking black hat and he kind of realized that as much as he's still going to get his, there's a time and a place uh, to help those who need a hand, who need it. Right. Um, you know, and he couldn't live his life like that. So, I, you know, I think it's more from his own backstory, looking at himself as a boy. Yeah. And his, you know, but I really like that if it's a small moment. If there's one thing I complain about about anything, it's how this trilogy is sold. I hate that in America it's known as the Man with No Name trilogy. I hate mm-hmm. that because that's the reason why I like calling it the Dollars trilogy because it's just a blatant lie. It's not a Man with No Name trilogy. Uh, he's Joe in this one. He's Blondie in Good, Bad, the Ugly, and I can't remember his character's name in the third one. I think it's called, I think he's called Manco in the th- in the second one actually. Second one and then Blondie by uh, yeah. of course Tuco. Yeah. And uh, that drives me nuts. Now I understand why they did it. Don't get me wrong. And it's got a great sound, the Man with No Name trilogy. Uh, oh, yeah. But, you know, I'll, I'll always consider it the poly, the Dollars trilogy, even though I'll have to post this episode as the Man with No Name trilogy because I want everybody to know what it is. I always loved it more when it was called the Dollars trilogy. I think that's a better title. I like the Man with No Name only because of how evocative it is. Yeah. That, correct that, or incorrect. It sells it better. That's what I'm saying. I yeah. mean, it works. It just drives me crazy because I, I like the Dollars trilogy because I, I, I just feel like it's lying to you. But that's just a personal nitpick. But you're right because really, I mean, Clint's character in all three films is a mercenary. If he's, he's he does his own thing, man. He's he's gonna get his, and it really is about the dollars. So yeah, it's called the dollars, which he is more accurate. He's not even the same character, even though he looks the same. And most well, no, Good Betty Ugly looks different, but the first two, he definitely looks the same. I, I I think of him as the same, but you're right. I don't think technically he is. We see that. Um, I love that we see he isn't invincible because the back third of this back, you know, maybe quarter of this film, he's crawling around. He can barely keep his eyes open and. You know, he's kind of seeing the wheels uh, turning in terms of things he'd set in place. Yeah, he takes a beating. See, <laughs> he takes a real beating. Um, and I love, we kind of see the slaughter of one of the families. And I love that that great kind of POV shot from Clint inside the carriage, mm-hmm. watching all this bloodshed. And it's just kind of this ruthless moment. Yep. Um, and I'll tell you, in that scene, when there's a lot of flames whipping up, talk about spaghetti sweat. I mean, Volante, I mean, there's got, there was one or two, one or two guys in Volante, the Volante family that... Uh, looked literally like they were made of fucking plastic. <laughs> That's a good you know, point, actually, yes. <laughs> um, there's that moment, I think this was talked about in one of the voicemails, and I noted it too, there's a great use of a cello or a big, a large string instrument. Um, it's very minimal. It's only for about 30 seconds, but it kind of felt very Carpenter, or it felt like Carpenter saw this and stretched it out to what he felt was a better length. And it was underused, but yeah, we get those organs and everything else, and yeah. it's kind of got that really, you know, kind of spooky gothic feel. Um, one of the last taboos in films, I think, is kind of broken here. We kind of see that, ah, in some ways, again, we have to look back at the context of the time, but we see an unarmed woman, um, yeah. you know, uh, with flames dancing around her, get gunned down mercilessly. Yes. yes. And that, that really wasn't something you saw all the time. I mean, even bad guys had their limits. They may smack a woman, but they're not going to gun down an unarmed woman. But Yeah, in American cinema, women and children were always uh, safe for the most part. You get the occasional scene where that changes, but in Italian cinema, nobody was safe. Yep. So. Yep. Um, I love the relationship with the shopkeeper and Clint. I just think Clint, yeah. as we always talk about, I think his biggest thing is he has the most charisma of almost anyone work that's worked in film, that ease of of forging friendships um, just effortlessly yeah, uh, with, with anyone yeah. he works with, anyone. It just, it's so effortless. 
Um, and yeah. we kind of get that payoff with the mythic status near the end. I mean, again, I have to kind of overlook the fact that um, Volante should have thought, well, this isn't working. Let me go to <laughs> perhaps a different point. And I don't want to say more in case you haven't seen it. Yes. Um, and I love the gold nod at the end. I, you know, it just this is just a good film. I mean, you know, I'm not going to hide anything in saying it's the weakest of the trilogy. But in saying that, I mean, you know, <laughs> that's still no no uh, a good Leone is better than a great film for most. Yeah, I think you'll I think you'll see that when you see your scores. Uh, I think we'll, you'll find we agree pretty much. So, is that all your notes? Yep. All right. Uh, okay, so I'll go over what I know, and uh, I am a bit of a Leone. I'm not a scholar, but I am a bit of a sucker for Leone. So I've read a lot of things about him. So I'll go over a few things, and I have to thank some of the people I've read, and especially Mr. Uh, Christopher Fraylin, or Sir Christopher Fraylin, as he's known, who wrote a great book on Leone that I've read at least two or three times. So uh, I'm not giving this information as I'm saying it, but I'm giving this information kind of as it's filtered from a book I've read to through me to you guys. So. Uh, I do not claim to be a scholar. Let me say that first and foremost. <laughs> so the first thing you notice is the opening titles. Already, you know, right off the bat, this film has style. You know that immediately. Uh, the animated kind of James Bond-esque titles, which uh, James Bond was a big hit in, in uh, Italy. And uh, so, you know, Leone, a master uh, businessman, knew that he needed to, you know, to grab on each as quickly. And he thought, why don't I just rip off for the biggest movie in Italy right now? <laughs> <laughs> so, and this is true of a lot of Italian cinema. We've talked about Italian cinema, how it took a lot of genres and kind of just kept, you know, wash, rinse, repeating them and, uh, you know, would rip them off and things like that. And uh, this this started as early as a fistful of dollars. I mean, this is basically Leone's take on Yojimbo, like you said. And, uh, you know, he makes no secrets about it. It's, you know, it's, it's Yojimbo is filtered through this little Italian man who had a great taste for movies. Um, I think that, you know, the iconic theme to the good, the bad, the ugly always is the one that gets mentioned. But I think the one thing I come away from watching this again is I forget how great the theme song is to this. The theme to this is that great whistling, and uh, that's you know I forget that all the time. And we opened the show with it. Obviously, it was the first piece that played in the opening. But I forget all the time how great that that I can't whistle right now because my wife's trying to sleep. But uh, I forget how great that is. You know, she'll kill me if she start whistling the fucking spaghetti western themes. Yeah. Uh, well, you forget that. Now, this was an Italian-German-Spanish co-production. They made it for like $200,000, and uh, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Of course, $200,000 went a lot further then. But uh, the most amazing thing about that is, of course, everybody on the set spoke their own language. So uh, <laughs> you can imagine Leone, who evidently only knew one, one, uh, one bit of English, which was, watch me, watch me. That's all he evidently knew at this point was watch me, watch me. <laughs> and he would act out stuff. He'd put on a hat and he'd put a cigar in his mouth and he'd start running around doing all the scenes. And uh, that's pretty amazing when you think about it, what came out of his cinema. He did that all the way up until the end, by the way. And uh, he, uh, but yeah, everybody spoke in their own language. So in Volante's gang, you have Spanish, Italian, and German people all speaking to each other. And none of them knew what the other one was saying. So pretty amazing when you think about it in retrospect. Oh, oh for sure. <laughs> uh, Mario Brega, of course, plays Chico. Mario Brega shows up in a lot of Leone stuff. Uh, he's a great character actor. He played the, we'll talk about him again. He plays the kind of one-eyed character in A Few Dollars More and the the uh, sadistic kind of Civil War guy in uh, Good, Bad, the Ugly that hangs out with Angel as there. But he's a great character actor, big rotund man. Uh, I like him a lot. He's been on the show before in another film, but I can't remember which one. You know, with with the only, I often wonder why he doesn't get the same criticism as Tarantino sometimes because he took films that he loved, filtered them through his brain, and then kind of regurgitated them into something original. And Tarantino's well, well, Tarantino's basically done the same thing. Well, so has John Carpenter. Yes. I mean, 
he basically remade a Howard Hawks film. Yeah, uh, you know, but that's the thing. I think people seem to forget that because it's it's current. I mean, maybe at the time there was criticism before the generation's young enough to forget the the stuff, and it's those filmmakers that makes us go back and see what's influenced them. Yes. I don't know that, that you're right though. Yeah, I just think it's always an unfair criticism because I think all artists have to appreciate art, and if you appreciate art. That means everything you've ever seen, everything you've ever done, is going to filter through you. Even if you do something that were totally original, it's still something you filtered from something else, no matter what. I don't, I don't understand that. But anyway, people are weird about that kind of stuff. Uh, Leone had a thing for competition. So if you look at his filmography, his films keep growing. I mean, they start out these little small movie, <laughs> this 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 little small movie, and then if you just look at his films, they progressively get bigger. Each one, all the way up until his last film, just keeps getting progressively bigger until you get to Once Upon a Time in America, and it's gigantic. Oh, yeah. And he had a thing, he had this competition thing in his mind that he wanted to be bigger than David Lean. And David Lean was kind of like the Spielberg of his time. You know, he kind of would, he kind of got to run of the mill with budgets and to make the biggest movies he wanted to make. And, you know, and he got to do that. Well, Leone was always wanting to be the next David Lean, you know, and uh, he really gave it a shot. No doubt about that. Uh, now, here's, the, here's, one, here's one of the most interesting tidbits I do know. Now, Leone didn't really care for Westerns. He, uh, Especially, he liked him when he was a young man, but he didn't like him. Uh, he thought the TV ruined him, which is pretty true. Because if you think about it, the Western was an okay genre, and then TV came along, and they made a lot of TV Westerns, and they pretty much diluted the market, and people didn't care anymore. And that's when you start getting the you know, Western of the Week type thing. You start getting a lot of white hat, black hat, very simple genre movies, good guy versus bad guy. And he likes such stuff as like Shane and kind of the classic Westerns, but he didn't really care for them all the time. And, and it always amuses me to think about that, because here you got this guy who basically redefined the whole genre. And at the time, he was, wasn't really happy with the genre. So it's, it's very interesting to me. I always find that kind of amusing. I honestly believe that this may be, and I may be the only one that believes this, but I honestly believe that this film is maybe one of the biggest influences on modern action movies ever. Uh, you know, the man that goes into town and starts shit, or the, the single man against many. Uh, that's, that's pretty much action movies to a T right there. So... Or Rio Bravo with the men, kind yes. of the ragtag bunch. Well, yeah, yo, you got you got the bunch movies, like the Wild Bunch movies. You got the bunch movies, the group, the Dirty Dozens, the Men on a Mission films. You have those too. But I'm talking about like the modern action film. I'm talking about the, you know, the diehards, the uh, one man against many type situations. Okay. Uh, your Under Sieges, your Steven Seagal movies, your JCVDs. Now, when they team up with people, that's a different situation. But I'm just talking about the the films they make where they're just you know one guy against many type thing. I always felt like this was a big influence. Um. Uh, Westerns, you know, they were dying in 63 and 64. I told you that the TV Westerns killed them, but uh, it seems like the Italians and, and, and Sam Peckinpah and, and, and Sergio Carbucci and these three people in general, Leone, Carbucci, and Peckinpah, seem to always believe in the genre. They believe in the stories of, you know, men, uh, the camaraderie of men, the importance of men being friends, of men being together, and not in a homoerotic way. Uh, you know, we talk about the homoeroticism of modern action movies, but Leone never got the... You could argue, I guess, if you really were looking for it, there's some homoeroticism in his movies. But I don't really think there is. I think it's more about the friendship. It's never really about yeah, the I never, I never got that vibe. Sorry, if I never got that vibe, it's yeah. interesting you should say that. I never once even thought about it. Yeah, it, it, that's because it's a fine line. And, and I think that the modern action movie, kind of, it's easy to see where it kind of goes over that line. It, it, it's easy to see that. But in this film first of all nobody's taking off the shirt every five minutes to show off what they did at the gym for six months prior to making the movie so yeah. that that's one thing that immediately takes that out of the equation but it's more about the friendship and and when i say that you know you talk about peck and paul with the wild bunch that's about friendship about dedication people talk about the film being about a lot of things but ultimately what the wild bunch is about is about honor and friendship 
and you know just sticking with the, the person you care for in the end be it man woman or child you love that person in some capacity so I think Leone does a great job with putting men together and men hanging out and men being men. I think he does that maybe better than any director ever, honestly, outside of Peck and Paul. So um, you start to see the bigger things that are coming into Leone's life. You start to see the close-ups, which is actually an accident. They found out that the uh, – the, uh, I know this for a fact. They found out that the film they use accidentally uh, allowed for extreme close-ups while keeping the kind of background and focus a little bit. So it actually kind of came about as an accident, but that that oh, becomes wow. that becomes Leone. These extreme close-ups with these wide open panoramic views and that you can start to see it here. It's starting to it's starting to bristle a little bit. You can start to see what he's starting to think here. And uh it's really starting to come to fruition, and especially as we go along this trilogy, I'm sure we'll talk about it more and more. Um uh I can only say a couple other things really, you know, he he was obsessed with sound. Uh, this becomes very prevalent when you get to Once Upon a Time in the West, where like the beginning, I think, is 15 or 20 minutes with no dialogue. Uh, and arguably, in my opinion, the greatest cinematic opening to a film ever is Once Upon a Time in the West. And uh, he, he, he becomes obsessed with how sound affects what you think more than dialogue. And this goes on, especially up to Once Upon a Time in the West, this really goes on for a long time, how sound becomes... So effective, and you know, for me, gunshots, uh, music, creaking, uh, horses walking, whatever. He beca- it becomes, you know, it becomes an obsession, and you can see it in those, and especially in those four films, you can see it. This one to a Once Upon a Time in the West, you can see it becomes an obsession with him. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I liked uh, some of the stuff he did with the graveyard shootout. Uh, there's some little things, some things I know from seeing these films 90 million times. Like if you watch the graveyard shootout, every time. Uh, Another character, Eastwood's tapping on barrels in one scene. They, they, he'll tap on a barrel four times. You'll cut back to the graveyard shootout. They'll shoot four times. He'll tap on a barrel three times. They'll cut back to the graveyard shootout. He shoots three times. Little things like that that uh, Leone believed were subliminal and they affected how you viewed cinema, which I, I, I have to say works, evidently. I, you know, I love that. I always love going back and counting those. He taps the barrel five times, and then there's five gunshots. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, he's not really concerned, obviously, with the reality. The story is not about reality. The story is about icons. The story is about the the rules of genre, and uh, that's what I love about Leone Cinema, probably more than anything. I mean, he's he's top five filmmaker of all time for me personally. I don't know where he sits in you, but I'm sure he's he's he's, he's up there, man. He's yeah. he is fantastic. Yeah, and so he was always concerned with cinema, not concerned with reality. So I think that's why I love him so much. Is that you know, of course, none of his shots really make sense in the way you would actually really see things, but it's pure cinema. You're not supposed to see things like that all the time, so. I like that. You're, I just want to say I totally agree with you on that. He wasn't concerned with reality as much as cinematic. Mm-hmm. So you, here's some interesting tidbits. When this film was originally released, it got an X rating. Uh, it wasn't because of the violence. It was because of the morality of the characters. <laughs> That's an interesting little tidbit. I thought I'd just kind of share that with you. Uh, <laughs> that was interesting. Yeah. And uh, I feel like that uh, Volante's reaction in that la- in the, one of the shootouts, I'm not going to say which one, but there's a shootout. In the, it's just very well done. I mean, shootouts in, in Westerns can be hokey uh, because they are a standard, right? But Volante handles oh, yeah. it really well. Matter of fact, he handles it well in a couple films. So, uh, The one thing I, I will say about Spaghetti Westerns, and you know, I've talked about them a lot and, and everything, uh, and they are one of my favorite genres, if not my favorite genre in some ways outside of horror films, uh, you know, it's funny that the Italians adapted the Western because, you know, the Americans made the Western film and it was all based on myth of what we thought cowboys and Indians and things like that was. I mean, in reality, going back, you know, it wasn't as real as we think. There was a lot of African-American cowboys and, 
and stuff Chinese like Chinese were involved yeah. a lot more. Yeah, there was a lot more stuff that we didn't, but we kind of based our cinema on myth. What's really interesting to me, then, this kind of goes back to the Tarantino thing I was talking about, is if you think about the Italians, what they did was they took something we based on myth, and then they turned around and they based a new myth on top of that myth. Mm-hmm. They took what we already thought knew was a myth, and they regurgitated into a new brand of myth. And that's why they, I think the Spaghetti Western is a very, very special form of cinema. Just like the Giallo and some of the other stuff the Italians did. I mean, they really kind of they kind of took all of this, because it's a very artistic country anyway. They took all of this stuff, and they put it all together and said, you know what we should do? Boom, here you go. And then they kind of redefined it. So that's what I think I love the most about the Spaghetti Western. So I didn't really talk a lot about this film, because I know you talk a lot more about the particulars of the story. But mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to give, kind of give more of a background information on a little bit of what Leone was going through at the time when he made it. Again, guy had only been a second unit director. He comes out, and this is a debut film, which he didn't even release under his real name. He released under a fake name. Yeah, he did. And I think uh, <laughs> both of them had like uh, fake names like Max something or Bob. Yeah, because yeah, he was not confident in himself really at all, which is really amazing because this film shows an assured filmmaker like right from the get-go. But was it that, or was it that they were trying to sell it to American audiences? Well, they didn't want well to that was like, the yeah. That, I mean, there was, there was obviously that old Italian thing where you know Sergio Martino is I don't know what what what's what's his name in Hands Hands of Steel? Oh, uh, not Mar- <laughs> is it Martin Dolman? Yeah, I think it might be. I mean, there's obviously a thing where they got to sell stuff to American audiences, but I think even when they released it in Italy, it wasn't released under uh, Sergio Leone. It was released under something else. So, but he was finding himself as he went along, and uh, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. So. All right, so that's my thoughts. Let's hear your uh, Make or Breaks MVTs and whatnot. All right, and it should be said, we could spend probably four or five hours easily talking about these films, but like oh, yeah. I said, unfortunately, we got to kind of keep it tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so apologies to anyone if it seems a bit rushed. Um, make or Break is the scene with the mule. It's really that scene where we kind of get that bravado. That It's a mixture of tough guy and and, and comedy, or, or I guess we see Eastwood's sense of humor, which, like you said, this really would go on to be him. In a lot of his films, that that mix of humor and, and kind of machismo yeah, that he yeah. blended very well and very mm-hmm. effortlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, MVT is Clint. You know, this isn't Leone at the height of his powers. He's still kind of he's getting his footing. And although it's a very competent, very solid film, I got to give it to Clint. Uh, you know, uh, really, you know, really good to see him early on here, and and it's very assured in such an early role. Mm-hmm. Um, my score for the film is a seven point seven five out of ten. Um, it's a good one, definitely. It's it's not a great film. It's a very very good film, though. Um, and you know, especially when you consider that you know, he was right at the beginning of his career, it it certainly showed a sign of things to come. Particularly the scene at the end with um, Volante's family and their eyes and looking at them as they're in the frenzy of their slaughter and stuff. And yeah, you know. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's my stuff. Yeah, one other note I want to add. I mean, uh, Leone is very known for very well known for helping young up and comers. Uh, not only did he help Tonino Valeri become a director, but this is also, I think, one of uh, Fernando De Leo's first uncredited writing credits. So, oh, and, and there was there was something else too. I think like Massimo Dalamano was the DOP or something yeah, like that. And of course, you know, if people look closely and go back and look, uh, Once Upon a Time West, that's co-written with Dario Argento, and I mean, he was always helping filmmakers become, you know, more than what they were. So he was kind of like a father figure to a lot of these guys. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting when you think about it. Uh, my MVT is going to be Eastwood. This is his movie. I really do feel that. I mean, this is his thing. Uh, it could be Leone on all three films easily. Uh, that goes without argument. But I'm going to give it. I'm going to kind of mix it up a little bit here. Uh, go with uh, Eastwood on the first one. Uh, my make or break is uh, the first shootout with the mule talk and everything else. That is uh, that is iconic Western cinema. 
uh, made by Italians. But uh, that is like one to me. That is like the if I was going to show anybody any moment in Western movies, that might be the moment. <laughs> you know, especially when he looks down and he looks back up. Uh, that is Clint Eastwood at his best. So uh, my score for the film is a little bit higher than yours, about a half a point higher. It's eight point two five. I like the film a lot, but it is it is seriously flawed in a lot of ways. Uh, it slows down. There's a bit of a there's some like some spy work Clint Eastwood goes on and stuff. And this kind of stuff happened in Yojimbo too, so I can't really knock it. But it just kind of comes out of nowhere that he starts doing all this stuff. He's hacking stuff with machetes, and you know, it just feels kind of clunky in spots. So as good as it is, it does have some flaws, but it's still a wonderful, wonderful movie. So. That's my thoughts on a fistful of dollars. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and talk about for a few dollars more. So we'll be back right after this. What's up, kiddies? You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, the only show crazy enough to tackle the Brian Bosworth classic Stone Cold. Actual music that you hear if you see Large William and I riding bareback over a horizon. <laughs> and by bareback, I don't mean no saddle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you hear those pauses and those loud trumpets kick in, that's when we stand up on the horse yes. <laughs> and put yes. our and put our hands on our hips in fist form and say, "Look at this." <laughs> that horse, nice. we ride that horse, but they put us away naked and wet, or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> All right, so uh, if you want to synopsize for a few dollars more, then uh, I'll start going on it. All right, so uh, the man with oh no, <laughs> two bounty hunters with completely different intentions team up to track down a Western outlaw. I think that sums it up nicely and shortly. Yes, it does. Uh, and this one has maybe the best cast of the three. I would say, uh, arguably, yes, arguably, yes. So. Um, okay, so I'll get into it uh, here. Let me uh, pull up a little bit of IMDb to make sure I don't say anybody's name incorrectly. Um, okay, so this one, first of all, opens great with a great shot of the you know Spanish landscape. Uh, we know something's going on. It's from somebody's point of view. We don't know what. We hear this loud spaghetti western gunshot. And I'm by spaghetti western gunshot. You guys have seen spaghetti westerns. You know that it seems like they use the same gunshot effect for every gun. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, there's this great moment where somebody is shot on a horseback, and then you see the kind of cigar or cigarello smoke come into the frame, and it kind of blends into the credits. So right away, Leone's like, "Welcome back. This is this is my world." Yeah, and it's it's pretty great, man. Um, okay, so for Lee Van Cleef's part, now this this the interesting thing about Lee Van Cleef is Lee Van Cleef always played the the bad guy. Uh, you yourself actually saw him. I think High Noon was his first film, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, he always played like the background bad guy because he had this great kind of feline face. Uh, 
So funny you say that because I thought I was going to sound bizarre saying that I always found him very cat-like. Yeah, yeah, he's got this great kind of, it's very feline-like. It's very, it's kind of weird the way his face is. But it's anyway, it's one of the great modern, well, it's actually, I think, one of the greatest faces in cinema. I mean, Leone loved his face. And uh, nobody, I think, outside the Coen brothers, I don't think anybody casts faces better than Leone. Agreed. Uh, I mean, he just does a great job with faces. And he had seen Lee Van Cleef. Now, he had offered the role of Colonel Mortimer to, again, Henry Fonda, I think Robert Ryan this time. I know Charles Bronson got asked again, said no. I don't know what was up with Bronson. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, I have to wonder, you know, I'm glad he didn't take these roles because I have to wonder if he would have done that. You know, would he have done Death Wish? Would he have done The Mechanic? You know, maybe not. So... It kind of, you know, you kind of have to take it all in stride. But I have to wonder at some point when Bronson decided to actually go ahead and do this. Of course, thankfully he did, and it became like to me like the iconic for me personally, the iconic Leone character. But yes. uh, uh, you know, it's funny that he passed on all these great opportunities. I guess he just didn't see them at the time. And of course, Lee Marvin was also offered the Colonel Mortar part, which I could totally see Lee Marvin in that part. In that part, completely. Oh, absolutely. But Leone went. He only. I supposedly I read. I believe that he only went to America a few times. Uh, before he eventually went over there to make uh, Once Upon a Time America and some other stuff. But he uh, he went over there looking for Lee Van Cleef, and Lee Van Cleef was going to quit acting. He'd always played, you know, bad guy on horse, bad guy in black saddle, bad guy, second bad guy in battle scene. His career just wasn't going the way he wanted it to go. And uh, he was in a real bad car wreck, and he busted his knee really bad. And matter of fact, I think John Carpenter talks about that on the Escape from New York uh, commentary, that he hated doing scenes where he had to walk because yes. uh, cause he had a real bad knee. And uh, so he saw Lee Van Cleef and just, you know, kind of approached him and stuff and going to do it. And Lee Van Cleef just automatically came over. Now, the amazing thing about Lee Van Cleef in this film. Okay, now I know this, this, this could arguably be true. But for me, this is the Lee Van Cleef movie. This is my favorite Lee Van Cleef. I never, think, I never thought he ever looked better than he does in this movie. Now, some people love him as Angel Eyes because he's such a bad guy in The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. I can totally understand that. But to me, I love the fatherly figure character of Lee Van Cleef in this film. I agree with you. I mean, he is just so great in this movie. I mean, he opens the movie. He's reading the Bible. You know, he's got that great fucking pipe. Uh, and he's this great look to him. And it's a look that he pretty much kept most of his career in Spaghetti Westerns. I think he made like 12 or 15 Spaghetti Westerns. And he pretty much always had the black outfit, kind of the uh, the black overcoat, the long trench coat type thing. He pretty much always had that look, even when he was in the Sabata films and whatnot. So... Uh, but this is, to me, this is Lee Van Cleef. And the amazing thing about that, and I don't know if you, if you really think about this, he had always been the background character actor. He had never been given the lead part. And here he is, he's given this lead part, and he fucking owns it. <laughs> he comes and, in, and he fucking owns this movie. And in some ways, he owns it even more than Eastwood. Well, he does. I, I will agree with that. And that says, I was going to say, that says something, because Eastwood, you know, is Eastwood. Yes, I mean, he comes into this movie, he's got this fucking pipe, he's got these great scenes, and here's, here's the moment I knew that Lee Van Cleef owned this movie. That first scene when he comes off the train with the horse, he steps down, he's looking at the wanted poster. This telegraph guy, a typical spaghetti western character, is a big buffoon, hey, rah, 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 talking and stuff, you know, and it's easy to make fun of these characters, there's a lot of these background characters in spaghetti westerns, like, whoa, yo, it's a blah, blah, you know, and they just start talking all silly and shit. Lee Van Cleef, at one point he's laughing, Lee Van Cleef's looking at the poster, and then you just see Lee Lee Van Cleef's eyes shift down to the telegraph guy, like, shut your fucking mouth, I'm going to blow your brains out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that moment right there, it becomes Lee Van Cleef's movie, for me. From that moment right there on, I'm interested in whatever Colonel Mortimer is going to do. Because, I mean, it's just a great fucking moment, man. As a matter of fact, if if I can make a gif of that for my 
uh, 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 avatar on power boards. I probably would, but you probably wouldn't be able to tell the ass shift. It'd probably be too small because it's a very small, subtle move, to say the least. Uh, okay, so uh, we get that. Uh, we get Lee Van Cleef also at the uh, the first bounty he collects. That's a great scene uh, with the uh, <laughs> the uh, the mutated Ron Howard. I always call that other character. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's great about that is I think we 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 know what Clint is, what his character is. We've seen he's the bounty hunter, the the wily guy who who's going to outsmart uh, or outshoot you. And I think that first scene really sets up Van Cleef to be. Um, not his adversary, but uh, the, the his 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 peer. As far as what they're doing, it's not like Clint's gonna have to throw him on his back and carry him. We can see that that Mortimer is certainly more than competent, and, and is kind of a rival of sorts for all these uh, these heads that have a bounty on them. Yes, and all those great scenes of them looking at the uh, that other great scene where he we have uh, both these characters looking at a wanted poster, and that great one with Lee Van Cleef and uh, Leone deciding he's gonna mess with editing a little bit. And do the gunshots and the cutback and the cutback, 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 cutback. I love that that moment because the 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 close-ups will get progressively closer as we go on. Obviously, and this is when you start really seeing the close-ups. They start focusing on just the eyes mm-hmm. and doing those little things and stuff. But also, I love that the use of tobacco in Leone's movies is always great. <laughs> oh, for sure. If any if any films make you want to smoke. It's the spaghetti westerns. Uh, I don't know if you feel that way. Being an ex-smoker, I'm an ex-smoker myself. I don't know if you feel that way, but no, they do. Uh, yeah, it makes me want to grab a pipe or a cigarillo or a cigarette or something because they just all these characters look great, and, and nobody smokes a pipe. Even even Henry Silva, <laughs> even Silva <laughs> can't compete with Lee Van Cleef and the way he smokes a pipe. Where he's got this like evil little grin while he smokes his pipe. That oh love, no, I know. And I love how he sticks his tongue out just slightly to touch the tip of the pipe right before the pipe goes into his mouth. Yep, so these little great moments like that, you know. Um, the intro to Keyswitch character is equally as cool. Uh, this is also the first time I've seen uh, Clint Eastwood use a karate chop. <laughs> yes, I was going to mention that. It's a devastating chop too. It's black exploitation esque. <laughs> it is very. It is very trouble man ass. <laughs> I know you get a kick out of that man, <laughs> and it's got that great moment too where Eastwood, you know, he comes into town. It's raining. He wants to make this bet with this guy. He's got this bounty he's chasing. He does the karate chop. He does all this stuff, and then you get this great moment where these other three bad guys that were getting shaved and, and trimmed up at the barbershop, they come in the back, and Eastwood's looking at him in the mirror and stuff, and he looks back, and you get the close-up of the guy with the half-beard. And it's that great Leone kind of visual gag of the half-beard, and uh, Clint, Clint looking at him like, what's this fucking guy's problem? <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that moment when he comes up, and just that playfulness, that sense of humor that we start to see with Leone being comfortable, we see little flourishes of throughout his films. Yeah. Now, we have talked about this often. It's become a thing on the GGTMC, and that is what we like to call spaghetti sweat. Oh, boy. Now, arguably, John Maria Volante is the sweatiest character to ever approach cinema. Yes. He is so sweaty in this movie. It is amazing. Now, I, I, the only other person I can compete this with or actually is in competition is Burt Reynolds and White Lightning, which we haven't gotten to yet. We're going to get to in the future. But... It is amazing how wet Vavlante is throughout this film. <laughs> yes. I mean, it is just amazing. I mean, he is the sweaty god, to say, to say the least. And he may, he may do it the best. I mean, everybody else is sweaty, don't get me wrong. But Vavlante just kind of oozes. Uh, this, he's, he's almost like, you know, how a snake looks moist? Mm-hmm. But in actuality, when you touch them, they're not quite as moist as you think. But I think he would have been more moist than you thought. But <laughs> yeah. I love it because it's almost played with it, this, like, this... 
this kind of off kilter. And it's so funny you mentioned Snake because uh, he plays it with this off kilter kind of feverish, haunted, troubled kind of um, broken, but still like a wounded snake could still kind of, yeah, you know, do some damage. That's how, that's how he, he's, he plays this film. It's not quite with the same bravado as um, as he did in uh, in for uh, for Fistful of Dollars. Yeah. And and he smokes the most powerful marijuana ever on screen, because this yes. is this is the kind of pot that you take one puff on and you're gone. You're in another world already. <laughs> <laughs> it's just some pretty seriously wacky tobacco, to say the least. Uh, but you really are starting to see the beginnings of the true Sergio Leone leak through here. You're starting to see the extreme close-ups. Uh, you're starting to see the scenes that, that that you know, like in Good, Bad, the Ugly. You'll see a scene where Clint Eastwood rolls down a hill, and instead of cutting away, uh, <laughs> Leone will let the complete scene play out. Uh, you know, he'll he'll take a minute to two minutes of screen time to let the most small thing take place. And you're starting to see that here. You're starting to see that in little bits and pieces. Long scenes where nobody's talking. Everybody's just kind of looking around, staring and stuff and things like that. Uh, he always, it, that's the one thing I love about him. He wasn't always interested in the payoff. He seemed to always be more interested in the foreplay. Yes. Uh, uh, he seemed to be that kind of guy. So in some ways, I guess he is a female, dire- a female director. <laughs> <laughs> A little inside joke there for us married men. But, uh, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, he really was interested in the foreplay. He didn't really care how the scene ended. He just cared how it kind of began and how we got there, I think. So not that his punk his uh, punctuation for his endings wasn't great. I just think that he really enjoyed uh, kind of mesmerizing audiences, kind of leading them, kind of stroking them as they went along. A lot of sexual context here. Um <laughs> I like the scene uh, in one of our voicemails. We hear this. I like the scene with Vellante kind of preaching to his uh, his plan to his gang. First of all, his fucking gang is amazing. All right. oh, yeah, he's got maybe arguably the greatest gang ever, but not because there's like a whole bunch of people you know, but because there's two people you know. And uh, well, actually, Mario Breg is in there too, so I should mention him. But let's just go ahead and mention the fact that Klaus Kinski playing Wild, also known as the Hunchback. I think it's one of uh, Quint's favorite characters in cinema. <laughs> Mm-hmm. With the, he's got the greatest twitch outside of Elvis Presley, and uh, and then we got the great uh, Luigi Pastilli, who plays Groggy, and uh, Luigi Pastilli's great in this film. I loved him a lot in this movie. Uh, of course, he's he's really we talked about him in Death Rides a Horse and how great he was in that, and you know he's in the Good, Bad, the Ugly as well, and and you know he's just, he's he's a really good character actor to begin with. But, you know, you get Volante, Pastilli, and Kinski in the same group, man, it's just great. And I just love thinking about these scenes of these iconic actors for me in the same room together. There's a scene in one part of the town where you got Cleef, Kinski, Eastwood, Volante, and Pastilli all in the same room. And this, the movie geek in me just kind of gets chills knowing that all five of these people I love so much were in the same room together. <laughs> yeah, I know. It really is kind of, it, it's quite incredible to see. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you always want, like for years before Heat, everybody wanted Eastwood and Pacino to do a scene together. And finally, mm-hmm. when it happened, and you know, it is what it is, it wasn't the greatest scene ever, but it finally happened. You know, they were on screen together. That, to me, looking back on these things, it's the same thing, although at the time these guys weren't these kind of icons. But for me, looking back on this, it always kind of just makes me smile and makes me happy to know that these, these five people were in a room together. And I can imagine somebody yelling, cut, and then everybody trying to get away from Kinski as quick as possible. <laughs> yeah, or it's almost like, you know, when you get that Sun Records shot where I think it's uh, Johnny Cash, Elvis, and Jerry Lee Lewis, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I think you're right. Maybe yeah, Roy Orbison's like, in there? Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, maybe Orbison was in there too, yeah. I don't, can't remember. Uh, the standoff moments between Cleef and Kinski, fucking classic, man. <laughs> talk, oh, yeah. talk about two actors with two different styles, man. <laughs> 
often wonder, I wish Van Cleef was still alive. So I, because you know, maybe we could interview him in some way because I feel like he could be a good interviewer as Kinski. I don't know if I'd, do, I don't even know if I'd want to dare. Uh, but uh, I'd like to ask Van Cleef what it was like to, you know, strike a match on Kinski's hump. Yes, <laughs> you know that, that is a really great moment of machismo. Yes, it is. Yes, it's a it's a big dick moment to say the least. Oh yeah, with a little match, oddly enough. Yes. Uh, again, I talked about it. It's hard to believe that uh, this is Van Cleef's first big part. I mean, it really is. It's also hard to believe that he wasn't as old as you think he was in this movie. He was actually uh, just in his 40s, I believe, early 40s. But they kind of yeah, they kind of aged him a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, and he just kind of comes off. And of course, it helps that Eastwood calls him old man. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And, uh, you know, Van Cleef calls Eastwood boy. Uh, so I like the uh, the kind of Hitchcock scene with the telescope and the binoculars. Oh, that was great with the the, the spyglass there. When when uh, it, it was at like a rear window, I think that was uh, yeah, kind of uh, similar where um, they're both looking at each other and then they kind of realize it and <laughs> yeah. and I think Eastwood just kind of waves to him or something. He just kind of looks like he kind of waves and uh, Vanquish like fucking prick and fucking shuts the blinds. <laughs> But the other yeah. great thing about that moment is, is that there's—I don't think there's any dialogue. It's just them watching what's taking place on the ground, and yeah. there's a lot of stuff in there that you know you wouldn't get away with nowadays. Like there's even a scene where, when you're, he's looking through this telescope, he looks down at Kinski's character because you could tell with the hump on his back. But Kinski never turns around a camera. You just know it's Kinski because of the hump. That's right. It's these little moments like that that kind of make the scene so great. It's—it's uh, it's really a great scene. Um, and again, we talked about how Eastwood's comedic abilities coming in. That scene with him and the old man, where the train kind of rattles the house and stuff, and the old man says something kind of smart-ass to to uh, Eastwood, and Eastwood just kind of almost looks at camera like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a great moment, man, and uh, really good stuff. Uh, the scene, the scene where our leads finally meet. How about that scene? The uh, the shooting the hat scene. Is that not is that not a great moment of big dickery there? It's a great moment of big dickery, a great moment of humor. It's very playful, and it kind of is like the grandfather of the Jordan Bird horse yeah, uh, yeah. commercials. Yeah, yeah it really so. is. It really is. And I love how smart Van Cleef is. He he knows that that pistol can only shoot so far, so he just keeps letting him shoot his hat. And I love how Leone has lit every scene to make sure the hat lands in the light. Yes. So him and his DP have made sure that every spotlight that's in the in the background of that town down that road is lit so that hat will always land in the light yeah that old fishing line trick (laughs) oh yeah that fishing line trick is used here it's used a lot in the good the bad the ugly too man talk about snatching some hats off heads oh yeah (laughs) i'd be worried my fucking hair was gonna get pulled out and and that's that thing you talked about with with leone being more interested in cinematic value than real life because truthfully some of the shots these guys pull off it really is about adding the mythical status to these sharpshooters as opposed to how real it feels. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, also, I, I mentioned the one scene between Cleef and uh, Kinski, but there's another scene with Cleef and Kinski. I won't get too much into it, but it's still, it's still fucking good. This time, Kinski's more the aggressor, but it's still fucking great. And, oh, yeah. and Van Cleef's eating. Van Cleef's one of the great eaters in cinema. I love when he eats in cinema. <laughs> <laughs> he always, he's always got this big wooden spoon. A great example, of course, of that is his angel eyes at the beginning of The Good, Bad, The Ugly, which we'll talk about. But I love that he always leaves a little bit of food hanging off his mustache or off his lips a little bit. You know, it's, the, the bread always looks incredibly rough. I don't know how they ate bread back in those days. It always looks like it's fucking like a rock. Yeah, I know. Um, let me see here. Let me see what this note says. Uh, I have to talk about Tarantino again. Maybe the shots tonight is lifted from previous Hollywood westerns. I mean, from here you get uh, his influences included. Uh, I know this for a fact because I've read up on it. OK Corral, uh, Gunfight the OK Corral, 
I think the Bud Boddicker film, Ride Lonesome, I think it's Bud Boddicker. I might be wrong about that. I'm kind of calling on beside my, just calling the stuff outside my head. I do know Naked Spur and Ten Star in there, and of course the Bravados, which is one I've kind of pushed onto our background roadmap because it has uh, Gregory Peck and, of course, Henry Silva in the Bravados. So we might nice. do that at some point. Uh, I always felt like that, even with their appearances, that Eastwood's kind of like the desperate dog and that Cleef is like the prowling cat. And it's yeah. it's really nice to have that dichotomy between the characters because, you know, dogs and cats historically don't always get along, although we know that's not actually true. It's kind of like that in the cinema. It's like they don't want to get along at first, but once they get to know each other, they realize there's a lot there's a lot of benefit in being with each other. So I like that, you know, Eastwood seems like this kind of ragged kind of dog, kind of one-armed dog a little bit. And then uh, and Van Cleef's more this kind of prowling kind of cat character with the black boots and the great pipe and all these moments. So I love that. Uh, a couple of stuff behind the scenes, and I'll get off of this. Uh, something you might not have known, that uh, another Leone note you might not have known. Guy never used storyboards, which, if you think about his cinema, is might be oh, one wow. of the most am- might be one of the most amazing things about him. That it all came from his brain. Uh, talk about somebody that was born to make movies. Jesus, yeah, uh, no kidding. That's just amazing to me. And the uh, the finale. Now, Leone obviously became obsessed with circles. Uh, it seems. Uh, I don't know if this is because he was Roman and the Coliseum was there. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds like a crazy thing to say, but it just seems like I, I don't know. He became obsessed with the circular standoff. Uh, That's right. That's and right. he became obsessed with it. And uh, it really, of course, he masters it by the time we get to the next film. But I really like this one, too, because uh, Eastwood's character just wants to make sure all is fair in this one. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really want to be involved at all. He just wants to make sure that nobody's getting the shaft. This is a straight-up fair and everything else. And I can't say enough about Volante's performance in this. He's fucking fantastic in it. Uh, the acting's great. I love this movie. Uh, this movie is in my top ten of all time. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, it's easily one of my favorite. It's, if not my favorite Western, it's my second favorite Western, probably. And Leone's responsible for most of my top five, it seems. But, of course, I love Once Upon a Time in the West the most. It's like, to me, it's like, it's like the be-all, end-all of the Spaghetti West. But... This one is really, really great, and really the reason why is because I just love Colonel Mortimer so much, Indio I love so much, and even Manko, even the, the Clint Eastwood character I love so much, but it's also, you know, the Steely in there and the Kinski in there, and, and I love, the women in here are very sexy, even though there's some scenes where women get smacked around again and stuff. It's the camaraderie, the, the friendship that Eastwood and Mortimer uh, develop is, is, is great. Uh, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, these guys should have had a podcast. Uh <laughs> <laughs> like covering the West. Like, who'd you shoot this week? Mike Uh But anyway, uh, I just I love this film. I just think it's a great film. It's a little bit... Uh, the only reason why I don't think it's a perfect film, it's about 15 minutes too long, I think. I think it's just a little long. And that's saying a lot coming from uh, Leone, who didn't seem like... After A Fistful of Dollars, seems like he didn't need an editor anymore. He just said, fuck it. Listen, whatever we shoot, we'll put it in there. But... Uh, it's just a little bit long. Maybe maybe ten minutes. It's just a little bit too long. But I think it's. I would agree with that. I think it's one of the great uh, great films of modern cinema. I really do believe that. So, let's hear what you got to say, Will. I know I just gave it high praise. So let's hear what you got yeah, to say. Yeah, you covered uh, a lot of stuff. Um, you know, we talked about the cast and everyone else. Um, and to just further expand on the creativity with Leone uh, in terms of um, the the score, he has the juice harp in this one. Yes, yes. You know, little flourishes, <laughs> little stings of the juice harp. And you didn't talk about Mortimer's gun, which is a really interesting, uh, it's it's clearly a handmade, handmade weapon. And we get a bit of a backstory. We can kind of see he's a weapons guy. And he's a guy that's very, the other thing that's great about them, and I think to further the the, the feline and scruffy dog uh, thing is we see that um, Van Cleef is constantly, 
Uh, he, he's very meticulous in keeping himself clean. He cleans his gun. He cleans his boots. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the cat licking himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a good point. And, uh, you know, that, that I have to wonder if the kind of arsenal that he carries around, that, that you have to think that's an influence on modern uh, filmmakers like Rodriguez and stuff who are very much oh, yeah. as interested in the weapon as they are the character that carries the weapon. Yeah, no, for sure. Because he does have, like, he has that one, like, like, like uh, Jack Nicholson Joker revolver that he never, I don't think he ever uses in the movie. But that one with that barrel that's about, you know, three feet long. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. No, it is. Um, there's really great dramatic moment with the locket and the baby crying. And mm -hmm. uh, we just kind of see how ruthless and brutal Indio is. And, um, you know, he could have killed the guy, but instead he kills his family. And I got to say, at this moment, that that locket, the, the little music that the locket plays, mm -hmm. really reminds me of uh, the Fulci film, The Psychic. Yeah, yeah, it totally does. Really. And actually, this is the one, sorry, with the electric guitar and then the organs and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, every character has his own music. Like, Indio has his theme. Mortimer has the Juice Harp theme, I believe. And Eastwood has his own thing, too. Yeah, but uh, I really love that moment. Um, and I just love that moment. You can kind of taste the anger uh, that this man, you really feel for him. And he's, you can tell that this guy has been shattered into a million pieces and he's trying to muster up enough uh, gumption to kind of do what he needs to do to exact revenge. But we don't know if he has it in him because what he's seen has just shattered him to the very core right, of right. who he is. But I love that moment. Um, and this is, yeah, like you said, when we really sort of see the variety of faces that Leone always does so well. Mm -hmm. Um Again, to get back to the score for a moment, if I told you a flute and whistling would be cool, you'd probably say I'm a liar, but, you know, Marconi pulls it off. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I love, you know, to talk about Clint, we talked about his, his kind of exchanges or interplay with Mortimer, but again, just like I've always said, even as the little exchanges, like with the kid Fernando, um, when he first comes into town, I love that. It's just kind of, he's got that ease again with him. Um, one thing I wish there had been more of was the Italian grandmother of Christina Hendricks. Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> are you talking are you talking about that lady that works at the hotel? Yeah, 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 yeah. Leone it's, had uh, a Leone had a thing for uh, obviously buxom women, uh, but oddly enough, I, I read uh, behind the scenes that he thought that lady looked like uh, the wife of a producer he didn't like. Oh, that's and funny. so he made her out to be a buffoon because he hated the producer so much. <laughs> See, it's moments like that, though, when I wish Le Leone was sleazier and he at least had a, a wooden barrel bathtub with strategically placed yeah. bubbles routine. There's there's, there's something about him, though. I have to say, he didn't do a whole lot of nudity in his films and stuff, but there's something about the way he shoots women that's incredibly sexy. Yeah. I don't know if it's that yeah. I don't know if it's that machismo way or not, but, I mean, obviously, like a lot of Italian men, he liked them very buxom, very very boisterous, very big. Uh, not just, mm -hmm. you know, not just size. I'm just talking about everything. Hair, yeah. lips, nose, you name it. Yeah, oh, everything. Sure. Yep. Yeah, the way I like my women, um, <laughs> uh, along with Fellini and Leone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Italians, man, um, they like, you know, here, more pasta, more pasta. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, I, the bank that, that I think it, they say it's in El Paso. It, it rem, wasn't that the bank that Steiger and Coburn robbed? And I can't remember, and, but uh, I do know for sucker. I don't. It might have been, but I do know for a fact that town that they're in. The majority of the film that is the same town that Django was shot in. 
Oh, cool. It was built, I think, cool. on that uh, famous uh, Roman, what was it called? Cinecata or Cinecata? Cinecita, I think. Something like that. Cinecita? Something like that. Wherever Fellini shot most of his stuff. Anyway, most of... Cinecita. Roma, I think. We sound like a couple of guys trying to order off an Italian restaurant menu. I think it was Cinecita Roma, though. I think. I'm just looking it up. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I um, oh, oh yeah, it is. It is Cinecita Studios yeah. in the cinema, yeah. Roma. <laughs> Roma. So yeah, it's the capital of Italian cinema. Yeah, Cinecita, yeah there you go. or Cinema City, which is what the translation would be, of course. Um, I love when Clint and uh, and Van Cleef get together, and and Clint with that little half smirk, he says to uh, Mortimer, says to the partnership, <laughs> with no tricks, of course. Yeah, <laughs> with no tricks, of course. Yes, and you know, of course, that it was opposite day uh, in that <laughs> yeah, yeah. in that hotel, that saloon. Yeah. I always thought his that. fingers were crossed behind his arm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Behind his back there. Um, I noticed in the first two films, more so in the first two than the third one, that Leone likes to shoot nighttime with a lot of blues. It's to the extent where I think Brega even has like blue spray painted in his fucking beard. I noticed because <laughs> there's one scene when he tilts his head up and you can see like blue paint in it. Yeah, yeah, it does look like um, blue paint. You're right. Um, <laughs> what's this say? Oh, Clint in the end of this film does the greatest, you know, wrestling that used to have the, the special guest referee. Yeah, yeah. It's like the greatest special guest refereeing in the history of cinema. Yeah. Um, and it's got a great reveal at the end that adds a lot of depth to the film, which I don't want to get into here. Obviously. Yeah, which, so, that's the amazing thing about that. The amazing thing about that is he wraps up a whole movie in like two lines of dialogue, and it doesn't need. And and you know what? It's enough right there that. Even if you could have played it literally or you could have played it with more depth that he adds. And either way, it's just as satisfying. It's, it's typical Leone. I mean, he'll take, he'll, he'll play with you like the foreplay thing. He'll play with you for two hours. And then, in the la- and then for, it's a two-hour and 11-minute movie. In the last maybe five minutes, he gives you the reasoning behind the whole thing. Yep. And it's like, holy shit. And it just makes, it makes total sense. Oh, for sure. It's amazing. Um, let me kick it over to you for make or breaks. All right. Uh, so my MVT is uh, this is Van Cleef's movie for me. I know some people would argue that Angel Eyes is a pretty great character, and I'm not going to lie, it's a great fucking character, but Colonel Mortimer is Van Cleef to me. He always will be. Uh, make or break, uh, the initial meeting of Eastwood and Van Cleef. I, I love that uh, the playfulness of the, uh, the, uh, the stepping on the boots, the shooting of the hats, the punch in the face, and then, of course, you know, afterwards that they're just sitting around having some whiskey and a smoke to the partnership, right? So there you go that, that if anybody ever wants to see how large william and the samurai get along off off uh podcast that's how we get along we're like van cleef and and uh <laughs> manko i don't know which one this is Manco. i'm not manko because i need my right hand for extracurricular activities so there we go <laughs> nice uh, and my score for this film is a nine out of ten uh i love this film uh, i've always loved it uh, and i always will argue that it's the best of the trilogy it's not the most popular of the trilogy and it's not the most popular opinion but I think if anybody really loves the trilogy, they love this one the most, I would say. So uh, I think it's the perfect length and it's got the perfect setup and everything. I think it's just, I think it's the best of the best. There's better shots and better stuff well done in the next film. But to me, this is the purest of the, of the, of the trilogy, the purest story was. All right, see what you got. Make or break is the hot scene, that, that first meeting, that whole thing, the machismo, the camaraderie, everything we love about these films and that, those moments. Uh, MVT is just leaving Cleveland Clint's um, converging paths and their camaraderie and their their relationship. It's one of those things, the bromance, or yeah, the, yeah. the father figure, the mentoring. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's great, and it, it's mentoring without. But Clint has a few tricks of his own up his sleeve, so yeah, it's not like yeah. he's. 
total student. He's a total greenhorn. He's mm-hmm. got enough up his sleeve, too. My score for the film's just slightly lower than yours. It's an 8.75 out of 10. This is an excellent film that I think when a lot of people think about the trilogy, they, they obviously mention Good, the Bad, the Ugly, which, you know, is probably more iconic to the masses. But I think, um, you know, whether it's a, a better film or not is, is up for debate, certainly. It's yes. a closer call than most people would say. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I, some strange reason I don't know why, but a few, for a few dollars more, it always seems to get lost in the shuffle, and I always think it's for me. I always think it's the strongest. I don't know why that is, but you know, you got the beginnings and then you got the epic at the end, but that one in the middle just seems like it works so perfectly. So, yes, no, uh, it might be the best. Uh, yeah. I don't know where I feel up with that, but uh, we'll see what your scores. Gonna, we'll see what your scores oh, say. Oh, I said eight point seven five. Yeah, okay. Well, you said eight point seven five for that. You said seven point seven five for the other one. So we'll see what the score is for the good, bad, ugly when you get to it. We'll roll yes. right into the good, bad, the ugly. Uh, instead of taking a break, we'll just roll right into it. And uh, let me give you a plot synopsis here. Good, the bad, the ugly, or il buno, il bruto, il cattivo. <laughs> I don't know why when I speak Italian, it comes off as uh, like fucking uh, that guy, that one comedian I can't stand that sounds like uh, Bill from LOTC. I can't remember what That one fucking comedian, Emo Phillips. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, didn't someone say Bill sounded like him? <laughs> yeah, that's why I said that. I, I never yeah. I never ever actually thought Bill sounded like that until somebody said it. <laughs> No, I know. Me neither. I didn't think of it until then. Uh, well, anyway, this is from 66. Uh, this is a bounty hunting scam joins two men in an uneasy alliance against a third in a race to find a fortune in gold buried in a remote cemetery. Very simple, but boy, is this film epic. Uh, so let's hear what you got to say about arguably one of the most iconic films in modern cinema, I would say. Yeah, this one, whether you like it the most or not, is the most iconic of the three in terms of the masses, in terms of society. This film... I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who likes or even casually enjoys movies who doesn't know this film and at least know the setup or the music. Yes. I mean, it is that iconic. And it's kind of, you know, when you're starting to get Leone really at the height of his powers, um, a lot of the stuff that become Leone tropes, uh, we really start to see. Um, Whoa. Whoa. Hey, no, I, I didn't think it was that. that, uh, somebody, that uh, must be somebody uh, delivering some mail or something. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't think it was that. Um, uh, but what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, divisive over a statement. Sorry, uh, that dog. Uh, I, I, I hope that doesn't scare people like that one time on Show Show when that dog barked and I almost had a heart attack. <laughs> oh, yeah, no kidding. Um, yeah, so this, I mean, the music and everything's been set up. It's been used so many times. And, you know, I get the close ups and the eyes. And this is when we really start to see the faces are as craggy and weather beaten as the landscape in the films. Yes. You know, it's it's really great. And the thing I love that he does in this is when you can tell it's not just a guy who's skilled, but it's a guy who's got confidence in his skill and the bravado to pull it off. Like um, the moment when uh, it opens up with each of them and it opens up and it freezes and it says the ugly and it's written in like lasso rope. Yeah, that is a great opening for a character. He jumps out a window. He's got a scowl on his face. And he's holding a fucking turkey leg. <laughs> yeah, just fantastic. And, it, and it's got that wah, wah, wah. Yeah. And, and it's so great. I mean, it's one of those things you hear it so much, but... To see it in the context of the film again, really, it is great. Well, the, the confidence um, he has to have a character actor stand in front of the camera first, and that's a Canadian actor. I can't remember his name, but uh, he steps in front of the He's not even a main actor in the film. He steps in front of the camera first, mm-hmm. and, and you linger on these close-ups of his face. That confidence right there tells you that Leone tells the stories the way he wants to tell them. He doesn't care what anybody else says. That's right. And in, in, Hollywood, they would, it, in Hollywood, they would have said, you got to open with Clint. you got to open with Eli Wallach. you got to open with Van Cleef. You can't open with Joe Blow. You know? yeah. He says, fuck that. I'm opening with Joe Blow. Joe Hockey, Puck. Yeah. Well, so to uh, speak, yeah. <laughs> uh, funny, we see Fernando, the boy from the second one, back again, a few, like a year older. He plays the son of the guy in the opening. Nice. 
Um, I think, you know, one of the things I find interesting, especially because I watched these back to back to back this time and I'd never done that. Yeah, it's that was... very interesting and I think a bit of a gamble on Leone's part that pays off mm-hmm. uh, to cast Mortimer, uh, of course, Lee Van Cleef, as, as the bad. Yeah. Uh, and at first, like when I was watching it, even though I'd seen these films a handful of times each, I just I kind of had to stop saying to myself, that's not Mortimer. Yeah. So, like, don't yeah. be surprised at what he's doing. Yeah, let you me, know, let me ask you this. This is one of my notes, actually. So let me ask you this. Uh, what does the title really mean to you? I mean, is good really good? I'm, I'm talking about the names of the characters and how he names them. Is good really good? Is bad really bad? Or is ugly really ugly? You know, that, I think that's a very interesting question that I'd never thought about, but I think gives a lot of meaning because I think, I think you know, with this film, we get the... Especially um, because we see this stuff with the war, and there's a very clear statement uh, on the futility of war and... Uh, on the tragedy and the loss of life uh, that these young men have uh, in fighting in the war. Yes. Uh, so I think it, yes. it could refer certainly more to life, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because it kind of, you know, it's all-encompassing. It could be referring to the characters and how, really, who's good, who's bad, and who's ugly. That's a matter of perspective, quite frankly. Yeah, you're right. That's um, what I'm saying. I mean, to me, the good, Clint Eastwood's character, is not really a very good person. No. Uh, the bad, while bad, he really is more ugly than bad. And the ugly, in a lot of ways, to me, is kind of good. It's it's really yeah. strange. It's really strange. No, you're right. The ugly is is certainly good. I mean, he, he's a bit sleazy, but is yeah. he really any sleazier than Clint? If anything, you could argue that Clint's sleazy in him because Clint, Clint and him have a, a gentleman's agreement, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and Clint's the one that fucks him over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, for those of you who've seen the film, you'll know what we're talking about. But, I mean, really, yeah. it's weird that Clint got the but, – but, again, I, I think it's Leone playing with the audience. It's what he liked to do. You know, I think he liked to play with us, and you know, he called it the good, the bad, the ugly. And unlike uh, uh, Kim Ji Woon's film with the good, the bad, the weird, where I think every character was exactly what he said. Yes, absolutely. So this one is actually kind of playing on our, on our, on our what our the, thoughts of actual good, bad, and ugly actually are. Expectations cinematically and also uh, in life, I think, to a mm-hmm. to a lesser degree. Yep. Um, and then, of course, the introduction of the bad with the guitar. It's also great. I, I always love that in films. When you get that freeze frame in the introduction of a character. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it. Um, I got to say, you know, uh, I'm going to kind of reveal something here. This film, and this is really, I think, uh, my MVT is not this person and that being Eli Wallach but he comes mighty close man I mean he to, to be with Van Cleef and fucking Clint in this film yep. and for me when I was watching it this time to think to myself you know he was really like he was really really fantastic in this film you know there's a funny story behind that Clint Eastwood didn't really want to do this movie and the reason why is because he thought the Tuco character was the star of the movie and by this yeah, time, Clint, was, by this yeah. time, Clint Eastwood had started to build up a reputation. He wanted to be a, you know, he wanted to be a movie star. He wanted to be successful, mm-hmm. and he felt like he was going to be taking a back seat to Tuco. And Leone assured him that wasn't the case. But of course, the film came out, and let's be honest, this is Eli Wallach's movie. It is, and you almost could see that if Clint had been, if it had been someone else other than Clint, it would feel even more like Eli Wallach's movie. But it's because we've become invested in the quote-unquote man with no name mm-hmm. uh, or Clint that we kind of almost through default give more emphasis either through perception being reality or not yeah to it being more of an equal split between the two i'd say it almost feels like uh uh for like a 40 40 20 split 40 40 for a good and the bad or good and the ugly yeah but the bad kind of getting a little bit less screen time but no this really is tuco's film and i think if it hadn't been clint you would have felt even more like tuco's film yeah i think that uh i actually read somewhere that actually when eastwood talked about doing this with sergio 
he actually wanted to do the Tuco part, which just seems ludicrous in hindsight. <laughs> it does. It just wouldn't have worked. It just it, he couldn't have played anything but the good in this. Yeah, Eastwood overacting. I've I've thought about this in his career. I don't think there's ever been a movie where he seriously overacts. I don't think he can do it. No, he doesn't. He's always playing it real cool, man. That's why we love him. Um, yeah, that's true. Again, we we kind of see that humor when. They got an arrangement, and you know Eli's about to hang, and and I love the laundry list of crimes presented against him before he's about to hang. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just everything you is that, can imagine. Is, is that the one where he makes the growling face at the lady, and she's like, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's really like, great, hilarious." It's really great. Um, I love the uh, the scene when Wallach kind of gets in from the desert, and uh, he's in- inspecting all these gadget guns, and he's he's exhausted. He's been out in the desert. He's been fucked over. Mm-hmm. He's burned. His lips are cracked. He's utterly dehydrated, but he is so bent on one thing, and that's a burning desire for revenge that before he gets much water and any food in him, he's looking for a gun to kill the man who fucking wronged him. Yes. Yeah, you know I the just, great thing about Eli Walk? Eli Walk, for those who don't know, he's a, he's a, a method actor. Yeah. And uh, Leone was very nervous about working with him because he didn't like method actors. Uh, because, I mean, how do you go into a kind of like a Mexican bandit? I mean, what do you have for research? Not a whole lot. And mm-hmm. Eli Wallach's a very Jewish man who played a lot of Mexicans, oddly enough. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway. Yeah, that's uh, right, in, uh, in Magnificent Seven, yeah, I think, yeah, as well. Yeah, and uh, he, uh, he knew nothing about guns. But in testament to Eli Wallach and the fact that he's a method actor, like Robert De Niro and some other method actors, you would never know that he doesn't know anything about guns in that scene. I mean, he absolutely, mm-hmm. I don't even know if, he knew n- absolutely nothing outside of what a props department gun was. He knew nothing. But in that scene, you think he's like this, he's an expert. He's sizing all them up, looking at them, spinning the barrels, the yeah. checking the chambers, he's doing all this stuff. Um, well, he, puts I it up, he puts it up to his ear, which is my favorite moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it shows he's not just a buffoon. Yes. I think you have to establish that he's not just a buffoon. Yeah. Right? Because he acts like um, one most of the movie, but he's actually yeah. very conniving and very smart. That's right. Uh, his, his survival instincts outstrip maybe his IQ. Yes, exactly. You know, uh, I love that Eli, he's so disgusted with Clint that over and over throughout the film, uh, <laughs> he calls him a pig. <laughs> yeah. It's, just, it's really funny. It's just such a thing that someone was just so disgusted with someone would call him the pig. Um, yeah. And of course, we see payback to the pig as a, as a bitch, desert, uh, you know, desert style No, yeah. Um, and there's a line in that that I didn't realize uh, at the, until now when I was watching it. The line when he says to him, if you save your breath, a man like you can make it. You know what's funny? You know who used that line was uh, in Creepshow, the, the segment Something to Tide You Over? Ah, yes. Leslie Nielsen says that to Ted Danson, and I never knew what that was from. I never even thought it was from anything. Oh, nice. So I rewatched this. That makes sense. I, I, can, because, because I never thought of he's buried up to his neck, and yeah. he says that. Yeah. Yeah, um, oh, that scene fucking freaks me out. I hate that scene, that movie, man, because I have a natural fear of water, and the idea of being buried up to my neck in sand where I couldn't move, and water and the tide coming toward my face, just the ideas of that freaks me out. Oh, yeah. Oof. Um, I love that, you know, you have to be good, but you also have to be lucky, and you have to be opportunistic, I think, mm-hmm. to do what Clint does, and he's given a great moment where he seizes the opportunity to save his own life. He pulls a rabbit out of his hat. Yes. Which I have to think that scene, through the book and through the film... Uh, when Tuco first stumbles onto the guys is very reminiscent of No Country or No Country is very reminiscent of that. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree. Um, you know, I love that, uh, you know, as this film goes on and Clint's been able to give himself a lifeline, um, that Eli, is, he's kind of begging him, coaxing him, playing nice. And <laughs> it, it's really great to see him kind of rubbing his hair and, you know, the, the faux kind of concern for Clint's well-being. And, 
you know, yeah. it's really, really great. Um, and I think it's interesting in this too that, like you said about the bad, that uh, Van Cleef's bad really isn't simply Black Hat. He's not really. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is the worst of the three, I would say, but yeah. he's he's not out and out just bad. You know, uh, there, there's more to it than there's more complexities than that. Um, very, very. Talk about feline like in this film. He's even more feline like, almost feline oh, yeah. and snake like. This is the one, the black cat man, yeah. the gato negro. Yeah. Uh, I love kind of the it comes again kind of meta the cavalry symphony that's playing as Tuco's getting beaten. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I think you know the only was good enough at this point that we kind of see him like I said being more playful as the trilogy has evolved and you know whether it was through the strings and the wah wah or the yeah. juice harp or whatever it is yeah, little yeah. little things some of the editing the stuff he does it was enough that he he was kind of playing a little bit we kind of knew what beats he was going to follow. Um, and we kind of understood Leone that he was able to kind of play with his fans a little bit that way. A little bit of playfulness. Um, yep. I love that in this, they don't really just focus on Clint. That would have been the easy thing to do. But like we said, Tuco and even um, Van Cleef's character, um, I was going to say Mortimer, of course. Angel uh, Angel Eyes. Yeah. Uh, we get three different men, three different styles, three different you know uh, life experiences that they bring to the table here and three different ways of handling a very similar situation. Um, there's a pretty brutal rock beating. We're talking about Brega. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, with a stunt where someone had to have rolled an ankle jumping off that train. Ooh, yeah. I mean, there, someone got hurt uh, filming that. There's a moment uh, with a train where you see a step go by Eli Wallach's head. And yeah. he, Eli Wallach off screen, I do know this for a fact, he was furious with Leone about that well, scene because he did not know about the step. And well, he was moment, fucking it's, furious. It's actually a morbidly kind of humorous moment when the train severs some handcuffs. Yes. And, man, I'll tell you, I don't know how, like, if that was for real or what it was, but that was a, like, that that's a pulse-pounding moment. He really did put his arms on the train rail and have it sever some handcuffs. I mean, that is real. Yeah. No, and was uh, he wasn't happy to do it anyway, but then the step goes by, and supposedly off-camera, there was some major, major drama going on. I can imagine there would be. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what else must have caused major drama amongst the women on set was getting to see the sudsy cheeks of Wallach. <laughs> yes. Eli, Finally, like, I, and I, and I, I, I career he's had. He's been naked in a lot of films. I remember him in Your, playing, sitting in a bucket of oil, trying to melt his own penis off. Or no one oh, Your, wow. no one Your was that fucking Circle of Iron film with that. Uh, oh yeah, David, David Carradine. Carradine. Yeah, that was yeah. that one. And he was trying to get rid of his penis. He was trying to burn it off, and he's sitting there trying to burn off his penis. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's had a weird career, Eli Wallach, man. And yeah, it's weird because he's so old, man. And then he popped up. I just watched that movie Ghost Rider with the, the Roman Polanski film. He's in that. He just pops up oh, still to great. this day. He's great, man. Yep. Um, you know, the great thing I'm kind of thinking about the, the, the concept of gray hat is that it kind of keeps us off balance and not knowing who's doing what or why they're doing it. And there's not really any face value and there's a lot of gambling and having faith and trust in, in the characters and in the characters in each other or, you know, it's kind of like that thing that the, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't, which is kind of why we see yeah. Blondie and Tuco stick together a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you get that really, really stunning locale. Uh, with the blues and the weapons and everything else, with the cavalry, which was really great, and the bridge, and that's when we kind of see that um, that moment um, when they kind of come face to face with the horror and futility of war that I really, really liked. And yeah. you know, I have to say, I got chills up my spine. I've seen it, you know, a handful of times before, but when Ecstasy of Gold starts playing in the cemetery, oh man, it'll blow you away but every time. For, man. for for many reasons, for that reason, and then of course because the tie-in with our show. Yes, I mean, certainly. It, it, to me, it's always the piece of music. Uh, I remember when we first started the show, we used the Goblin thing, 
And yep. we just wanted to do something different, you know, and that's why we used the Goblin thing. And I love the Goblin thing. But then when I heard this remix of The Ecstasy of Gold, I thought, because I always thought The Ecstasy of Gold was the song for us. But I didn't want to yep. use the proper one because it's kind of slow and it's not really much of an mm-hmm. intro. And then I saw this commercial with this remix and I was like, oh, we got to use that. And I ran across Will and was like, yeah, let's go ahead and use it. So we used yeah. it. But also to add to that, that, that scene where you come up over the thing and you see all that stuff going on and the cavalry and all that stuff, that is prototypical Leone. He loved to use a crane where he'd start low, where there'd be like two or three characters. And then he, mm-hmm. the characters would walk forward and then he'd crane up. And then it'd be just like the most gigantic set you've ever fucking seen. Well, that's what uh, Kim Ji Woon does a little bit in uh, Good, the Bad, the Weird. Yes, yes. It's that yeah. scaling up, and you scale up, and all of a sudden you got thousands of extras. And you're thinking, oh. Jesus, this movie must have cost a billion dollars. Of course, it only cost like $1.2 at the time. but Which, yeah, okay, you know, even though it was 40 years, still it seems like so like minor. <laughs> yeah, I know it does, doesn't you know, it? For something of this scale and scope. Um, I had to laugh that poor Tuco must have lamented at the lack of an alphabetized cemetery. Oh God! You know, I always think but, about, but 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 it works well for cinema though because you got that oh, yeah. those whip pans, and and not only does he whip pan, sometimes he just whips, he just keeps whipping just to disorient you like Tuco is. As Devo would say, he truly did whip it good. Yeah, he whipped it good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love, and like you said, it works great because I love how the camera's whipping around. It's and it's frantic. It's urgent, mm-hmm. and he's kind of you know, and then even in the bullpen uh, of like the 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 ring of sorts. With the three leads at the end, that that iconic showdown, when it, it starts cutting faster and faster to each man in his eyes and his hands and his eyes and his hands, it's going yep. faster and faster, and he's looking at him and he's looking at him and yeah, Tarantino calls that the greatest uh, fifteen or twenty minutes of cinema ever put to screen. It is it is sublime, absolutely sublime, um, and you know there's that great line that you put in our our beginning when uh, Clint says to uh, <laughs> the two guys, "There are two kinds of people in the world: those who dig." Yeah. And those who have guns, I would say those who dig. Those, and those, those who have guns and those who dig. And he goes, you dig. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which I think Eli Wallach actually said something similar to him earlier in the film. So it's kind of like a, a payback. And there's a few of those back and forth with them. And I love, there's just one to end the film. There's just that one last well-time, wah-wah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. That's, that's what's so iconic about it. I mean, everybody, even if nobody's seen the movie, they know the They know that, that howl. They know that. Oh yeah. No matter what, I don't care. Even young children know it. They'll, they'll yep. see something like their parents will go, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" You know, something like that, and everybody's like, "Oh, oh for sure. it's good, the bad, the ugly." You ever seen it? No, no, I actually haven't. My mother-in-law, who's not a film fan at all, a uh, very religious lady, not a big film fan at all. I was watching this one time at my wife's house. Uh, we were killing some time or something. And I had the DVD with me in my bag, and I put it in just to watch it, to kill some time. And she heard it walking by, and she's like, "Oh, the good, the bad, the ugly." And I was like, "Oh, have you ever seen it?" She's like, "Nope." That's funny. <laughs> that's how icon- that's how iconic this movie is. You know, it's one of those. So, okay, is that all your notes? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, absolutely. Okay, okay so uh, obviously, with most fans, this is the best of the bunch for most, and it's it's arguable. I can see why a lot of people like it. I mean, it does have a lot of great moments, a lot of great comedic moments. Eli Wallach really chewing it up, like he's just pestering, like he beats the hell out of that chicken when he's plucking it. Uh, it's understandable why it's so popular, and also I think it's maybe so popular because I'll be honest with you, when I was growing up, this was on like TNT all the time. Oh, yeah. And whereas a few dollars more, to be honest with you, I had to actually go out and hunt down for a few dollars more. So I'm starting to think that might be the reason why for a few dollars more kind of gets overlooked sometimes. Somehow Ted Turner got the rights to the good, the bad, the ugly very quickly, and he would play this thing almost every other weekend for like, you know, and it would be four hours long because it would be on Turner, you know, cable. So, you know, but my dad would always watch it. So there you go. <laughs> uh, this film was actually the only answer to the myriad amounts of spaghetti westerns being made. He was actually starting to get irritated with the quality of the spaghetti westerns that Italy, Italy was making. 
you know, they went from, you know, just a few in the beginning. And then, of course, you know, he influenced a lot and him and Corbucci influenced a lot. Then all of a sudden they were making like 60 and 70 a year. And uh, most of those, not good. So <laughs> I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen a lot of really bad spaghetti westerns. So I know that there was a lot. But he was pretty upset that it was kind of getting ran in the ground. He felt like it was going through the same thing that America did with the western because he loved the western growing up in the 30s 40s whatnot and uh then they kind of ran it in the ground in the 50s and and he felt like you know he revitalized it and then they they started italy uh, like within five years was already running it right back into the ground so yeah uh, which the italian cinema world we all kind of know that kind of happened they would kind of jump on something like uh post-apocalyptic movies or uh crime movies or something and they would just you know they'd they'd ring that wet wash rag until it was dry brother Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's what they did, you know. That's what I always think of when I think of Italian cinema. It's like, hey, we got this new idea for a genre. I'm like, okay, here's here's the wet wash rag of an idea, and now let's have 16 of your greatest directors just ring this motherfucker until it's completely dry. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what it always seemed like to me. But, hey, I love the Italian cinema for that reason. Uh, some of the best shots ever in cinema, I would argue, are in this movie. Uh, I will not say that I do not. I, I don't like this movie as much as I like part two, but I cannot argue that some of the most iconic movie shots ever put to film are in this movie uh just the magnitude of the close-ups the backgrounds uh leone had a natural knack for telling story through visuals that uh it's it's hard to believe it. it's it's hardly ever been matched really and uh there's a few out there i would argue that can do it but i mean you could literally turn down the sound of a of a leone movie and you could still keep up with the film i think this one maybe not as much as a little bit more plot to this one than the other two but i think you could still keep up with it just visually Without uh, yeah. stuff, even though he loves sound and score and everything, you talked about Leon uh, Wallach's entrance, Van Cleef's entrance. I love them both. I even love uh, Clint Eastwood's entrance. He just kind of comes out of nowhere, uh, mm-hmm. which is pretty great. Uh, we talk about the Van Cleef, and you know, the Italians basically made Van Cleef, and uh, that's really great and stuff. Eastwood, you know, he had himself and uh, Don Siegel to help him, but really, Italian cinema, uh, Van Cleef was made by Italian cinema. In my opinion, I mean, uh, he's always going to be known for that. I mean, he was in all those other westerns, but he was always, you know, like Lee Marvin's henchman or somebody else's henchman or somebody else's, you know, whatever. But they really appreciated him for what he was. And even though the other westerns he made there with other directors weren't as good quality-wise as the two he made with Leone, uh, I still think that he is – I don't know. I don't know how you feel about this. Well, I don't know if I've ever asked you who is the spaghetti western actor. That's a tough actor? question. Yeah, who is the actor you most associate with the Spaghetti Western? Oh, Clint Eastwood. Okay. Absolutely. For me, it's Van Cleef. Yeah. And the reason being is that Eastwood, you know, would go on and kind of rediscover himself again with Don Siegel when he did Dirty Harry. And he kind of became the police films. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He kind of became something else. Now, Van Cleef, unfortunately, never went into the crime films. I don't think he ever did a Euro crime. He, he might have done he, a couple. He, he did Mean Frank and Crazy Tony, but he was, I remember actually, I think um, Mike. Uh, uh, Mike was talking about it uh, when I spoke to him about Van Cleef. I think he might have even said it in our in our show, um, Mike Malloy. That is uh, that Van Cleef was so resistant to anything other than westerns. It's kind of like he was like all he knew. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he he just kind of stayed with it even a little too longer than he should have. Yeah, yeah. I know he did some macaroni combat stuff. I do know that, but it seems like yeah, he wouldn't get out of the western. It seemed like it may, maybe that was just his comfort zone. Maybe that's where he knew he was good, and that's simple as that. Which can't really argue about it. So, uh, but uh, yeah, for me, I mean, it, it's a, it's a, for me, it's like Van Cleef, Eastwood, and then uh, Nero. Those are the three for me. Nero's for sure in the conversation. So absolutely for me, but I mean, I can understand Eastwood over Van Cleef. I can, that that can go either way. Uh, of course, Eastwood is basically responsible for making the spaghetti western popular. 
no doubt that's why that. I kind of give it to him yeah. his legacy I think a little bit more but I mean yeah. you look at Death Rides a Horse that's that was another great kind of uh, father son or uncle yeah. nephew kind of uh, mentor thing with uh, John Philip Law yes. which I think is very indebted to few dollars more yeah it's a good point actually um, this again was shot in the same town they used for Django. The streets were less muddy, though. Of course, in Django, you know, everybody looks like they're going to tear their ankle off because the mud's like six foot mud deep. Mud is fucking <laughs> serious mud. That's, I, it just, it, that film is so filthy in so many ways, but that mud drives me crazy in that movie. Oh, yeah. And The Great Silence is similar to that, too, because there's a lot of mud in that, too, with all that melted snow. Oh, yeah. Um, throughout the whole series, you know, women are not treated well, and that kind of carries on through this film. Uh, of course, you know, it seems like Leone had a very Madonna whore thing going the whole time. Uh, you know, some women he you know appreciated and stuff, and some he didn't. Which reminds me, in that first film, you know that like those those characters, that mother, the father, and that child, they're all kind of they're all kind of they're basically supposed to supposedly. I don't really I never picked this up on my own, but I've read that supposedly they're like the holy family, Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. I supposedly, have got that. supposedly, I don't know, but uh, I don't remember them. They ever say their names and things, but supposedly that's what was going on there. Who knows? Hmm. You have to go back and look at it really closely to find out. This film does become Wallach's film, and again, I said Eastwood saw this was going on, and it's quite possibly the reason why they ended their partnership, Leone and Eastwood. Uh, they did get along, but uh, by this point, Eastwood wanted to move on to different things, and Leone it was starting to want to move on to different things. Leone wanted to come to America after this film and do Once Upon a Time in America. But, of course, he came to America, and they said, hey, would you like to do another Western? And he's like, well, no, I'd like to do Once Upon a Time in America. And they're like, hey, would you like to do another Western? <laughs> yeah. So... He didn't really want to do it, but thankfully he did because I think you know his last western was the not his last western, but his second to last western I believe was the definitive statement. The Ducky Sucker thing kind of came on by accident. I think he had somebody else was actually doing Ducky Sucker, and he was producing it, and it was getting out of hand, so he jumped in there. I, I do enjoy. It. I think it's quite good. Yeah, quite good. It's weird in his filmography, though. You know, don't you think? And of course, the score to it we always joke about. Uh, you know, the Sean Sean. Uh, <laughs> we always laugh about it and stuff, but it's weird in his filmography because like he really makes a statement that Once Upon a Time in the West, like here, this is the fucking spaghetti western. Let's see somebody else top this motherfucker. Now I've always felt that way. I'm like, it's like it's like the foot stamp. It's like this is the spaghetti western. Let's see what else you guys can do. Of course, nobody could ever compete with it in my opinion, but uh, you know, Ducky Sucker's a different type of take. I like I like it too. It's a uh, got some nice different type of sensibilities to it and stuff. And of course, I like Once Upon a Time in America too. I just think it gets lost in itself and lost in kind of Leone's passion to make it. He wanted to make that thing for like fifteen years, twenty years. Finally, he got a chance, and I don't think he could edit it. I don't think he could get rid. He was in love with it too much. So yeah. I, I think that's what his problem was. He kind of fell in love with it too much. And then unfortunately, you know, he wasn't around anymore. Um. Pastili, we didn't talk about Pastili at all, but he is really great as Tuco's brother in this. And there's some really good scenes between two, uh, Wallach and Pastili, man. Oh, absolutely. Some really like tearful brothers' anger, you know, toward each other about their parents and how one went the path of uh, you know religion, the other one went the path of the bandit. Uh, some good stuff there. Some really good stuff there. That would have been a great movie. This Pastili and uh, Wallach in a film by themselves. That would have been a great film, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. it absolutely would have. Uh, this film is, of course, a true epic, to say the least. Uh, maybe... Obviously, the most epic of this trilogy, but it's a fucking epic, man. I mean, it really is. It's three hours long. And uh, in some ways, it doesn't feel like three hours, but after you watch the trilogy, like me and Will had to watch it this past week, I think you really started to feel the length of this one. I know you did. And I have yeah, to admit, I, I watched it the, uh, the other night, Sunday night, and I was really starting to feel it about an hour and a half into this one. I was really starting to feel uh, Leone overload. <laughs> oh, no, I was too, and, and that's why I took a break and watched the last... I think 
fifty minutes the next day and was re-energized. Yes, yes, because they're great films, but you can oversaturate like any like any style. If I was to sit around and just watch Yellows for twenty four hours a day, eventually I'd be like, this is the worst fucking genre ever created. You so would. Fu- I'm so sure. fucking sick and tired of this fucking genre. But that's the great thing that's, about genres is that you can walk away and come back. That's the great thing about our show. Yep. Uh, the last twenty twenty five minutes, I know Tarantino has said that they're the best cinema he thinks ever. Uh, I, I would argue that they are some of the best, and it's easily some of the most influential. I mean, the three-way gunfight has come up over and over again. John Woo Cinema, Quentin Tarantino, uh, Robert Rodriguez, uh, all these guys that are influenced, the video geeks that grew up with the... I don't know if John Woo's considered a video geek. He's not really, but hey, uh, you know, all these guys that grew up with this kind of cinema, it's totally inspired by a lot of this stuff, so... I think it's really, really good stuff, man. And uh, the, you know, he began the circle thing, and for a few dollars more, and here he he punctuates it, and and then he would punctuate some stuff even more with Once Upon a Time in the West. It, Leone is really one of those great directors who you can see because he only made a limited amount of movies. You can really see him grow. That's one of the great things about filmmakers who don't make a lot of movies is that you can sometimes see them grow before your eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Leone's one of those filmmakers. You know, you could see in the beginning he was experimenting, and then for a few dollars more he got a little braver. By the time he got to the good, the bad, the ugly, he was pretty confident. And then by the time he gets to Once Upon a Time in the West, he's like, look, this is this is who I am. Take it or leave it, but this is the way this movie's going to be. And I've heard some people complain, you know, Once Upon a Time in the West, it's slow, but that's Leone. That's the way he told stories. He told stories that way. So he was just totally confident in who he was and what he, what he had become. And uh, I, I love him for that, quite frankly. I wish he'd have been more. I wish he'd have been more prolific, but at the same time, if it would have diminished the quality of the movies he made, I'm I'm happy that he only made what he made. So, because I mean, I, I, Once Upon a Time in America is arguably the only film in his that I consider truly flawed, completely. I mean, uh, yeah, I think Ducky Sucker works great in its own terms. It's it's kind of got that Tuco. Um, yeah, it does. Tuco, you know, with the Steiger doing it, and <laughs> yeah. you know, it's got the motorbike and the dynamite. It actually, it's really good. No, I think yeah, America's the only one of his that I can say is flawed. Not not to say that they are perfect, but uh, you can feel the flaws and the bloat yeah. a little bit. Yeah, it's but good. It's still a very good film. Yeah, it's good. It's good, and it's got a great cast. But it's it's yeah. just not it's just not what you would expect. So, but anyway, I mean, uh, that's all I really got to say on Good, the Bad, the Ugly. I mean, it's a great film. I just don't think it's as good as the second one. But I still think this is a great movie. So let's hear what your scores, MVTs, and make or breaks are. Uh, make or break the cemetery. I mean, how can you not go with the cemetery, man? It's yeah. just my, my make or break is the same. All about the ending. Yeah, really fantastic. This is MVT's Leone, man. As much as like I said, I wanted to go with Tuco. Yeah. Because Wallach nails it. And and should be said, Eastwood isn't bad. He's great. And and so is Van Cleef. But, yeah. you know, yeah. really, it's Leone kind of really at the height of what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, my score for the film is a 9.25. Um, like I said, between the second one and this one, I kind of wrestle back and forth with which one I like more. Uh, but I just think in the end, this one feels a little more iconic to me. And. Yeah, I just, oh, man, it's just a really wonderful film, man. And like I said, I love that he adds a little bit of that futility of war stuff that we didn't see from him too much, which I think right. you know, has a pretty poignant moment with, uh, with that, that general or that, that uh, colonel or whatever, whatever his role was when he was on his death. I really like that. And I like that, that men that deal in death like uh, Clinton um, and Tuco, that there's moments when they see these dead young men that it kind of hits them and you, 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 they understand from their perspective, how what a waste it all is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, my make or break also, like I said, it's all about the ending. That's what I wrote down here, four words, and that's the truth. I mean, this thing ends possibly better than any film ever made. 
uh, we talk about endings a lot, and endings are always the trickiest. I've heard a lot of filmmakers, writers, everybody say the ending is the hardest part. I mean, a great writer to me, like Stephen King, who writes great pop horror novels, he has a hell of a time ending his stories. Oh, he does. And uh, it's his biggest flaw, in my opinion. And uh, a lot of filmmakers I love, their biggest flaw is ending movies. It's, it's really tough coming up with an ending that really kind of punctuates everything. But this film, arguably, the one of the best punctuation marks on cinema ever made. Seriously. Uh, my MVT is also Leone. This is all about him. This is him coming to his own. Uh, he would, again, perfect it even more one more film after this. But this is really him saying, you know, this is who I am and this is who I'm going to be. And if it takes me three hours to tell the story, then it takes me three hours. And yeah. uh, obviously it works because people love this film. They absolutely do. They love it. Uh, my score for the film is an 8.5. Uh, I love it. I think it's a near masterpiece. I think it, it struggles in some spots with some pacing, but, I mean, I love it. I mean, I really do. I mean, for me, it goes for a few dollars more, good, the bad, the ugly, and then fistful. And I guess for you, it goes good, bad, the ugly, for a few dollars more, and then fistful. I think we can safe, safely say that with all due respect to fistful, it's a good film. The other two really are transcendent in the genre. Yeah. Yeah, fistful is a great debut. And it's okay. not really not really a debut film because I think he made Colossus of Rhodes, which was like a sword and sandal movie, which I've never seen and would die to Me see. Me neither. I need to see yeah, that. We should, <laughs> we should look it up. <laughs> yeah, we should. See, early, early Leone making sword and sandal. I don't know if Steve Reeves is in there or not, but God, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> I got a Steve Reeves pirate movie we got to do at some point. I think he's even singing in it. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it when pirates break out in a song. It's like there's nothing more ridiculous in cinema than the pirate look, but then also when the pirates start singing, it's like my favorite ridiculous thing ever. <laughs> and they clang their steins together in one scene, <laughs> and they're like, "Yo, ho, hold!" It's yeah. like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it's like one of those things in cinema. It's just like it only exists in movies because it couldn't exist anywhere else. Uh, anyway, off that topic, but yeah, you're right. Uh, uh, Fistful is is great for what it is, and it's an assured beginning to what Leone would become. Uh, arguably not his real beginning, but still, it's an assured beginning to the Leone we know. But by fist, by by for a few dollars more in the good, the bad, the ugly, he was already he was already on another path. He was already he had already transcended himself. He'd already moved on from himself and become this this enigma of a filmmaker. And he would just continue with the next film, and of course, the next two after that are a little different. But you know, I've often said that Once Upon a Time in the West is the definitive spaghetti western statement, and I still hold by that. But um, yeah, I mean. This, it's a great trilogy, man, and I'm glad everybody picked it. Uh, uh, you know, we, we, we're still going to do the other trilogy. That'll probably be our next trilogy show, as a matter of fact. Uh, but uh, I'm glad everybody picked it. Uh, sometimes it's fun to talk about these iconic films with you. Actually, it's, it's a lot of fun to spend time with friends and talking about movies that, that mean a lot to everybody. So hopefully everybody enjoyed the reviews and stuff. And it was good to actually talk these movies because I know we talked about them, but we never actually talked about them, if you know what I'm saying. So, yeah, we never really dug in. Yeah, I just, it was daunting, I think, more than anything. What can we add to the conversation that so many greats have, yeah. have said? But like I said, that's why I wanted to preface it by saying all we can do is talk about it the way we feel about it and how they impacted us personally. You know, it's, but I am glad they picked them. I mean, you know, we'll do the Schoolgirls and Trilogy, Schoolgirls and Peril Trilogy within the next probably 10, 10 episodes or so, because I really was getting excited to talk about them too. Yeah, yeah, we'll do those. We're, we're always, all of those ones you saw. They'll be done at some point in time. But I think next time we do a poll, we should just poll on a double deuce, which is going to be kind of difficult. you got to come up with like four or five double deuces. But i got like three or four I got in my pocket. So we might, um, we might yeah, poll we, on a double deuce next time. Because I had yeah. a double deuce I wanted to do for sure, but I kind of like I kind of like the interaction. And lately we haven't been doing listener content because it's been kind of difficult with our schedules and, and everything. Uh, so we apologize for that. But this is as close as we can come right now. So Yep. So if you're not a member of the board, you should be. All right. 
That is our review of the Dollars Trilogy. It was great. Good time. We're going to take a break. Come back with a massive amount of feedback. <laughs> massive. Massive. Right. So uh, we will be back right after this. Are you looking for a way to connect with people who like the things that you like? Whether it's music, movies, TV, or whatever you're into, head on over to the palaver.com forums. <clears throat> yes, yes, but, but forums and message boards are elitist and archaic. Well, yeah, maybe if you're an asshole. Palaver.com is home to all your favorite podcasts. So why not head over there now? Start talking about all the things you want to talk about. That's palaver.com. P-A-L-A-V-R.com. I kiss at last the beloved crown of my land. That I left one day with my heart, heart. That is definitely not a funky 16 corners track there. That's a little recording of Sammy in the shower there. Yes. <laughs> uh, going hardcore this morning. Uh, okay, so we have got a uh, little bit of feedback, so to say, so to speak, so to something. So let's get into it. Um, email, voicemail, you name it. We got it. This is true. This is very true. Um, so I guess I should probably start with uh, the email. Yep. yep. Or, let's see here. Burr, 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 burr. We'll pass them back and forth again. Okay. Also, that one email I sent, that tweet from Carl, I just wanted you to check out that photo when you get a chance. Yeah, absolutely. My, um, You know what? If you can actually start, only because okay. my uh, All right, I got you. account's going slow here. Got it going, got it going. Here we go. First one is from Keyboard Monkey. Um uh, he wrote a nice review of us. I don't know if we ever mentioned that on the air or not, but there's a nice review of us out there somewhere from the Keyboard Monkey, so which I really appreciate. And put a lot of work into it, by the way, too. So, uh, All right. What, you got something new? I was going to say, yeah, I mean, a lot of work, and I want to thank him for that. It was too kind. Uh, yes, it was. Certainly. So, no, I really appreciate that. I've, I've read it a few times. Yep. Uh, okay, so he writes, uh, congratulations for one of our episodes from the British Isles. Uh, I thought I needed to send in a short and sweet email for this episode, celebrating you two reaching the 100 episode mark for the podcast. Originally, I was going to do something like a top 10 of your best reviews, but to be honest, that would be that would be too it would be too difficult to compile one. Whether it is a review of an instruction video or an infamous reference to Oreos, that has <laughs> I forgot all about that. That has meant I can never look at one I'm eating the same way again. There has this has there has been so much to enjoy, as with a few other podcasts I listen to. The 100 episodes are important, and the prospect of the Man With No Name trilogy being reviewed is a perfect choice. I had discovered the film in adolescence 
through my grandmother's vast collection of westerns, and especially the for a few, especially with for a few dollars more, these films were the first to show the other factors that made films art aside from the stories, from the camera composition to the music. When I watched The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly this year for the first time in a long while, the moment Ennio Morricone's XC and Gold started playing in the cemetery sequence sent a chill down my spine like it did that first time. Sergio Leone was one of the first individuals, along with Takeshi Miike, who got me interested in films. I mean, talk about a world that is really diverse. <laughs> Takeshi Miike <laughs> and Sergio Leone, uh, who got me, uh, yeah, they got me interested in films and who made me into the cynist I am today. Uh, something that uh, probably happened to many people listening to this episode. As for the future of the podcast, I'm reminded of what Rupert said on one of the bonus episodes about being there being too many films to see in one's life. A quote that doesn't feel morbid but optimistic is, there is still so much to be enjoyed and discovered by any of one of us. A lot of the films, oh, a lot of films are left to be reviewed and covered on the show. There's still animation, more film noir, Bollywood, Nollywood, more Pinku films, more art house films, and numerous other types of films from different countries, as well as directors yet to be covered from Kinji Fukusaku to Samuel Fuller. There are probably still films out there where Henry Silva violently assaults mannequins. In films where an actor's mustache and chest hair is so powerful, Burt Reynolds and Richard Harrison would bow their heads in shame in comparison. <laughs> There's still so much left that you could reach at least 200 episodes, and hopefully if it happens, I will hopefully still be sending in an email wishing you on to the next 100 episodes then. To end this email, I would have to be an egotist and shamelessly promote myself. I have recently entered the dark and seedy world of film blogging. Having started in the last few weeks a blog called Region in- Incognito, which is at regionincognito.blogspot.com. As an outright amateur to film writing, I am, to use a metaphor, still learning to walk before I can run, but hopefully I will be able to write an informative blog. I would find it grateful if anyone posted in the comments section so on there, so, and, and shit, man, I can't read this morning. If anyone posted in the comments section on there, any, advised, uh, any advisement to improve his work? Currently, uh, I am attempting my first long-written review on Harmony Corinne's Trash Humpers, which would be posted up on there in the next week or so. With a first draft of over 3,000 words, however, I may have to cut it down unless anyone wants to me to waffle on for that amount of text. With regards, Michael, also known as the Keyboard Monkey. So, wow, 3,000 words on Trash Humpers. That's, uh, that's impressive. That's yeah. passion for film. Yeah, that's, that's GGTMC-like <laughs> in the written yeah. form there. Yeah. It certainly is. I, uh, I, love, I love what Michael says, um, you know. I think uh, whatever God you believe in, uh, whether it's yourself or a higher power, yeah. God willing, to use a term, yeah. uh, I want to do this as long as possible. And I'm pretty sure you feel the same way, Sammy. Um, you know, uh, there, it may go through kind of different uh, iterations uh, for scheduling reasons or whatever the case may be. But I know we want to keep this flame burning bright um, because we love film as much as we do. And like you said, we could do a thousand episodes and still barely scratch the surface. This is, um, this is correct. That's the beauty of film, you know. So uh, thanks for the kind words, Michael. I certainly appreciate it. Let me ask you before we move on. Did you hear the break and everything when I played it a little while ago? Did I hear? Yeah, when I played the break and everything? Because I had a cord unhooked, and, I, and we've been recording, and it looks like everything's still running fun. So. Uh, I heard that music. It uh, okay. sounded like an Italian man uh, <laughs> singing in English. Yes, he was showering outside while shaving his face. Yes, no, I certainly <laughs> heard it. Okay, okay. Or, Just, or else you would have heard, heard the whoop, like the Skype. Uh, yeah, 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 curious. Uh, that's interesting. 
I might have a yeah. I might have a cord hooked up that I've hooked up in the past that I might not actually need, which might be interesting. I'm gonna find out about that later. So Yeah, hopefully it still comes through in the episode. I don't know. We'll see. It looks like it recorded fine, so Okay, good. Um, anything to add to that? Uh, uh, no, no. I just want to say thank you, you know, for the wishes and stuff. And uh, yeah. Okay. The next one is very quickly. Uh, I want to mention this uh, from Mike Malloy. Um, if you go to twitchfilm.net and you type in the Scarlet Worm, uh, this is a, a western that he's a, kind of a really gothic uh, western he's uh, produced, or I think either executive produced or co-produced. Uh, furthermore, he stars in it. You've got a good eye. Uh, in fact, someone pointed out that he looks like a young Henry Silva yeah, yeah. <laughs> on his Facebook page. So, <laughs> um, yeah, he's got that going, and it looks pretty solid, man. Uh, I got to see the trailer a while ago, and he asked what I thought and what he thought, you know, just uh, for a little advice, which was pretty pretty humbling and and uh, flattering, um, yeah. you to know, the least. Straight to video and low-budget westerns are hard to do because westerns have such production value. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to pull that off, so I'm, I'm really interested to see this. Yeah, no, it, it it looks pretty solid, man. It's got some. I think it's one of the guys from Cutthroat Stein. It's, it's got some other people involved that I'm sure if you you dug in, you'd see had uh, were entrenched in the in filmmaking. So, uh, yes, the, the Scarlet Worm, uh, Scarlet with two T's, uh, and it's a western. Nice. It's coming out with a twist. I don't want to say too much. You can see that in the trailer, maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. So check it out. And uh, yeah. Anyway, next uh, next email is from. Oh, I also want to mention. Sorry, another reminder, and I'll read the next one after this. Uh, Deadly Prey is up on CDB. So in case any of you haven't been over there in a while, uh, they have it over there. So you don't have to pay a hundred dollars for the VHS. So. <laughs> and trust me, you want Deadly Prey. Deadly Prey is uh, GGTMC approved. <laughs> Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Um, Although okay. this this next person might not want uh, Deadly Prey. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, <laughs> we'll see. Just you know, ju- judge. I'd be interested to see. <laughs> yeah, this one's from Jay, and Jay says, "Butthorned by Busey." <laughs> hey, gents, bulletproof. What the fuck? <laughs> it's terrible. After the first fifteen minutes. It's all downhill into character actor train spotting and uninspired direction, writing and acting. Busey's and acting in this, those wild eyes and chiclet teeth jumped the shark into mental illness a long, long time ago. Bulletproof is strictly for Busey completists. Anyone else is better off watching the first 15 minutes on YouTube. If anyone needs to see Silva as an evil general type with an accent, check out Megaforce. It's got spandex and headbands, too. <laughs> Recently, I've been catching up on older GGTMC episodes and watching a lot of the films featured. The Stabilizer, Stone Cold, DeLeo's Melio Trilogy, Raiders of Atlantis, and Cry of a Prostitute have all been great viewing. The TIFF coverage has been excellent, even if it sounds like William is going to collapse while walking. Uh, lastly, congratulations on 100 episodes. The GGTMC is truly something special, and I wish you continued success with it. Thanking, thanks for making the daily grind more bearable, Jay. Nice, nice. Yeah, um, let's see here, a couple things. Yeah, one, I mean, I can understand. Again, I can understand people not liking Bulletproof. I just, I have a hard time believing people who listen to our show wouldn't like it, but at the same time, you know, to each their own. Uh, it's totally up our alley, but uh, maybe not up everybody's. It is a little ridiculous. It is a little uh, amateur in some ways, but I know we had a lot of fun with it either way. Yeah, no, we definitely did. And uh, again, yeah, to each their own, man, I mean... You know that, that's that's the great thing about it. I'm glad we have a better batting average uh, 
with him though, uh, seeing as how he did like a lot of the other stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Megaforce is a good one. It's one maybe at some point we'll do on the show. I I have the VHS. Uh, yeah. Deeds, not words, as uh, as they say. So yeah, Megaforce yes, is uh, uh, Megaforce is infamous. Uh, among oh yeah, a lot of people like Megaforce for some reason. It's such a weird movie. <laughs> Silva's got a beard in that one, if I remember correctly. So. It's either that one he's got a beard in, or Bronx Warriors Two. It's one. Of, it's one of those two. I can't remember which one. Or maybe both. I know he did a he did a Macaroni Combat film too, where he had a beard, but I can't remember what the name of that one is. It's yeah, actually, I'm not sure. Actually, one I've been looking for forever. Let's look into that. Yep. Uh, do you want to go to the next one? Uh, yeah, I'll do the next one. And thanks for the 100 episode. Congratulations. We appreciate that. Okay, uh, this reminds me. There were, oh, yeah, I still got those voicemails. Never mind. <laughs> this, uh, this is from uh, uh, Brian up in uh, Utah here, good friend of the show. Uh, he says, a word to the was. Uh, given the opportunity, don't drink whiskey with Winstone, Connery, Cassell, and Kinski. They will steal your phone and leave silly messages. But, hey, what's a centenary without a few drunkards making arses of themselves? Happy century, <laughs> lads. Cheers, Brian. So. Uh, you guys will get a little bit more uh, feedback on that here in a little while. <laughs> that yeah, that will make more sense shortly. <laughs> yeah, and it is glorious. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, the winners. Do we want to hold off on that? Or? Uh, we'll announce it in the intro. Okay. Like everybody, every, we know everybody's going to listen to the intro and stuff. So we'll we'll throw out the winners of the uh, Martin contest in the intro. So. Okay. And Carl Bresden, who uh, I want to start mentioning his blog actually, because he's got a good blog. And I didn't want to click on Echo Phone. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Nice. He sent us a picture and it says, speaking of big goofs and shoulder pads and Zubaz pants, it's, uh, of course, the Road Warriors uh, and Marino. It looks like a young Marino. It is a Dan Marino, yes. Uh, All three of them in the, the tasteful, subtle black and white Zubaz, but very different shades, different... Different uh, uh, textures. Yeah, very, very, very Pollock-like, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe so, man. It's uh, quite incredible. I always laugh. Uh, I always laugh when I see those photos, man. I just, they just make me laugh. <laughs> you know where that photo's going. I'm going to put that on the uh, Facebook. Because at some point in time in my life, I looked at that photo and thought, man, the Road Warriors look cool. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so I'm saving that as we speak. I'm going to put it on the Facebook group here in a moment. Nice. Um, we need to start. E- you know, that's a thread we need to start. A, a Zubaz photo thread. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Because I know, I think um, uh, Matt, who blogged on our the gentleman's blog, yes. um, <laughs> recently put up a pretty good thing with uh, that fuckwad Sasha. Was it Sasha? I was going to say Sasha Gray. Uh, I can't Sasha. remember his name. He's the one that's in all the uh, kickboxer movies. Yeah, he was uh, in Step by Step as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to post that picture up. Uh, is it my turn again? Or yeah, uh, yeah, I think you can read the actual email from Carl, actually. Okay. So it says, Steely Eyes and Packing Peanuts. <laughs> Buenos dias, gentlemen. Not sure when this will be read, but let me lead off with a hearty congratulations on the 100th episode. Here's to 100 or more if it grabs your respective geese. Just get back from a few weeks off the grid as I went through some seismic life changes in the form of marriage and honeymoon in the developing world. Whoa. Whoa, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations uh, certainly to that. you then. Yes, definitely congratulations. That's certainly in order. Uh, so it was exciting to see you guys covered a few of my personal faves in the meantime. I won't add too much to the dialogue, but I appreciated that you pointed out Miko Kaji's proficiency in acting with her eyes and facial expressions in the first Scorpion film. This tactic is elevated to another level in the subsequent sequel, Jailhouse 41. 
While a tough film to track down, it's an absolute visual feast and my favorite entry in the series. It's tough to add much of, much to your review of Undefeatable in 99, but it would be I would be remiss if I did not mention Godfrey Ho's use of slow motion styrofoam packing peanuts during the sword fight between Stingray, Stingray and Christie. Yes. <laughs> it was like watching soft snowfall on a chilly January eve and maybe the most elegant visually Ho has ever committed to film. Seriously. <laughs> um, he actually released another film the same year called Honor and Glory with virtually the same cast. Chuck Jeffries makes the appearance in a supporting role and Don Neam is subbed out as the main villain for John Buccaneer Miller. Yes. Of all people. There's some decent fighting and while it doesn't quite approach the cheesy highs of Undefeatable, it's really quite amusing to watch Miller playing a smug jerk-off banker. <laughs> uh, sample quote, do you know a nuclear trigger from a Bulgarian dildo? Because I don't. Now, I'm not sure what, the, what fine details might differentiate a Bulgarian dildo from those made in other countries, but Google is probably a good place to start, and I'll get back to you on that. Keep up the excellent and mostly pantsless work, guys. Cheers, Carl. Oh, man. i got to see this movie. I've never seen Honor and Glory. <laughs> it's, and it's, good to know, it's good to know that uh, 100, the 100 episode had to have a little dildo talk. So <laughs> It did, and Bulgarian dildo... Uh, Google image search doesn't return anything beyond the standard. I don't see anything. Uh... No, looks like uh, the whole man made that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's known to do something, stuff like that. Yes. Uh, yeah, well, I'll check, I'll check out Honor and Glory. Uh, I did think uh, John Buccaneer Miller was pretty atrocious and undefeatable, so if he's the main bad guy in Honor and Glory, I'm down. Yeah, see how he goes from face to heel. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, but thanks for the uh, well wishes and congratulations on uh, making the commitment, as us married men like to say. Yes, welcome to the club, man. Yes, welcome. You'll have much to talk about in the future, we promise. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, good, and, and, you know, and mostly good. Let's just say that. Mostly good. Mostly great, we should say. Uh, yes, because we are both happily married men, not to each other, but we are happily married men. <laughs> <laughs> Although some would beg to differ. <laughs> yes. All right. Our last vo- email is from uh, Brian, and he has a suggestion for us. He says, "If you haven't already seen the movie Shakedown, you need to. It features Peter Weller as a public defender defending a drug dealer in a murder case, and and a fucking more than normal badass Sam Elliott. Oh, as a rough street detective, I cannot recommend this movie enough. If you're a Peter Weller or Sam Elliott fan, plus this movie has a badass ending where Peter Weller." And- well, yeah, it's not a spoiler. They got Peter Weller and Samuel Lee going on a kick-ass vengeance spree. This movie is on Netflix Instant View and is in my eyes a must-see. Hope you guys check it out and would love to hear a review of it. Love the show, Brian. And also, we can make the announcement that Canadia <laughs> is now Netflix Instant compatible. So, uh, I know. Yeah. That, I guess you guys must have the same catalog we have, which is really good news, actually. We uh, don't, actually. Oh, you know, I thought maybe you might. I was, I was looking through, you know, some of the tweets from other... Uh, People that live in Canada and stuff, and most everything so far has been legit. But uh, you know, uh, America to well, North American has been it's been tied together. But I guess there is a few that aren't. There's a few differences. I guess licensing is a country to country thing. It could be, could be. Uh, yeah. I actually did some research, um, and then also, of course, the CRTC or CTRC. I can never remember what CRTC um, insists that. Uh, a given amount of content is Canadian, so which means we will ah, have yes, some yes, shit yes. movies on there. Not to slam Canadian film because it is great, but there's some that certainly is not. So, yeah, yeah, okay, uh, understood, understood. I mean, uh, you know, 
It'll go up. But at least, you know, at least it's there in some capacity now. Do you, do you guys know how many films uh, Canada does have on Netflix? Just watch. There is some, has anybody reported out a number yet? I called them, mm-hmm. and they said well over 1,000 right now, and they're adding more every week. Just, you know, again, they have to get the licensing and stuff. Okay. There's some pretty good stuff on there. I mean, there's nothing too wacky like um, that I've seen yet, like um, like Stabilizer. But okay. Uh, okay. they do have... Um, Any of the Blue Underground stuff on there? Uh, well, I did type in Big Racket, Street Law. That wasn't there. I'm sure... Let me type in Maniac very quickly. That's a Blue Underground title that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, that looks but like the- it's not the one. Uh, no, it's not available. Huh. But Halloween 3 is Jagged Edge, Return of the Living Dead. Hmm, okay. Um, I know they do have um, um, what's it called? Uh, I lost my train of thought. There is some solid stuff in there. There's a lot of great older stuff. There's there's a lot of Criterion actually. Um, yeah, which yeah. is probably the way I'm going to go uh, with them at first until <laughs> they get a lot more kind of sleazier. Yeah, the the joke on, on the joke on the Twitter for those who are, are the from the uh, Facebook I should say for those who don't follow us or are in the group or are in the loop, and this is why you should really be on there. The joke was, Large William decided to break his Netflix Instant Cherry to pop his Netflix Instant Beautiful Red Cherry with uh, a little, which we'll talk about in the intro, a little uh, Brasson and a little French cinema known as Pickpocket. Now, some of you might be aware if you've ever seen Pickpocket, but it's got a, you know, uh, a quite a reputation, regardless of what you think of it, and uh, which <laughs> that, that addresses what we'll talk about in the beginning. But... Um, uh, he decides to go with the French New Wave and a little Bresson. I decided back in the day to go with a mustachialess Chuck Norris and Breaker Breaker, a truck movie. So <laughs> say what you want to say. That's, that's the GGTMC dichotomy right there. Certainly is. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. So uh, thanks for the uh, email. Uh, and we'll look into that Shakedown film. I think I've seen that before, but I'm not positive. I wonder if Sam Elliott's got a mustache in that or not. I'd be curious to see. All right. Let me, I hope so. Let's get. To, yeah, it's like he. I don't think he was born with one. It's like yes. uh, here we go. We got uh, quite a bit of voicemail, so let's get into it here. Let me get him going. On the one hundredth episode of Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Will and Rick gave to me more Henry Silva talk, more tight pants, more whisker biscuits, more big <laughs> boobies, more sweaty guys, more machine guns. And Metal Mikey is very happy. Happy 100, gentlemen's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Peace out. Bye. <laughs> he did cover a lot of the basics there, so <laughs> there's not a lot to add. I love that he went from whisker biscuits, which is just a hideous term, to big boobies, which is like the most proper. It's like almost like a way women explain boobs to kids or something you know yeah <laughs> it's like you know he goes hard and then he comes back gentle just like silva <laughs> yeah <laughs> he he might smack you around a little bit but if you got some uh you know some cold water and a pig carcass he'll uh you know he'll bring you he'll bring it all back so, oh yeah <laughs> all right thanks mikey we appreciate that thank you mikey next voicemail hello boys Hello, how are you? Are you well? Yes, uh, hey guys, it's Ian. Um, just wanted to say happy 100th episode, muddy funksters. Um, that is a grand, grand achievement, and um, you guys have been entertaining my ear holes for uh, for oh, well over a year now, actually, and I have been loving it every second of the way. Um, 
I've got to say as well, you guys are just two of the friendliest motherfucking podcast hosts on the net. Um, you are both lovely, lovely men. Would you believe... Would you believe I'm doing this sober? Would you believe it? <laughs> and uh, I've kind of gotten a bit tongue-tied. Just thinking of the majesty of the GGTMC <laughs> has brought m- my brain to tears no silence my brain has been brought to silence which i think is the first time a brain has ever been brought to silence um but yes happy 100th episode um i am i was so pleased for you guys when brian trenchard smith um uh voicemailed in a few weeks back because i know how much you guys love and respect and just talk about the work of him and directors like him so much on the show and and to get the that sort of validation, like validation, sounds like I'm being mean. It's not. It's the fact that somebody or somebody you guys respect so much is actually talking to you about the podcast and what was said on the podcast. I thought was awesome. And one day I hope it happens for me. I ju- I just want Danny Boyle to voicemail me and say, Ian, I really appreciate your love for sunshine and um nice your constant blowing of that film but um yeah i mean just i'm getting really off topic but yeah just brilliant um i'll be absolutely honest i don't see half the films that you guys talk about (laughs) um there are just too many films to watch but i love listening to you guys talk about them um i got a question though um as i see that i'm fast uh, coming on three minutes um what, I mean, what is, like, the biggest disagreement about a film that you guys have covered ever? Because I I don't really ever remember you guys disagreeing completely about something. I was just intrigued if there, if there ever was a case that springs to mind, like, your biggest disagreement. Because you guys are very, very, very chilled and, um... Yeah, I've I, I, oh, forgotten. Fuck it. I'm done. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've just finished recording Cinerama and I, I genuinely think my brain's just turned to mush, but um, <laughs> kick some ass, guys, keep it up, and here's to another hundred. Uh, nice one. Cheers. Bye. All right, good friend of the show, Ian, there. You're pretty great voicemail. Um, okay, so he's got a lot of stuff. I had to actually take notes on Ian's voicemail. Um, to give everybody an update on the Trenchard Smith, uh, he actually, I, I contacted him again. We were going to do the, an interview here in the last two weeks, but I contacted him again, and he actually got a job uh, over in uh, England, I believe. Uh, in Ireland, actually, and uh, he's over there right now doing film prep and stuff. So, you know, to being the gentleman we are, we don't want to interrupt uh, Brian while he's working on a new project. So we're going to wait until he comes back. He'll be back around uh, Thanksgiving time or somewhat after. But he's still committed, he told me, to doing the interview. So that's very nice of him. And uh, speaking of gentlemen, I would have to say that in my amount of, the amount of contact I've had with Mr. Trencher Smith, he is a true gentleman, let me tell you. Uh, he's been a very, very nice man, so cannot wait to actually talk to him on the air. Um, he used the word validation in the voicemail, but to me that is kind of true. I did feel I did feel a sense of validation when Brian Trenchard Smith called. I'm not going to lie. It's like, it was. I mean, I, I love all of our listeners and stuff, but here we go with one of our heroes calling us. It was like holy fuck, you know. <laughs> so I'm sure you felt the same way. So, oh yeah, it was a big honor. I mean, like you said, not to diminish anything. I mean, we love all the all of our listeners, but to get you know to get one from a hero, um. You know, not to say it's it, it's more important. It's not more important, but it is a special feeling, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, he mentioned, you know, he wanted Danny Boyle to call a show and talk about sunshine, and 
Uh, I don't know if I've ever said on the air and stuff, but I like Sunshine. I know a lot of people didn't. I can't remember. I think you liked it a little bit, right? Yeah. No, absolutely I do. Yeah, uh, I think it's a good one. It's solid. It's, uh, it's you know, it's 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 not perfect, but that's okay. It doesn't need to be. Not every yeah. film needs to be perfect. It's one of Ian's favorites. He talks about it all the time, and I can totally understand why. I can get behind that. So, mm-hmm. uh it's 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 unique enough to be a favorite for somebody, I'm sure, and I'm glad that Ian pushes as much as he does because I think it got kind of shit on actually, which I think was unfortunate. Uh, he, he talked about uh, not seeing a lot of the movies we, that we review. Hey, they're always there for you, buddy. Always remember that. <laughs> yep. They're always there. Ra- Ra- Raiders of Atlantis isn't going anywhere. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Anytime you would on, want to put on your yeah. plastic skull and. <laughs> Watch uh, post-apocalypse through the eyes of uh, Diodato. Yes. We encourage it. Yes, and also, you know, for that matter, I mean, you, a lot of the films we review, probably not a chance in hell of them being remade, so they're always going to be there. <laughs> yes, this is a good thing. <laughs> yes, and uh, disagreement over a film. Now, this is a good one. This is an interesting one. This is always interesting to me. Will and I are just, you know, we, we will both um, hardly admit that we are just generally nice guys. Um, we do have disagreements over movies. Uh, I don't know if we've ever had one that's been... You know, like a will for like for will a one and me a nine. I don't know if we've ever had that kind of diversity in a review. I know, as a matter of fact, we haven't had that kind of uh, diversity on a, on a recorded review. Um, we don't always like the same movies, um, but uh, we also you know love movies so much though we still give them a fair shake even when we don't like them. So, I mean, a good example I would say was Frozen. Uh, will liked it more than me, but I ended up giving it the same score. So it's kind of confusing sometimes, but. You know, it is what it is. Uh, I'm sure at some point in time, somewhere along the way, we're going to have one on this show that just is going to make one of us irritated and one of us is going to absolutely love it. It hasn't happened yet. The thing is, when you have a show with two guys who pick movies for each other and stuff, uh, you know, we pick a lot of stuff. We don't watch, we don't do all stuff we haven't watched. We do stuff that we have seen too. So, uh, because we just love to talk movies. So, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know how to answer it other than the fact that, you know, it is what it is. I mean, sooner or later, it's got to happen, though, right? Yeah, it's one of those things I think, you know, usually because we have very similar sen- sensibilities and sentiments. Um, I think you like sometimes a little more steak. You like sometimes, I think you're a little bit more of a fan of writing, whereas I'm a little bit more of a fan of the sizzle, which is yeah, that's true. That's the, definitely the aesthetic. True. I think that's yeah. one thing we can kind of, I can definitively say now. Yes. Um, I would say two films. Uh, oh, Mandingo's on Instant Watch, which is good. So is uh, Superfly TNT. <laughs> I, I guarantee uh, you we'll agree on both of those. <laughs> yes, we will. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I think two things that are kind of the most popular ones that we've slightly disagreed on were Argento, although I think you've even said there's there's flashes of brilliance, whereas I, I do love him more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that goes back to uh, the emphasis on writing versus um, aesthetics. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, I felt was a masterpiece. You, I think, liked, but were just really cheesed with Affleck in it. Yeah, yeah. That, that's probably the best example. I think you would probably, what would you probably rate that? Like a 9, 9.25? Mm, yeah, I'd say like a 9 for sure, man. It's fucking excellent. Okay, and I would probably go more in the realm of like a 6.25. So that's probably the biggest difference. That's one of the biggest differences in us. And also, by the way, Will and I were differed on Inception, too. He liked it a lot more than I did. So This is true. So it does happen. It does happen. So this, you got you to really listen to it because we're... We're so interested in talking about movies that we just kind of we just kind of breeze over it. We never really kind of harp on it. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, whatever. You know, you didn't like Inception. I did. So what? Let's move on. Let's talk yeah. about something else. <laughs> uh, all right. So thanks for the voicemail, Ian. We appreciate it, buddy. Really do. Um, 
All right. Uh, next voicemail. Oh, yeah. This is a classic. Here we go. This is You've actually teased this one. So here we go. Picking up the pieces of my dusty clamshell box. <laughs> I wonder if boxcar Bertha's worth a while. <laughs> now her name was Babs, and I recall the first time I saw her boobs. She left me jacking with some lube. Hershey Highway. Want to see you do your thing. Hershey Highway. You've seen better days. Now you're in Black Swan. Where Kunis and Portman get it on. Hershey Highway. Let me whack away, whack away my blues. Solo. <laughs> Turning back the pages to the times when you were hot. When you let David Carradine defile your twice. <laughs> You know you were a hippie and you went by the name Seagull. I can't imagine a life with Kung Fu being dull. Hershey Highway, you were good in Paris Trout. Hershey Highway, but you've seen better days. Hopper went full throttle when he raped you with that bottle. Jesus. Hershey Highway, help me whack away my blues. Hershey Highway, look, motherfucker, clean my shoes. Nice. Hershey Highway, help me whack away, whack away my splooge. <laughs> All right. Bazam, bringing it. <laughs> Might be, might be, in a long line of <laughs> brilliant songs, my favorite. Yeah, that's one of the best. That definitely is one of the best. And uh, I love the the detailed lyrics, probably the most. Uh, and of course, you know the kind of the kind of secret meaning of the Hershey Highway. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, it's got it's got it all. It's got the innuendo, and then honestly, it's quite frank in some ways. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, you know, a bottle or somebody or letting Carradine defile your twat. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know. Either way, uh, yeah, brilliant stuff from the Dogzom. Uh, so. <laughs> He really has raised the bar. I feel sorry for anybody that wants to call in and sing to us at this point. It's, 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 he should have been around in the beginning. Remember that first contest we had for listener content? I asked people to just call in and sing a song, and I would give them listener content. Uh, this guy would own, if I kept doing that, he would own it. With all due respect, of course, to the other uh, singers. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I think only one person ever called in and sang. And that was a guy named Red, who I don't think I've ever heard Red. from ever again. Yeah, Red uh, hasn't been back, sadly. Yeah, no. All right, so uh, not a lot to add to that. We'll just keep going here. Next voicemail. Thanks, Zom. We appreciate it as always. Yes. Hello, Samuel and William. It's Tom DJ calling you straight out of Brooklyn from Better in the Dark Laboratories. I wanted to take a moment to congratulate you on attaining that mythic 100th episode. Um, now, granted, I joined you late in your um, journey. I 
think the first episode I listened to was episode, what, 43, 44 thereabouts. Um, and, but I have not uh, been, I've been on the, the road with you ever since. I, you've become one of my favorite shows. You're one of those shows that the second the new episode comes out, I have to download it to my MP3 player and listen to it that night. Nice. I, I really enjoy your interplay. I, I, I have a great deal of a good time with the fact that I keep calling you and bugging you every week. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> secondly, William. William. Surely you realize that week five is when the Jets play the Vikings, which is a game I think you and I are both going to enjoy very, very, very much as we see that fucking selfish ass hat fall in his face and give that dumb, stupid, redneck look that when he realizes he's going to lose, which is probably going to be about somewhere about midway through the first uh, quarter, if you ask me. But that's just me. No, no, you and I are meeting, I think, at week seven, because we go up to Denver after that, and then we, then you guys come and visit us at the New Meadowlands to get your whooping. <laughs> so, um, oh, and another thing. You, let me tell you something. I come from the capital of crazy women, all right? So don't be trying to lecture me. I, trust me. I've, I've dated more crazy women than you've had, you know, wet dreams about uh, Henry Silva. What? what? Wow. So don't come talking to me about, I don't know anything about crazy women. That's why I say crazy women, they are interesting. Guys, once again, congrats, seriously, congratulations on your 100th episode. And I hope that you guys continue on for another 100 more. And I will be listening to every one of those 100 more. All right? Peace. All right, good old Tom from Better in the Dark. You know, he brings up an interesting point. You know, he caught on to us around 40 or so, but I had never heard of Better in the Dark until Tom started calling us, and I've been listening to Better in the Dark ever since. So it's interesting that uh, that's kind of like the, you know, the kind of social network we've kind of made, not to, you know, make a, you know, not to advertise David Fincher's film, but, uh, you know, uh, it's it's interesting how that's kind of came about, you know, because we didn't really know Tom. We just kind of heard about, you know, and he just kind of called us, and then we kind of digging in and stuff. And then, of course, now I know who Tom DJ is actually, and it's funny. I've been, you know, I've, I've read some of his work when I was younger, and it's it's really weird to me how, how the world has kind of kind of brought that all together. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Uh, also, totally. what the, the, I love the time he's such a gentleman, and then like certain things can just take him off the rails so quick. <laughs> yes, Brett Favre being one of them. <laughs> yes, it is, and it, it's going to be like Christmas for him, Week Five, the way Favre and the Vikings are playing, man. Yeah. Uh, Actually, I'll throw this out there. Being a third party, uh, maybe you and Tom should place a bet. We did. We oh, did place okay, a bet. Good, good. I'm glad you guessed uh, on the, but because the, they got the Packers week seven, so that was the whole thing. What, what is the bet again? I, I, I've forgotten. Uh, he'll pick a pick a film for us, or I'll pick a film for them. Of course, a, you know, a good film. I would imagine, unless he's really going to twist the knife and <laughs> yes. throw something in. Yes. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I'm I'm excited. Got some skin in the game. I'll be watching that game that week. So yes, go. yeah, it's going to be a good one. Uh, it, it will be. All joking aside, a good game. Um, and I guess he is. He does have a point. He does live in the the crazy woman capital of, of the world. Well, maybe not the world, but of North yeah. America, perhaps. It's it's hard to argue. Yes. Yeah. But, it's hard uh, to argue yeah. So well, thanks, Tom. We appreciate it, buddy. We, yes, thank you. And I think Tom, they're approaching their hundredth, so yeah. we got to get on there and congratulate them when the time comes. Yeah, we're, we're we've we've become as we've gotten busier and busier. We've become like some of the worst feedbackers in podcasting. <laughs> so I sent yeah. a, I sent a voicemail into Thirty Five Millimeter Heroes uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, 
and I heard it, and I, it was a. It, I'm totally off my game. It was a ter- for me personally. I know they loved having the voicemail and stuff, and they were ha- grateful to have it. But for me, it was a terrible to listen to. It was, it was cringe. You know, it's cringeworthy for me because I just rambled and rambled because I'm so out of the. I'm off my game with voicemails. I gotta get. I gotta get back in the game, Will. <laughs> gotta get back in there. You know, <laughs> I was never quite the character like Doc Zom, but. If you guys go back and listen to the old Cinema Diabolic episodes, you'll hear a lot of me and Large William and the old OTC episodes for that matter, too. So, mm-hmm. All right. Uh, next question. Here we go. Hi, Sammy and Will and Piccoloaf and Rupert and all the other people involved with GGTMC. This is Terry at Paleo Cinema. Um, I've got to say congratulations on 100 episodes. I know what a, an ordeal it is to get to 100 episodes on a podcast. I'm halfway there. Uh, but... Thank you for the podcast. Thanks for all the movies you guys review. Thank you for everything involved in it. And most of all, thank you very much for the support you've given me and my podcast. It's been marvellous. Um, you guys have introduced me to new movies. You've introduced me to new people. You've welcomed me into your community, in a sense. And also, you introduced me to Dr. Zom. Yes. So <laughs> thanks very much. I won't take up much of your time. You guys are going to be busy this episode. But... Thank you again for the podcast, and again, congratulations to everybody. There we go. Good old Terry from Paleo Cinema. Uh, yeah, Terry, of course, he's always known to, he'll introduce you, talk about somebody that'll introduce you to some films uh, that you overlooked. Terry is the, yeah. he might be the master podcaster when it comes to looking for the the overlooked gem, so to speak. Oh, yeah, and I love that he always talks about in his show, the community and how great it is to have that community and you know, he, he really gets it and, you know, does something that we both love and uh, yeah, yep. you know, we'll continue to support for as long as he does it. Um, fantastic man, fantastic show. I cannot recommend Paleo Cinema enough to everyone. Uh, uh, this is true. To find. This yes. is true. This is true. And thanks, Terry. We really appreciate it. And, you know, we'll support anybody that uh, loves movies as much as you, good sir. Trust me. Yes. So. All right, uh, next voicemail. Not to keep it short, but we got a ton to go through, so I'm starting to kind of crank through them now. <laughs> there we go. G'day, gentlemen. Guide to Midnight Cinema. This is uh, Marty from Australia here. Um, I'm actually driving at the moment. I just come back from a op shop. I was actually there a few days ago, and they actually had bulletproof on VHS. Uh, however, because I hadn't heard your latest show, I actually um, didn't pick it up. Um, then I did hear your latest show just in the last few days and I was really disappointed that I didn't actually grab it. So I went back today and sure enough, Murphy's Law, it's actually gone. Uh, so I guess I'll have to acquire it some other way now. Uh, but I just thought I'd give you a ring and uh, I'd like to congratulate you on your 100th show. Uh, your show is brilliant. I've listened to it quite, for quite a while now. And uh, it's it's drawn me to a lot of films that I probably wouldn't have seen before. So uh, I look forward to another hundred and um, all the best. And I'll talk to you later. Okay, see ya. Hey, that's Marty there. He's been a listener for a long time. Yeah, like, you know, of course, you know, living all the way on the other side of the world, it's kind of hard to send feedback all the time. But uh, it's good to finally hear his voice and hear from him. He's been he's been there for a while. I've had a lot of communication with him over the past uh, year or so. So. It's great to see him, and uh, yeah, I think he's posted some photos of us maybe on uh, Facebook. Some fun. He's you know he's been involved. Oh yeah, yeah he's been there absolutely. <laughs> and thank you, of course. Uh, yes, make sure you get back out and get that uh, bulletproof sometimes. Well, he's actually one that posted a photo of the Revenger recently, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The VHS. Yes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Uh, next voicemail. Here we go. 
Hey, gents, it's Emily, and I really was just mostly calling um, to wish you a happy 100th. I really have absolutely nothing to say about the Westerns you're going to be covering, because um, as I was thinking about it, I'm like, I've never seen any of those three films, and I know they're classics that probably most people, no, I wouldn't say most people, but a good deal of your listeners and cult audiences in general have. But, um, John, I, mean, I, I don't know anything about them, but knowing you guys and the hundred episodes I've listened to, I bet I will immediately want to go out and see them afterwards, because that's what you boys do. Um, <laughs> thank you for a hundred episodes of sorry. Intelligent Discussion. With what did you say sorry for? <laughs> witty, <laughs> adorableness to it, often filtered through tough tits and red leather. Uh, and, you know, just... I'll get weepy if I keep talking, but <laughs> it's—I I am sure you guys feel this way. But it, it honestly is hard to, you know, kind of not imagine life without you. But you know, like the enjoyment that I think I know I get, and I'm sure many others will get from you guys and some of the other podcasts and just the community we have is is really wonderful. And happy hundred, I'll just go because eventually I'll just start tearing up, and that's just all embarrassing. Blah. Bye. Well, thanks, Emily. We appreciate that. You don't have to tear up. We'll always be around. I told Emily she has a, a, a hug reservation in uh, in Cincinnati in uh, November, so she'll she'll definitely she's definitely she's been around with us for a long time now. And uh, I have to say, you know, thank you so much. And of course, she's going to contribute to our blog and things and, and all this other stuff. And she's been a dear friend for a long time, so it's always good to hear from. The, the supporters, and, you know, and a lot of you guys are called in this time, and it's always good to hear from those supporters that have been there. I think she's been there almost since, like, she's been there from almost the very beginning, I would say. So Yeah, because she was calling into OTC fighting the good fight. I remember, and I don't want to, like I said, I've said a few times now, characterize her as the saw defender. You know, she's certainly much more than that. She's a wonderful blogger, wonderful person, but that's, I think, what I took from the early shows. I think that was even, even before we were recording, um, I want to say, but... And I do want to say too. I did hear a voicemail before. Just my my wife was calling me. I had to make sure everything was okay. But yep, uh, yep. but uh, Emily, you know, we love you. I can't wait to meet you. And it's going to be a bear hug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and, and not in the Matsuzaka sense. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's going to be a lot of hugging going on. I told I told people on Twitter last night the arms are going to be sore. I'm so much. It's going to be like one of those like uh, like one of those talk show episodes where families reunited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get. The, I'm going to have to start shooting on the iPhone video because there's going to be like probably some happiness, some crying, some. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> all that stuff. It's going to be great. <laughs> oh man, it's going to be great. Yeah, it is going to be great. I can't wait. So close. It's getting so close too, man. It's getting so near. No man, it's around the corner. Right around Knocking the corner. on heaven's door. Yep, it's coming. So, but thanks, Emily. We appreciate the support as always, and we'll see if you'll watch the Dollars trilogy. I don't know. It's interesting. I'd I'd love to hear a female perspective on the Dollars films uh, because uh, female films they're not. So no, they're they're very much masculine films, but that's okay. I mean, she watches a lot of masculine-dominated uh, films. So. Oh yeah, yeah, she definitely does. I'm looking at a Netflix instant watch film called A Muck Train. See if you have that one on your Netflix instant watch. While well, I'm playing this next voicemail here. Yes. Here Large William and Samuel U. Rye. This is Mike here. I'm calling to congratulate you for reaching a hundred episodes. I hope this reaches you on time. I like to be the guy who swaggers in late at the party, so I hope this is there. If not, happy 101st episode. I was just thinking before sending this mail that it had only just occurred to me that I've never ever actually sent you guys feedback, which is completely criminal, and I realised that I thought I had because I spoke to you guys on forums and on Twitter, um, 
Samurai, you've been on our show, so I just kind of assumed I had, so I was kind of horrified when I realised I hadn't. <laughs> so I would just like to send you a message telling you about how I first encountered The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Now, I have relayed this uh, story on my show, so I apologise for the repetition here. But um, this, back in the, 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 the glory days when people cared about Podcast Alley, um, my show was quite new then. We'd had a few episodes, and I suddenly saw at number one with a bullet from out of nowhere for Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, and I thought, <laughs> who are these pricks? <laughs> so I listened to your show and was pretty instantly won over. I think it was Stone Cold that you were talking about. It might have been Mean Machine, obviously. Very early episodes, so I realised that you were a gentleman after my own heart. Uh, and then at the end of the show, you're thanking shows, and who do you mention but Chinstroker versus Punter? And I think that was probably our first unsolicited shout out on a podcast. So that was just icing on the cake. Um, I also said before that when I'm down at the gym, I like to listen to OTC because it's got the, the aggressiveness, the energy levels. But when I'm chilling in the jacuzzi afterwards, I think you know who it is that's rocking the house on my headphones. So congratulations for meeting 100 episode, guys. You deserve all the success that you've got, all the love that you've got. In a world where podcasters are angry and sarcastic and combative, it's good to have a couple of gentlemen right there telling us how it is, telling all the guys out there that it's okay to admit that your strange attraction to your male heroes from the <laughs> 1980s is understood and is shared by others. Love you guys. hundred more. Get on that. All right. That was Mike from uh, Chinstroker versus Punter. A dear, dear friend. Uh, it's funny. You know, Mike mentions that uh, we came out of nowhere. Uh, I was listening to Chinstroker versus Punter before we got started, and I remember mentioning it to you, mm -hmm. and I remember uh, mentioning it to Bill, saying, who are these guys over in England, this Chinstroker versus Punter? If you guys listened to the show, and I think at the time you hadn't listened to them yet, and I know Bill hadn't, and... Uh, I, I just love their show, and I, I thought to myself, you know, that's a to me, that's a lot what our show is going to be like. It's it's going to be this kind of in depth conversation, but we're going to tackle two films, you know, a week, and these guys only tackle one, and uh, you know, their, their their show length can be different every week. But I thought they couldn't really do two show two movies a week because their show would be long as hell, and uh, God knows we don't want that. Well. You know, time has changed, obviously, in my perspective of that, because, you know, we do two a week no matter what, no matter what the length. So, uh, uh, you know, that's that's just the way it goes. But they were they were definitely, I don't know if Mike knows this, but uh, him and Paul were definitely a big influence on, uh, I would say they were, for me, they were like the, the third the third uh, biggest influence on uh, this show, for me. Uh, OTC and Cinema Dibok, obviously, where me and Will met. And I was, Mondo. Yeah, and Mondo. And, you know, but I'm not really as in cahoots with the Mondo guys. No, uh, I mean I love them, but uh, you know there's no real personal interaction there. Uh, no. With uh, Chinstroker, there was no personal interaction yet either. But I kind of just made that personal interaction happen. Next thing I know, I was on an episode doing talking about Hooper, and uh, it's been really great. And we we're definitely gonna try to get the guys on at some point. Uh, we got so many slots promised to so many people, it gets out of control sometimes. But sounds like uh, a Thai whorehouse <laughs> yes. person. Hoping yeah. you put it that way. But. Yeah, it's a lot of slots. But anyway, yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, Mike and, and Paul are, are two of the best. I really do think they're two of the best podcasters. And uh, I know Paul doesn't really listen to podcasts, so uh, uh, yeah, that's pretty interesting to me. I consider him, he's a really great podcaster for somebody who doesn't really listen to anybody else. So uh, I do want to say I think they are probably the, the British version of our show, uh, and I love our show. I love me some me, as uh, Terrell Owens, I think it was said, or maybe Randy Moss. But, but yeah, uh, and and to in saying that, that means that I love what they do because I love what we do. So, yeah, they got a fantastic show. It's a great rapport. 
they don't get along. Or I shouldn't say get along. They they bicker considerably more than we do. But uh, yeah. I think that's yeah. probably one of the few differences. Yeah, they 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 they, they have different opinions on cinema. Uh, Mike's more the uh, Lynch kind of guy to kind of give you the the extreme, I guess. And Paul's probably more uh, kind of Hollywood big budget uh, kind of guy. So less we, pre- less pretension. Yeah. So you mix those two together, and you get Chinstroker versus Punter, and it it makes for a fun show. And I, I think it works because they call their show versus you know Chinstroker versus Punter. They call it that, so it's it's set up for that kind of uh, interaction. So. Oh yeah. As far as you know, if we were called Samurai versus Big Willie, we'd I would pick shit that I know would piss you off, and vice versa, or not piss you off, but I would challenge you more often as opposed to now where I'm like. Have you ever seen this? No, I haven't either. Oh man, it sounds like right up our alley. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so there you go. But thanks, Mike. We appreciate it, buddy. And uh, you know, they just did a hundred episodes not too long ago. So, or we're trying to catch up with them. I don't know if we'll ever do it. You know, we'll see. <laughs> All right, next voicemail. Hey, Big William the Samurai. It's uh, TL Bug here. I wanted to uh, wish you a happy uh, one hundred shows. That's an amazing accomplishment, and uh, all of your shows have been great. And uh, y'all made such a tremendous impact on uh, the community that uh, I can only imagine right now that all of your listeners are sitting around in mesh shirts and leather hot pants just enjoying the show. Well, that might just be me. Well, anyway, happy 100 shows, and here's to 100 more. All right. That was uh, the lightning bug. Good to hear from you. You want to talk about, you want to talk about nice guys in our community. Yep. He's one of the nicest, a true southern gentleman. <clears throat> This is true. This is definitely true. He's going to be in Cincinnati too, right? Am I correct? Hells yeah. Yeah, and I'm hearing now that uh, uh, Jeff from way out in Oregon is going to be there. PDX creep. Oh, so, nice. Yeah. It oh, seems like somebody was... else. Oh, yeah, Robert uh, Robert Best. I think he does a podcast. Don't look in the podcast or something like that. Him and his wife are going to be there now too. So it's just it just this Cincinnati meetup is going to be unrivaled as far as podcasters go. It's going to be unbelievable. Oh, yeah. It'll be just amazing, and uh, I'm, uh, it's getting to the point now where it's almost like it's like when I heard the Expendables casting. It's like don't fuck this up. <laughs> yeah, it, you're, that's a good way to put it, isn't it? It really is like that Expendables casting. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, somebody said we uh, or Emily yesterday said that we should do a group photo in like cheerleader pyramid form, but uh, <laughs> I'm not. Who's on the bottom? I know, I know. I'll tell you, Doc's going to be on the bottom of that pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if anybody, I haven't met Doc, but I've seen pictures of Will next to Doc. And I've stand I've stood next to Will, so I know Doc is a considerably large man. <laughs> I look like uh, Tattoo uh, with Mr. Rourke, uh, and I'm six feet tall. So, you know, yeah, Doc's the next football player for those who didn't know. So he's a big man. So yes. <laughs> All right, next uh, next voicemail, <laughs> and thanks, thanks, uh, TL Bug. Thank you very much. Hey, what's up, guys? By neck. Uh, I just want to congratulate you guys on 100 episodes of Gentleman's Guide of Midnight Cinema. I know it's not easy to do, and just wanted to thank you guys for all the hard work and effort you put into the show every week, getting it out on Tuesday, and seriously, man, it's greatly appreciated, and you make my ride to and from work really enjoyable before I have to go into a living hell, and thank you very much for all the hard work, and to the new guys, fucking Piccolo, love listening to you talk about a hundred movies you watch before every episode <laughs> on the two watch section. I think it's fucking hilarious. It's amazing. And the passion behind it. Incredible. And fucking Rupert, man. Shit. When Robert Osborne retires from Turner Classic Movies, I'm getting a petition out there. 
And we got to get you in there to host the fucking show. I want to see you come out before nice. every movie with a little fucking sweater vest and a little pipe, a cup of coffee, and explain what the feature, the upcoming feature is about because you're just like the coolest motherfucker in the world as well. It's like when they open up the fucking podcasting museum in the future, the gentleman's guy, the midnight cinema, is going to be in the refrigerated section because all your statues are going to be made out of ice because you motherfuckers are as cool as shit. Ice. I'm going to run. No. <laughs> All right. That, that was the back of Forrest Whitaker's neck. Uh, who, believe it or not, is still going to be on the show at some point. Down, we just got to work it out. But we definitely will have uh, Forrest Whitaker's neck on. Hopefully, by then he'll let me call him by his real his real name in some capacity. Because I'm going to have a hard time saying. I'll just call him Neck. But I'll be like, Hey, Neck. Hey, Neck. But this is kind of weird. So, but yeah, that's uh, he. I actually consider uh, Forrest Whitaker's neck. I consider him like uh, I consider him like an action guru in a lot of ways because that guy will watch any action movie. I mean, yeah, he watches some true. And no offense to you, Nick, but he watches some true garbage. <laughs> yeah, he does. But we we do too. And, yeah. But yeah, he loves some, some garbage. Yes. Uh, I, I got to say, uh, Sammy, I was talking to Roop the other night, uh, and I told him that that Neck had given him like the most amazing compliment, <laughs> and uh, I just love that he he talks about. I, I just envisioned. Um, uh, Rube coming out into that little living room kind of thing and yeah. sitting down kind of casually on the arm of the Chesterfield crossing his legs talking about a film. Yeah. yeah, the reason why that's so funny to me is because, you know, if you're friends with if you're friends with Brian, like we are, you know, we know what he looks like and stuff. So I get this image immediately of this, you know, of him carrying this pipe. Yeah. And it's like the total opposite of Lee Van Cleef smoking a pipe. No offense, Brian. It's like the total opposite of that. It's like the polar opposite. It's like, who's this guy smoking this fucking pipe? <laughs> but no, Rup, uh, Rup would definitely deserve that job. He is uh, in the GGTMC. We've kind of we've kind of gotten these professionals in here. Like, uh, you know, in my opinion, we're kind of like the professionals, like the movie. You know, Will's kind of a giallo kind of guy. I'm kind of an action movie kind of guy. Rup's kind of the classic film guy. And I'm trying to figure out what Pickle Loaf is. He's the slinky the guy. garbage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, real Z-grade garbage. <laughs> yeah. So we've kind of gotten these professionals in here. And then you add on to our blog writers, you know, and you get more guys like that. You get uh, Matsuzaku, who has a unique perspective on not only cinema, but fashion, evidently. <laughs> and then, you know, Emily, who has a great... We, we've always kind of surrounded ourselves with people with unique visions on what they see in cinema, so... It's interesting, you know. It's very interesting to me that we kind of created this community. That, that that's what I always wanted to do, and I can't believe it's kind of all came to fruition. Actually, so pretty nice. This will be the longest feedback section ever. All right. <laughs> yeah, let's. We got to. We got to try to plow through, guys. No disrespect here. <laughs> Next voicemail. You're right. It's fucking Ray Winston here. <laughs> I'm been having a fucking GG centenary fucking party in my fucking house with my mates. You know, because I'm the fucking daddy. You know, I was just really fucking thinking uh, I should drink some, uh, a lot of whiskey in consideration for the great achievement of a fucking GGTFC right in the fucking hundred episodes. So I'd like to pass the phone around and see some of my fucking guests here tonight. All right. Who's this here? It's that Sean Kennedy. Ah, <laughs> uh, sure. Oh, there, GGTMC. So, uh, everyone knows that uh, I like to uh, slap my wife every once in a while. Oh, Jesus. And, uh, you know what stopped me doing that is I like to, uh, I listen to the GGTMC. The gentleman was at the midnight cinema. And that means that I, uh, only slap my wife once every three hours, sometimes even three and a half hours. 
Silence for a second. Right, well, yes, indeed, it is me, but I have had a uh, good few wiggies, so, um, <laughs> yeah. and I'll uh, finish this call with my close Kinski, which is pretty awful. It sounds more like this with Chef. Uh, yes, <laughs> nope, that's awful. All right, well, happy days, happy days, and all that. Good care. Good old Brian there, bringing the. Bringing the impressions like nobody's business there. <laughs> just fucking rolling them out, man. That was great. I mean, he just would jump into one and from the other, and I love it. Quite, quite the party favor, I'd imagine he is at this point. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, next voicemail. Here we go. Uh, the reason why I'm going along is I think this is Brian again, but I'm not sure what the hell this is, so here we go. I know what it is. Yeah, it's not things that I like to listen to more than the gentleman's guide when I'm pulling my my boat over the mountain. (laughs) I want my opera house. Happy 100 and 100. That was a little follow up voicemail. Uh, so he went ahead and gave the Koskinski a try anyway, even though he first he was he was reluctant to do it. Now he's he's moved he's done it. So <laughs> I, I think he even prefaced in in the email part that he goes, "I'm going to do my Klaus, even though it sounds more like the Swedish chef." <laughs> <laughs> I think if you listen closely, you can hear him laughing at himself in there. <laughs> so. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, I got a voicemail from Rupert here. I wanted to play it at the end, but I already got it programmed in the thing, so I'm going to go ahead and play it. Rupert mentioned he's going to be on the show 101. So he mentions what he what he picked for that show. So let's just go with it and see, so we can keep plowing through here. Hey, gentlemen, it's Rupert. Um, just uh, calling to congratulate you on a uh, hundred episodes. Um, and here's to you know two or three hundred more. Um, anyway, I'm calling in quickly to call out my uh, pick for next week. Um, it is the uh, aerobic size flotation. <laughs> Classic Heavenly Bodies. Ah, yes. Um, and I'm not going to say too much about it at this point, except that it's pretty awesome uh, for what it is. So uh, I'm thinking it'll be a good time. Uh, anyway, I'll be talking to you gents soon. Okay, bye. All right. So there you guys have it. Uh, Rupert will be picking Heavenly Bodies, so we'll talk about that more at the end of the show. Uh, but that's what he uh, decided to pick when he came back on the show, one-on-one. And also, we appreciate the you know 100-episode uh, uh, congratulations. Yeah, there we go, from old Roop. So. Yes, thank you, my good friend. It's always hard to reply to Roop on voicemails uh, because you know I talk to him like almost every day. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
<laughs> it's very strange. All right, uh, next question. Here we go. Hello, gents. It's uh, Uncool Cat calling. Oh, yeah. Um, from prison, actually, so it has to be <laughs> short. Did you know um, it was illegal to look through women's windows uh, when they're undressing? I did not know that. That's a silly law. They should have, like, warning stickers above windows like they do on cigarettes, because how's, how's one to know that? Anyway, just uh, calling to congratulate you on your 100th show. Not a bad one in there. Lots of great movie recommendations, and uh, yeah. Keep looking forward to a hundred more, or maybe two or three or four, depending on uh, how old you guys get. <laughs> All right, so uh, looks like someone's waiting to use the phone. It's that guy who's always raping me here in prison. Oh no, he's uh, waiting to rape me. So I gotta. <laughs> oh, he started. I gotta go. Bye. <laughs> oh, okay. Chris and his unique sense of humor is. <laughs> Oh, I still laugh at uh, Cletus the cave trout. Still uh, comes up in other podcasts. I think it was Cletus, right? His cousin, his brother. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the cave trout is what I call it. So, which sounds like a uh, <laughs> slang for a penis. <laughs> so, <laughs> watch out for the cave trout. Um, yeah, Chris is going to be on the show pretty soon. I was talking to him a little bit last night and stuff. So, uh, hopefully, we can get him on pretty soon. Got some ideas going around stuff. And get him on. He's kind of like the the uh, the other wheel. The first four wheels on the GGM TMC. He's the fifth wheel. He's that extra wheel. So. But certainly not in a bad way. No, I'm no, not no. Not in no. a conventional fifth wheel sense. No, I would consider him like he's extra support. But really, really, what it comes down to is I get so jealous listening to him and uh, Will do a show because they laugh and, and they do a great. They got great chemistry. Is I want to, you know, I just want to, and I know Chris through communications, but I've never actually talked to him. So it'll be fun to uh, to do a show all three of us together. See see what happens there. <laughs> That'll oh, yeah. be a blast. So look forward to that pretty soon. And uh, thanks again for all the bonus content you gave us, Chris. It's really appreciated. It really was. All right. Next voicemail. Hey, guys. It's PJ. I haven't called you in a while, but uh, I was listening to some of your episodes. I'm behind by a couple. I'm listening to episode 97 right now. And just from, you know, driving and being tired and whatever, I got to thinking about an all-new show. Now, I, I've told you guys before, I have kids, and I've been watching a lot of, you know, little kid shows with my two-year-old, and uh, I was thinking about the Electric Factory GGTMC style. Uh, kind of thinking about those two outlines of the guy and the girl talking to each other, rather than saying all these kids' words, it would be penis and dildo, because that seems to be the... Uh, two most used words on your guys' show right now, <laughs> between that and rape. <laughs> and then I figured for all the little outtakes where they do the little story things, it would be um, just a bunch of guys uh, uh, being all sweaty and oily and uh, wearing thongs. I don't know. <laughs> all right, that's it, guys. Bye. Hey, good to know PJ's still listening out there. I haven't heard from him in a while. He's going to be, I think he'll be at Horhound Weekend as well, so... I hope so. Yeah, I think he'll be there. I think he'll be there as well. He's been to a few of them before, so I think he's going to try to make it back to one. Um, that must have been the episode with all the dildo talk that Doc Zom kicked off. So <laughs> uh, that, that must have been that episode. I'm not positive. But I think it was, though. So, <laughs> All right, next uh, voicemail. It would appear that I have been cut off. Oh, blast from the past here. This is Matt Suzaka. It must have sent a fax or thought I was Emily. Either one. <laughs> Either way. I have been cut off, and I'm angry. But I am happy at the same time, because it is your 100th episode, and I congratulate you with all my might, 
and I give you 100 spankings on each of your bottoms until they turn <laughs> pink and then red. And then when you can't take it anymore, I give you 100 inches each wow. in those same bottoms. <laughs> that could take at least a few days because, well, I don't carry 100 inches in my pants. I come close, though. <laughs> anyway, thank you for all the laughs and all the movies and all the, you know, all that stuff. Congrats. You guys are the best. Peace. All right, Matt's just like, I haven't heard from him in a while. We know Matt's still out there. Uh, it's weird. You know, Matt's only five hours. Again, I'll say it. Matt's only five hours away from me yet, and I still haven't had a chance to meet up with him. Matt, he's going to be at the thing, too, supposedly, though, so hopefully he'll get there. And hopefully he'll get there on Friday. I think the, the word is he's going to be there on Saturday, and I'm not going to be there Saturday, so hopefully he'll be there. If not, me and Matt are going to have to meet up another time. Yes, at the Blue Oyster. <laughs> bum, bum, da, 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 da. All right, uh, next voicemail. Let's keep rolling here. We only got one, two, three, four more to go. Here we go. Happy 100. Yay. This is Phil from Syracuse. How are you guys doing? I just wanted to say you guys are the best, and I started listening way back. I think it was episode 40, and then I went back to episode one and worked all my way up to the present episode. So I do listen every week. I've never missed a week. I know I don't call every week, but... How can you compete with Doc Zom, you know? But um, anyway, I remember calling. My very first call um, was I told you about how I um, lost my friend, who is very close to me, uh, and we used to talk about movies and get together every week. And that's, uh, that's about over a year ago. And um, since then, I've made three, four good friends um, who we get together with and hang out and talk about movies. And I definitely consider you guys, even though we've never met, good friends. So thank you guys for what you do, and uh, hope for hopefully another 100 more. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, good friend of the show there, Phil. And, yes, Phil, we definitely consider you a dear friend as well. Uh, thanks for all your support, obviously. And uh, it's, it's good to still be you know, hearing from you and stuff, and I know you're still listening out there all the time, so we appreciate that. Doc Zom might have scared you off, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he he he's not that intimidating. I don't think. At least I don't think he is. So we'll find out. Cincinnati again, once again. So, but yeah, Phil, yes. great great for supporter and great friend of the show for a long time. So we love that guy. Absolutely, we do. Thank you, Phil, for everything and all your support. Yep. There we go. Next voicemail. Speaking of the devil, gentlemen, this is Agam, but maybe not. This is Larry. Oh shit! How the fuck? <laughs> Did two gentlemen manage one hundred fucking episodes? How the fuck am I still making movies? <laughs> That's a good question, actually. <laughs> and this raspberry candy. <laughs> Fucking so good. Mm, so good. You fucking kids making this fucking radio show. I don't get it. I don't fucking get it, but... Yeah, I'm fucking high right now, and I still don't fucking get it. All right, the, 
Larry, Larry's having a hard time this morning with his raspberry candies. Funny, he strikes me more as a Werther's kind of guy, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, yes. All right. So Larry called for 100. I appreciate that, Larry. We really definitely do. <laughs> so happy we heard from Larry. Uh, and heard time for, for 100. Haven't heard from Larry in a while. Uh, Larry, the master of the understated pause in a conversation, obviously. So. Yes. <laughs> All right. Next voicemail. Hey guys, this is Jake from Cincinnati. Uh, guess I'm, I'm now known as Jake McLarchuge on the forums. Uh, I'm just calling in, like everyone else, say congratulations on the 100th episode. Uh, it's something to be very proud of, although I'm sure you guys are plenty proud, but I'll go ahead and reiterate that this is something that you should definitely be very proud of. You know, a lot of podcasts don't really make it this long or maintain this kind of quality, so props to you guys for that uh it seems fitting that you know you guys are celebrating this in the month of september uh you know when uh or will this come out i don't even know if this will come out in september anyways uh it's appropriate that it comes out you know around this time because you know you guys got the new message board got a new blog you got tiff coverage and you got the perfect lead into the 100th episode with undefeatable and you know nick <laughs> or not uh, Gary Busey and his butt hornage. Uh, so, <laughs> nice. butt you know, hornage. this is a nice convergence, a nice vortex of awesome that you guys have stirred up. Uh, I guess I'll talk about the Dollars Trilogy now. Uh, like you guys, you know, go on and on all day about how great they are, but I'll just focus on uh, for a few dollars more and specifically uh, my favorite moment of all three movies, probably top five movie moments ever. Uh, comes when uh, Indio is in the church, El Indio, and uh, he's, you know, going to engage in a duel with that one guy. And, you know, they're getting ready to do their thing, and, you know, Ennio Morcone's score just starts to swell, and it's going, it's beautiful. And then all of a sudden, it cuts to El Indio, you know, looking like a demon, and it just busts in with this, like, organ, and it sounds like a horror movie. It's just the most perfectly realized moment that, you know seems like it shouldn't work but you know considering all the talent involved it just i don't know it just really really hit me the first time i watched it and you know based off that moment alone is probably why it's my favorite of the trilogy uh so yeah yeah good stuff um i'll go ahead and throw this in there you know this is a bit of a uh a topic to chew on you know, as long as you guys want to, because I'm sure this episode's going to be like 13 hours long or something. So you guys can, you know, talk about it for like 30 seconds or however long you want. But uh, it's kind of a genre topic that's been on my mind. And, you know, I'm just curious what you guys think. So uh, basically, uh, there's a there's a general convention that in horror movies, you know, your lead girl or your actors have to be likable in order for it to work. And it's it's a concept that always kind of kind of stuck with me, and you know the philosophy behind it. And I was just curious if you guys agree. You know, uh, the main character has to be likable that you have to relate to him in order to experience the fear. It's like a necessity. Uh, but it, in my opinion, it almost seems like you know it's not necessary. It's more a byproduct of a you know a talented filmmaker is actually able to make people that are likable, you know, whereas, you know, shitty horror movies, they don't have that ability. So I was just curious if you guys uh, 
stand on either side of the issue. Uh, I guess, like, the greater, you know, question behind it is, you know, are these actors, you know, empty vessels for the viewer to just kind of, you know, imprint, you know, how they would react to the situation? That's where the fear comes from. Or, you know, do, uh, in order for these, in order for you to experience your fear, you have to be able to, um, these these actors, these good actors that you relate to, it allows you to put yourself in that scenario. Whereas if they're shitty, you know, it's just too unrealistic. You can't do it. You know, I don't know if I made any sense. So if I didn't, you just want to move along. Go ahead. Anyways, <laughs> enough, enough is enough. Congratulations. And I wish for uh, another 100 episodes. All right, guys. Peace. All right, Jake from Cincinnati there. Jake McLarge huge as he's known on the boards now. Uh, I don't know. You want to you want to try to answer that question a little bit? That one actually could go. You could go really in depth with that question, but uh, I'll try to keep it short. If if you can try to keep it short there. So to be clear, it was: uh, Do I need my central character to be good or likable in a film? Was that what he was asking? Is that yeah? Yeah. To, to, to experience the in a horror film to experience the fear. Uh, do we really need your central character to be likable? Basically was his question, I think. No, not at all. And I think with horror, I think a lot of times um, it's an interesting balance between kind of Final Girl and uh, the killer. Yep. But you look at something like Angst that I watched a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. the central character in almost the whole time is is um, is the killer with his voiceover and stuff. Right. And it's, it gives me this, this kind of sick feeling of unease it's very effective, so I don't think it needs to be uh, a likable character at all. I mean, yeah. it, because I think maybe he's getting at the fact that, that you don't care what happens, so there isn't that suspense or tension, but um, I think it depends on the kind of horror film you're making, really. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. And I have to pretty much agree with that. I think the reason why I love horror films and action movies <clears throat> and all these films so much uh, is because they're pure cinema in a lot of ways. You can make... You can make a horror movie scary, and you don't have to have a central character that's likable. You can make an action movie awesome, and nine times out of ten, you're going to like the villain more than you're going to like the hero. It's 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 pure filmmaking. I mean, it, uh, I, I really believe that. I know that the Academy and places like that always want to give it to dramas where children die and people have diseases and things like that. I mean, those are all terrible things, and those make for good dramatics and films and stories. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, I think the purest cinema comes out of genre. I've always thought that. And I don't think you need to have anybody likable in a film if the genre's right, if the filmmaker's good. So, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's the stuff we review on here, like Cry of a Prostitute, stuff like that. There's not a likable per- I mean, there's not a, a morally likable person in the whole film. <laughs> it's you true. Know? Or even Quentin Tarantino cinema, where he's even actually said that he doesn't like for his character to have morals. Uh, you know, I, I, I agree with that. I, I want a I story. I don't want morals. And this trilogy is actually a good example of that, so... Mm-hmm. All right, uh, we got one more voicemail here. Let me see here. Uh, here we go. Hey guys, Mike. I just wanted to call and say happy 100. It's been a, a awesome getting to listen to the podcast, getting to know you guys, and I hope that there's a hundred more. That's all I got. Thanks. Bye. Good old Mike from uh, was it the podcast that dreaded sundown? There we go. I forgot the title for a second for a brief moment. Got the title. That's right. I think my wife's home. Uh, you might hear some dog barking here in a minute. But that is all the feedback. That is it, Large William. Gonna get into our all right, so let me, uh, I guess, jump into everything. Our pleasantries uh, to not waste any time. Yes, that sounds good. Go ahead. <laughs> I, okay. I turned it down because I'm getting ready to have a, a kennel attack in here. My wife so you, do, you get attacked by the kennel, and I'll ramble on for a minute. 
Um, okay, so Horahan weekend in November, rapidly approaching Cincinnati. We are all going to be there. You should all be there. It's going to be epic, beyond epic. Um, of course, palaver.com, where all your favorite shows can be found. Message boards are there. They're always very active. Uh, it's just great. The OMG giveaway we announced in the beginning, but of course, don't forget to check out uh, OMG, which is omg-entertainment.com, uh, GGTMC10 for uh, 10% off your orders. Fantastic site with a lot of great GGTMC films uh, and run by a truly wonderful person in Martin. Um, and then, of course, <clears throat> shows. We got OT, uh, OTC and Show Show, our sister shows. Family Movie Night, Chinstroker vs. Punter, Cinerama, 35mm Heroes, Night of the Living Podcast, Girls on Film, Big Red Podcast, uh, Movie Meltdown, uh, Paleo Cinema, The Podcast at Dreaded Sundown, Cinecultania, V Cinema, Action Attraction, Better in the Dark, and the Gore Press Gorecast. Jamie, my apologies. For some reason, I was driving home from work last um, I guess it was Friday night or something. I thought, fuck, I haven't mentioned Jamie's show. And, and no offense to anyone who I've forgotten. There's no reason anyone's been omitted. It's just uh, when I was transferring it from one sheet to the next, I must have forgotten. So apologies. And if I used to mention you and I don't anymore, you can always hit me up and ask why not. Uh, check out Paracinema.net, NightmareTheater.blip.tv, and HorrorCommentary.com. Blogs, we have Pickleloaf, Rupert Pupkin Speaks, uh, Deadly Dolls House, Rage on Film. These are all, of course, followed by .blogspot.com. Uh, Chuck Norris Ate My Baby, Death Rattle 13, um, Lightning Bugs Lair, Heaven's Trash, Naked Eskimo, Big Suck Loser, Funky16Corners.LunarPages.net, um, <clears throat> Region Incognito, and then FistOfBList.com, and of course, uh, The... Gentleman's Guide blog, the ggtmc.blogspot.com. Um, beyond that, we have CDB, which was cinema-de-bazaar, uh, for all your hard-to-find genre needs. Promo code GENTLEMAN for 10% off your orders. And, of course, Podcast Alley, iTunes, Facebook. Yeah. Friend us, join the group. Uh, Twitter is uh, twitter.com backslash ggtmc backslash largewilliam backslash piccolo 10 backslash bob freelander and backslash uncool cat uh and that's it um so yeah let's uh with that i guess we'll get into what we're covering next week you heard one half of it with the exploitation movie heavenly bodies yes and you said uh, you had a curveball for me i did have a curveball for you it's a film that i really i really want to champion um because i think it's one that I came into late in the game, I think a couple years ago, maybe a little less. Uh, it's an American film from 1977. I think it's one of the most important independent films and certainly one of the most important uh, independent African-American films of all time. And that's uh, Killer of Sheep. Nice. Um, nice. Written, directed, produced, and shot by Charles Burnett. Yep. It was a film I'd found about in an article I was reading about Los Angeles and film. Uh, this is a film that was kind of lost for a while, and it's... Uh, it's been restored. I think Soderbergh had something to do with the restoration. Um, I tweeted and sent a Facebook update for everyone to follow it um, because it was on that week. So I really can't wait to talk about this film. So as always, the two films couldn't be more different. <laughs> yeah, that's putting it lightly next week. Yes. Also, while I'm eating some breakfast my wife brought home for me, thank you very much, uh... I was just checking out Piccolo's avatar on the Pavlov Pavlov boards. Nice, nice work, Piccolo. Nice work. 
I don't know if you've seen it or not yet. Will, you might want to. And, uh, okay, so that is our show. Let me uh, cue up some music here. And uh, we'll say our adioses. This is always so clunky for me. But it is what it is. All right, guys, until next week, heavenly bodies and killer sheep. Play along or no play along, either way. We'll be back next week, and I'll say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.